Hi, welcome to the mop up for May 2nd, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 58 degrees and cloudy. Hitler, the Nazis, they are synonymous with evil, unless, of course, you're a Republican state senator. Uh, from Tennessee, who thinks Adolf Hitler can serve as an inspiration to the thousands of homeless people who refuse to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. State Senator Frank Nicely, who isn't so nicely, wants to fine homeless people $50 for camping underneath a bridge. Senator Frank Nicely says this will help the homeless get their lives together and they should draw hope and inspiration from Adolf Hitler. I want to give you a little history on homelessness. 1910, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with and then went on to lead a life that's got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life. <laughs> Yes, the homeless. Yes, that is the problem with the homeless. They don't use their time on the street wisely. Uh, Senator Nicely, once again, remind me again, what is it that Hitler did when he was living on the streets? So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with his and then went on to lead a life that's got him in the history books. So. Yes, got them into the history books. They need to practice. If you're homeless, you're living on the streets, but you need to practice your oratory and body language and learn how to connect with people. That's the message from Senator Nicely. See, Hitler, there's so much the homeless can learn from Adolf Hitler. I mean, the Republicans have certainly learned from Adolf Hitler, haven't they? Well, one of the leading voices of reason for the GOP is Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager has a nationally syndicated radio show, his own online university, and a bachelor's degree in history from Brooklyn University. And with that one degree, a bachelor's from Brooklyn University, he has turned himself into one of the rights leading Jewish intellectuals. He's not a rabbi, not a professor. Dennis Prager is just an Orthodox Jew who hates black people. And that's all you need to be a right wing Jewish intellectual here in America. All you have to do is hate black people. That's it. It's so much easier to be a leading Jewish intellectual on the right. Wow. You just have to be a bigot. It takes that rare Jew like Dennis Prager to find anti-Semitism everywhere. But when it comes to, oh, I don't know, bigotry against black people, nothing to see here, folks. Move on. In fact, the standard bearer of Jewish right-wing intellectualism, Dennis Prager, insists that the left finds racism where there is none. In other words, Dennis Prager believes Jews have it rough, but not the blacks. And that's what passes for Jewish right-wing intellectualism here in America, bigotry and stupidity. 
Jewish right-wing intellectualism is mostly categorized by stupidity and, of course, hypocrisy. For example, Dennis Prager opposes same-sex marriage. He says marriage is sacred and that legalizing same-sex marriage will eventually lead to bigamy and people marrying their sisters. And you know what that means when somebody says something like that? It means Dennis Prager has been married three times. Dennis Prager has been married three times. He says the CDC has overreacted to COVID. He said the left wants us to believe that heterosexuals can get AIDS. He says homosexuals were never ostracized and or persecuted during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Dennis Prager opposed Obamacare. He complained about the N-word being, quote unquote, unacceptable. He said the CDC was overreacting to COVID, but when he got COVID, he took ivermectin. He's a proponent of ivermectin. He says being anti-Bibi Netanyahu means you're anti-Israel. He says politicians should not use the Koran, only the Bible, during their swearing-in ceremonies. He's a champion of the First Amendment, but conveniently forgets about the Establishment Clause doesn't want anybody using the Koran when they get sworn in to office. And you guessed it, he supports Donald Trump. Like I said, Dennis Prager, not a rabbi, not a professor, a bachelor's degree from Brooklyn University. That's all it takes to become a leading right-wing Jewish intellectual here in America, a bachelor's degree from Brooklyn University and a deep and abiding hatred for minorities and for the LGBTQ community and, of course, black people. He says racism in America doesn't exist. Here he is on his show last week. It's like the race hoax industry. If you see a noose on a college dorm of a black student, the odds are overwhelming that the noose was put there by a black student. If you see the N-word on a dormitory building, the odds are overwhelming that a black student actually did that. We're filled with race hoaxes. Why? To show how racist the country is, we need these hoaxes. Jesse Smollett is the most famous. On behalf of all my grandparents and my parents and all my cousins, Dennis Prager, you are an embarrassment to the Jews. You're what we call a Shonda. Recuse yourself, Dennis Prager, the race hoax industry. How dare you, Dennis Prager? How dare you? He says, if you see a noose on a college campus dorm or the N-word spray painted anywhere, it's a black person who's behind it. How dare you, Dennis Prager? How dare you? And he brings up his evidence. No statistics. Jesse Smollett, a troubled member of the LGBTQ community who also happens to be African-American. No statistics from the right-wing Jewish intellectual Dennis Prager. No statistics, just Jesse Smollett. How dare you, Dennis Prager? It's too bad we don't excommunicate. I think we excommunicated, excommunicated Spinoza and that was it. Uh, you know, I looked up Prager's claim. 
It's a lie. Uh, I Google nooses and, you know, the N word being spray painted on college campuses. Could not find any hoaxes. All I find are white men getting arrested for spray painting the N word on the homes of black people or their cars, hanging nooses outside their homes. But right wing Jewish intellectual Dennis Prager says, he says something like this. I mean, this is something out of the Jim Crow South. And, you know, he syndicated on Salem, which is a right wing Christian radio network. They play his hate speech and they have no problem with it. He says uh, there's a race hoax industry. Racism, says the Trump supporter, Dennis Prager, doesn't exist. It's a it's an industry. Well, there's no such thing as a race hoax industry. There is the Dennis Prager University hoax industry. Prager University, a nonprofit, is the world's leading conservative nonprofit university that promotes, among other things, fossil fuel over alternative energy. It denies climate change. It says racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and Islamophobia are all, quote unquote, meaningless buzzwords. PragerU teaches that the government is bad and the free market is the solution to all our ills and that the economy and democracy thrive when government steps out of the way and lets the free market rule. And yet in 2020, PragerU collected more than $700,000 from the Paycheck Protection Act. He was willing to take $700,000 from our evil government. PragerU says there's no such thing as police discriminating against black people. He says there's no pay gap between women and men. Well, like I said, PragerU is a, a, a the initials are PU. Hmm. Uh, PragerU is a nonprofit that spends 40% of its annual $10 million budget on marketing. Hmm. Nonprofit, tax-free, 40% of its annual $10 million budget is spent on marketing. Not on education, marketing. Hmm. Now, I don't know what kind of marketing they're doing for you know, a little under $5 million a year. Maybe they're paying Dennis Prager $5 million a year to promote PragerU on his radio shows. Maybe they're paying him $5 million a year to also do some lectures. Hmm, be interesting to find out. Well, Dennis Prager, as I said, the right-wing intellectual, has no degree other than a bachelor's from Brooklyn University. He's not a rabbi, he's not a professor. He's just a guy who likes to talk on the radio and he will do and say anything to make money. That is what these people are about. For example, T Tucker Carlson. Now, the New York Times has a fascinating three-part series about Tucker Carlson, the, the right-wing nationalist, the bigot. It's all there in the New York Times. He sows division and white supremacy. 
That's according to the New York Times, not me. We all know how dangerous Tucker Carlson is, but why does he do this? Why? I remember years ago, somebody, a friend of mine, told me she would appear on Crossfire with Tucker Carlson. They would go out for a smoke after the show, and Tucker told her he doesn't mean what he says, it's just an act. I remember another friend of mine telling me years ago that Sean Hannity told him the same exact thing. It's just an act. I remember Dennis Miller. Remember him? I remember him telling me as he pivoted towards the ultra far right and tried to bring me along with him. I remember his telling me it's just commerce. Well, it's just commerce. It starts off as just commerce and then they begin to uh, believe what they're saying. Is it Mother Night? I think it's Mother Night. Tucker Carlson, according to the New York Times, before getting his big primetime show on Fox, Tucker Carlson was almost broke. He had been given several shows on CNN, MSNBC, and was now relegated to AAA minor league weekends on Fox, hosting the hardly seen weekend edition of Fox and Friends. He was about to sell his home. He did sell his home. He needed cash. And then miraculously, he was given a shot to go on Fox prime time and he needed money. And like Dennis Prager, like Dennis Miller, like Rush Limbaugh, they will say and do anything for commerce. In the article, the New York Times says Tucker McNear Carlson was born in 1969 to a local television journalist father and a mother who was a third generation San Francisco heiress, a, a debutante. But by the time Tucker Carlson was seven, his parents divorced and Tucker's father gained custody of the two sons. The mother, Tucker's mommy, told the judge that Tucker's father took all her money, leaving the debutante penniless. Tucker's mom was reportedly abusing amphetamines, alcohol, and marijuana. Before Tucker turned 10, according to the New York Times, Tucker Carlson's mother left for France, and Tucker Carlson never saw his mommy again. How many people do you know who grew up that way, and how did they turn out? Tucker Carlson, according to the New York Times, has rarely opened up about his mommy. The New York Times says Tucker told Adam Carolla on a 2019 podcast that his mommy forced drugs on him. This was when he was what, eight, seven? According to the New York Times, Tucker Carlson says mommy forced drugs on him when he was eight or seven. According to the New York Times, Tucker Carlson told Adam Carolla back in 2019, quote, when you realize your own mother doesn't like you, when she says that, it's like, oh, gosh. Mm. Later in that podcast, Tucker said he, quote, felt all kinds of rage about it. You think? You think finding out? that your mommy doesn't love you and she gave you drugs when you were eight or seven or nine, you think you might have some rage issues, some unresolved Oedipal issues, you think? Tucker Carlson admits to drinking heavily in his 30s and growing up, he grew up 
knowing that his mother didn't love him. He says that gave him thick skin and provided him with a worldview to only care about people who care about him. Hmm. When Tucker Carlson's mommy died, Tucker found himself in a protracted legal battle for her inheritance. A codicil to his mother's will was eventually found, and it said, I leave my sons Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson and Buckley Swanson Peck Carlson $1 each. Wow. His mother, Tucker Carlson's mother, hated him. So we know Tucker Carlson is dangerous. Why? Well, you cannot separate the fact that Tucker Carlson's mother hated him openly. You can't separate that from what he tries to pass off as politics. Having a crappy relationship with one of your parents can turn you into a fascist. Hitler's father hated him. And Tucker Carlson's mommy hated Tucker Carlson. Hey, Tucker, she was the first of many. Do you realize how dead inside Tucker Carlson must be? How fearless he must be to stare into the existential abyss of knowing categorically that his mommy hated him? Tucker Carlson had no doubt that his mother hated him. And that's why he didn't see her after he turned eight. And so he thinks he wants one thing, money. But most importantly, he wants the love he never got from his mommy. And the only way he can get that love is by spreading hate and division. It's pretty sick stuff. It's pretty sick. And it's acted out on the stage on Fox News. Tucker Carlson, pretty sick guy, as is Dennis Prager. Um, Vladimir Putin, very sick guy. Dennis Prager, very sick. Tucker Carlson, and they're all, all three of them, not particularly bright. But it is their hatred for humanity that propels them to the top. Dennis Prager, Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin will say anything, do anything to keep what they have and get more of it. Facts mean nothing. Facts mean nothing to Tucker Carlson. He openly admits that he lies on his show. Dennis Prager lies about nooses being found on college campuses. And of course, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a liar. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov continues to insist Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine to denazify the country. And that is a lie spread by Vladimir Putin. Ukraine is not run by Nazis. Ukraine's far right wing Svoboda party only scored 3% of the vote in Ukraine's last election. The leading rabbi in Kiev says there is little to no anti-Semitism in Ukraine, but the Russian leadership continues to insist Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. Projection? I think so. Projection. Actually, it's Russia 
that's overrun by Nazis. It's Vladimir Putin who's overrun by Nazis. Vladimir Putin has his own personal militia, the Wagner Group, named after Adolf Hitler's favorite composer, the notoriously anti-Semitic 19th century composer, Richard Wagner. The Wagner Group's leader, Dmitry Utkin, is covered in Nazi tattoos, including a swastika, a Nazi eagle, and an SS lightning bolt. The Wagner Group is Vladimir Putin's private army of mercenaries that have fought for him in Syria, Ukraine, and parts of Africa. And after a battle, before they leave, they are known to leave behind Nazi symbols, paraphernalia, and neo-Nazi white supremacist propaganda. But we continue to hear a lot from Vladimir Putin and his sympathizers that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. It is not. Both the president and prime minister of Ukraine are Jewish. The chief rabbi of Kiev said there is no problem with Nazis in Ukraine. One of the leading rabbis of Odessa, which once boasted the world's third largest Jewish community, just said that Jews in Ukraine are in fact under attack, but that attack is coming from Russia's army. The Ukrainian government has been very protective of the Jews since Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union. A few years ago, after a couple of synagogues and Jewish cemeteries were spray painted with swastikas, after 300 neo-Nazis marched through Kiev to celebrate the 78th anniversary of a Gestapo division set up during the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, after all that, Ukraine passed a law called on preventing and countering anti-Semitism in Ukraine. This is a law on the books. The law stipulates that any public official who engages in anti-Semitic acts would be banned from office for three years and could face five years in prison. Yes, there's the infamous Azov Battalion, a right-wing militia with Nazi sympathies, and they've been merged into Ukraine's regular army. While this battalion uses Nazi symbolism, it is not responsible for any organized attacks on Jewish cemeteries or synagogues. Instead, the Azov Battalion focuses much of its hatred on non-Ukrainians, as well as women and the LGBTQ community, who are all uh, enemies of Nazis. There are roughly 100,000 Jews living in Ukraine, and it's pretty much accepted in Israel that Jews in Ukraine are no less safe than Jews living in America. Last week, the American Jewish Committee issued its annual State of Anti-Semitism in America report. The annual State of Anti-Semitism in America report. One out of every four American Jews say they have been targeted by anti-Semitism in the past year, with 40% of American Jews saying they have taken steps to conceal their Jewish identity here in America. 82% of American Jews say anti-Semitism has increased 
over the past five years here in America. Now, Jews are hated everywhere. And as the head of ra the head rabbi in Kiev recently said, it's no worse here in Ukraine than it is anywhere else. But that's not good enough for people who must believe, who must insist that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. During his interview with Italian journalists over the weekend, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said it didn't matter that both the Ukrainian president and Ukrainian prime minister are both Jewish. He said Hitler had a little Jewish blood in him. Not true. Not true. He then added, quote, for a long time now, we've been hearing the wise Jewish people say that the biggest anti-Semites are the Jews themselves. He said, for a long time now, we've been hearing the wise Jewish people say that the biggest anti-Semites are the Jews themselves. This is the sickness of anti-Semitism. It can, it can be anything you want it to be. Jews can be the smartest people in the world who control the economy with space lasers, or they can be the dumbest people in the world, parasites, rats, who corrupt humanity's gene pool. Jews can be the victims of anti-Semitism, or in the Russian Foreign Sec Secretary's case, Jews are the biggest promoters of anti-Semitism. Jews can be victims of Nazis, or according to Russia, they can be Nazis. That's the great thing about anti-Semitism. It can be anything you want it to be. And now Putin and his supporters are saying Ukraine is overrun by Jew-hating Jews. Now, we all know about the self-hating Jew, and that too is part of the sickness of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semites will often conflate Jews arguing with one another. They will often call that self-hatred. They're, they're, they're saying that when Jews fight with one another, Jews are engaging in their own version of anti-Semitism. Let me be clear about right-wing Jewish intellectual lowlife, Dennis Prager. When I attack Dennis Prager, I am attacking Dennis Prager. I, I don't know if I hate Dennis Prager, I loathe him, but I don't hate Jews because I hate Dennis Prager. One of the reasons I actually despise Dennis Prager is because he's a professional Jew and he's a lowlife who plays to roughly 20% of America's Jewish population that isn't particularly bright. They're the ones who voted for Trump because they're ignorant and racist. That doesn't mean I'm a self-hating Jew. That doesn't mean I hate Jews. I don't even hate the Jews who listen to Dennis Prager. I think he's dangerous. I think he's exploiting stupid Jews. But that doesn't mean I'm a self-loathing Jew. All it means is I expect better from these Jews. I expect Jews not to be bigoted. 
I expect Jews to get their rabbinical talking points from a rabbi, not an opportunistic blowhard with a bachelor's degree from Brooklyn University like Dennis Prager. By the way, nothing wrong with Brooklyn University, nothing wrong with Brooklyn, but they should disown Dennis Prager. He's not an intellectual. He's not a rabbi. He doesn't have a Ph.D., let alone even a master's. And yet he's making millions spreading stupidity and bigotry through his radio show and university. Also, he's morbidly obese and people who make their living talking personal responsibility and not giving into temptation. They shouldn't be morbidly obese, fat pigs like Dennis Prager. I'm not fat shaming. I'm saying Dennis Prager is morbidly obese because he's a pig. He's a glutton because there's an emptiness inside of him that no amount of Mandelbrot and whitefish will ever satisfy. When you're married three times and you're a fat pig, Dennis Prager, don't lecture us about morality and personal responsibility. Obviously, Dennis Prager doesn't care what goes in or out of his mouth. You want to be fat? Don't be a Republican, Dennis Prager. This is not Jew on Jew violence. This is not anti-Semitism. This is me saying Dennis Prager is a piece of shit. Don't mistake that for Jews being the biggest proponents of anti-Semitism as the Russian foreign minister uh, says. I expect more from my fellow Jews. And the only more I get from Dennis Prager is bullshit and fat. That's not anti-Semitism. Well, more about this later. Russian soldiers are getting killed at staggering numbers. Roughly two thirds of Russia's entire army is now fighting inside Ukraine. At least a quarter of those Russian soldiers inside Ukraine have now been killed, injured or captured. This, according to Britain's military defense intelligence agency, which adds it could take a decade for Vladimir Putin to replenish his army. We are being told 15,000 Russian soldiers are dead with nearly 30,000 wounded. Meanwhile, the United Nations says 5.5 million Ukrainians have fled their country with roughly 3 million now living in Poland. This is all good news for Joe Biden, who has finally got it, gotten that much needed bump in the polls. Since the invasion of Ukraine, oh, polls, not the Polish people, the, the, the polls, you know. Since the invasion of Ukraine, the president's approval rating has jumped five points. That, according to a new Washington Post, ABC News poll, 42% of Americans now approve of the job Joe Biden is doing. However, Joe remains in negative territory with most Americans disapproving of the job he's doing. He remains one of the most unpopular presidents in modern history. The new poll says most Americans support sending weapons to Ukraine, but 81% of Americans fear war could expand to neighboring countries. 72% of Americans say they oppose sending troops into Ukraine. But NATO's Article 5 dictates that if Russia attacks 
a NATO member state, America has no choice but to commit ground forces and go to war with Russia. The poll did not ask how Americans feel about honoring our NATO commitment to Article 5. I wonder how many Americans actually know about Article 5. An overwhelming majority of Americans also told the poll that they fear fighting could lead to the use of nuclear weapons. Well, for the seventh year in a row, global spending on weapons of war continues to rise. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute reports that global spending on military equipment is now $2,113,000,000,000 a year. As I keep reminding you, in order to be a member of NATO, in order to be considered a member in good standing, member countries must spend at least 2% of their gross domestic product on weapons. Defense contractors get a 2% skim off the top of any NATO member's economy. Now, weapons manufacturers are publicly traded companies. They need growth. And this market, America, we're tapped out. We simply can't buy more weapons. I mean, we will, but weapons manufacturers are desperately in need of new opportunities. So as NATO expands, our defense contractors find new markets. Finland and Sweden have announced they will apply for NATO membership in 20 days. That means American weapons manufacturers will soon be getting a 2% skim off the top of both Finland's and Sweden's economies, 2% of their GDP. Again, in order to be accepted into NATO and remain a member in good standing, you must spend at the very least 2% of your GDP on weapons. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a delegation of Democratic congressmen, they were men, made a surprise visit to Kiev on Saturday. Pelosi met with Ukrainian President Zelensky, who awarded her Ukraine's Order of Princess Olga, the highest honor Ukraine can give to a woman. Pelosi promised America will continue to supply Ukraine with weapons until Russia is defeated. When is that, Nancy? When is Russia going to be defeated? Do you have any idea? Any plans? Democratic Congressman Jason Crow, a combat veteran and member of the House Intelligence Committee, said he accompanied Pelosi with three areas of focus, weapons, weapons, and weapons. Weapons. We're giving a lot of weapons to Ukraine, as is NATO. NATO countries are showering Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of weapons. These include heat-seeking anti-tank missiles, which are referred to as fire and forget guidance rockets. Fire and forget guidance rockets. They're sh you, you can fire them from your shoulder. They home in on their target with no assistance needed from the soldier who fired it. Rocket launched. Fire and forget. Uh, guidance rockets. Well, these weapons could bring down a commercial airline if they fell into the wrong hands. Hmm. These easy to use guidance missiles have devastated Russian tanks, along with the soldiers sitting inside. 
They've also been used to bring down Russian fighter jets. NATO is also providing American-designed kamikaze drones armed with explosives. These unmanned drones fly directly into Russian convoys and blow up and also deliver some Amazon packages. Imagine if these drones fell into the wrong hands. America is supplying Ukraine with howitzers along with 140,000 shells for those howitzers. And all that is just a fraction of all the weapons being provided for Ukraine. What happens should these weapons fall into the wrong hands? Well, certainly we don't let them fall into the wrong hands. These are heavily regulated munitions. Hmm, not so, not so. I mean, they're supposed to be regulated, but according to a congressionally mandated Defense Department report that was leaked last week, after America pulled out of Afghanistan last August, it left behind $7 billion worth of military equipment. 40,000 military vehicles were seized by the Taliban, including 12,000 Humvees. 1.5 million pieces of assorted ammunition were left behind, along with 42,000 pieces of specialized equipment. All of our radar and communication devices were left behind, along with 10,000 surface-to-air missiles. Mm -hmm. Imagine if they fell into the wrong hands. Oh, wait, they did. The Taliban now has all these weapons, $7 billion worth, all in the wrong hands. Hmm. Tariq Magarisi from the European Council on Foreign Relations wrote an ominous piece in foreign policy last week entitled, Don't Turn Ukraine into the Next Syria or Libya. Megarisi writes that NATO countries are flooding Ukraine with drones, howitzers, and anti-aircraft missiles, not to mention tanks and fighter aircraft. Megarisi warns that this is eerily reminiscent of back when NATO supplied weapons to fighters in Libya and Syria to help them overthrow Libya's Muammar Gaddafi and Syria's Bashar al-Assad. Both uprisings had disastrous consequences that resulted in millions of refugees and a permanent state of civil war. He points out that many of these weapons are supposed to be heavily regulated so that they don't fall into the wrong hands, but they did fall into the wrong hands in both Syria and Libya because these weapons get traded and sold and we have no idea where they end up. Where do they go? Where do they go? The United Nations warned in 2019 that Ukraine and neighboring Moldova serve as middlemen funneling black market weapons to both sides of Libya's civil war. Sounds like something America would do. This is in direct violation of UN's arms embargo in the region. He warns that Eastern Europe has always served as a hub for international black market arms dealers. This is back to that article I read in Foreign Policy. Megarisi warns that 
Eastern Europe has always, at least for the past 30 years, served as a hub for international black market arms dealers. Megabisi warns that all these weapons being shipped to Ukraine could easily find their way into the hands of international terrorists with unimaginable consequences. We're not only talking about weapons. Megadisi warns of the 20,000 foreign fighters who went to Ukraine to fight the Russians. Many of these fighters are right-wing nationalists. Megadisi writes, quote, war is an experience that pollutes the sanity and morality of those who experience it, unquote. War is an experience that pollutes the sanity and morality of those who experience it. He worries how many of these soldiers, these mercenaries, will return, radicalize as they gain leadership roles inside, inside right-wing nationalist militia all over the world, like here in America. Where is the oversight? Where is the oversight? Again, I support Ukraine. I support Zelensky. The world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. I don't think war should be our first option. I support diplomacy, peace talks, and ceasefires. And I hear none of that coming from the Biden administration or from Nancy Pelosi returning from her meeting with Zelensky. All I hear is, here are more weapons, more weapons. Let's defeat Vladimir Putin. Let's defeat Vladimir Putin, although we're not going to commit troops, although we're, we're going to defeat them without troops. Interesting. This year, so far, America will spend $40 billion on weapons just for Ukraine. Additional, that's off. That's in addition to the $1 trillion we spend on our military, we think, because it can't be audited. So we're spending $40 billion on weapons for Ukraine so far. At this rate, we are spending slightly more on Ukraine than what we spent each year on weapons during our 20-year war on Afghanistan. We're spending more on Ukraine than we did on the war in Afghanistan when it comes to weapons. And we had actual soldiers fighting in Afghanistan. It's interesting, isn't it? Kind of interesting. We pulled out of Afghanistan in August. Biden, even though the war was now over, then gave the Pentagon a raise, a 6% boost in spending for fiscal year 2022 even though we were supposed to have a peace dividend. I mean, we pulled out of Afghanistan, but we, we gave the Pentagon a raise. And now, on top of that 6% raise, America is going to spend an additional $40 billion so far this year. And that's the same exact amount that we used to spend on Afghanistan. Isn't that interesting? Instead of $40 billion worth of weapons, being sent to Afghanistan, $40 billion worth of weapons are being sent to Ukraine. Isn't that interesting? As things get worse for Afghanistan and Ukraine, things just keep getting better and better 
for our defense contractors. When it comes to spending on infrastructure here in America or a social safety net, our leaders insist you can't solve problems by throwing money at them. There must be accountability. But when it comes to destroying infrastructure, when it comes to destroying the social safety net overseas and killing people, when it comes to weapons to do all that, fire away. No accountability. We have absolutely no idea who will use and who will be killed by all those weapons we left behind in Afghanistan. And yes, I want the Ukrainians to win. I'm rooting for Ukraine. But is there any accountability for all the weapons we're handing over to Zelensky? Remember Osama bin Laden? I used to root for the Mujahideen. I was rooting for Osama bin Laden. They were fighting the Russians, the Soviets in Afghanistan. Uh, Charlie Wilson's war, right? We gave Osama bin Laden a lot of weapons to defeat the Russians in Afghanistan. I rooted for Osama bin Laden back then. How did that turn out? I, you know, I, I can't remember. How did that turn out? Hmm. I'm rooting for Ukraine, but the best way to help Ukraine is to broker a ceasefire and end the bloodshed. Weapons have unintentional consequences. They could be used on American military overseas or on American cities right here in America, where most American cities are in America. I support Ukraine. I am rooting for Zelensky. I am rooting for the people of Ukraine. I want the bloodshed to stop. I support Ukraine. But it it's worth noting when we talk about giving them $40 billion worth of weapons just from America alone, right? As recently as 2008, according to WikiLeaks, according to Julian Assange, American diplomats refer to Ukraine as a kleptocracy. Transparency International is a global movement working in over 100 countries to end the, quote, injustice of corruption. Each year, Transparency International grades 180 countries on their level of corruption. Zero meaning incredibly corrupt, 100 meaning incredibly clean. Last year, Ukraine scored a 32. Not good. Out of 180 countries on this planet, only 58 countries are more corrupt than Ukraine. Among the countries more corrupt than Ukraine, Libya, Syria, and Iraq, who have all ended up with our weapons. Also more corrupt than Ukraine, Russia. What does this mean? It means our weapons that we're sending to Ukraine have a pretty good chance of ending up someplace where they don't belong. Probably in several of the hot spots America chooses to ignore. Vladimir Putin is calling on Syrian mercenaries to come fight for him in Ukraine. 
He's offering them money. Now, these Syrian mercenaries will eventually return home, maybe with NATO weapons, maybe with American weapons. They'll bring those weapons to Syria, where that civil war has now entered its 11th year, killing more than 350,000 people, not to mention the millions and millions of refugees. Those Syrian mercenaries returning to Syria could end up using American weapons on Israel. Who knows? But most importantly, who cares? Who cares? Or maybe those weapons that we're giving the Ukrainians will end up in Yemen, where half that nation can't find enough food, where millions are facing famine, millions in Yemen. 10,000 children in Yemen have been killed or maimed, often by American weapons used by our friends, the Saudi Arabians. And those are the weapons we sold them and kind of knew they were going to use on Yemen. Or maybe some of those weapons we're sending to Ukraine will end up in Afghanistan, where millions of citizens now, too, face famine. There's a famine in Afghanistan. Who cares? Who cares? Joe Biden, when he unfroze the Central Bank of Afghanistan's $7 billion in assets that were held by America, he decided to turn over half of that $3.5 billion to Afghanistan and the other half, $3.5 billion, to victims of 9-11, even though Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. The Taliban had nothing to do with 9-11. The attacks were organized and funded by Saudi Arabians who were living sometimes in Tora Bora, sometimes in Afghanistan, sometimes in Saudi Arabia, sometimes in Pakistan. Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan. The attacks were entirely funded. 9-11 was entirely funded by Saudi Arabia. And yet each year we sell them about $1.5 billion worth of our weapons. Where will our weapons that were given Ukraine end up? Maybe these NATO weapons will end up in Ethiopia, where government troops are battling the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Meanwhile, 300,000 Ethiopians are now facing famine, having resorted to eating leaves off trees. Maybe our weapons will end up in Mali or Burkina Faso, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Haiti, Iraq, Niger, Nigeria, Sudan, Somalia, Palestine, and Israel. Because there are so many warring factions out there who need American, French, and British-made weapons. These armed shipments to Ukraine will indeed undergo their own diaspora. And where will they end up? Perhaps back here in the hands of a trigger-happy American domestic terrorist radicalized by war, Tucker Carlson or Dennis Prager. Weapons have a way of always ending up in the wrong hands. 
In Lafayette, Louisiana on Sunday, 12 people were injured in a mass shooting. Also on Sunday in Springfield, Ohio, one dead, four wounded in a mass shooting. Also on Sunday in Clinton, South Carolina, one dead, three wounded in another mass shooting. And what is the response to these three mass shootings in one day? It was Sunday. That's all. This happens every day. A gaping yawn is our response because it's no longer a story. On a really bad day when nothing else is going on, they'll cover one of these mass shootings and we'll be told these shootings happen because of people on the left who want to defund the police. Yes, in America, the answer to mass shootings is more weapons for the police. America is awash in weapons, and now we're making sure the world is awash in our weapons, too. The world doesn't need American weapons. The world needs food. It needs medicine. It needs vaccines. As Professor Jonathan Bick wisely pointed out on Thursday's show, the amount of money America spends on weapons for Ukraine is enough to vaccinate the entire world against COVID. According to Lawrence Boone, the chief economist for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it would cost $50 billion to vaccinate the entire world against COVID. What do you think makes America safer? Weapons or vaccines? One million Americans will have died from COVID by the end of this year. In the years to come, thanks to COVID, America will continue to get sick. We will continue to open and then shut our economy as fresh new waves of COVID blanket our nation. Why is that? Because COVID will continue to spread and mutate so long as there are no vaccines for third world countries. Vladimir Putin is not spreading to America. COVID is. COVID will have killed one million by the end of this year. I am more afraid of COVID than I am of Putin. You know what's good for American business? Medicine not bombs. When you give medicine and food to the world for free, you colonize the minds of the entire world. And then they start trusting and supporting America again. People don't want to attack the country that provides them with food and medicine. People want to support the country that supports the world. More countries will buy American products when we're bombing these countries with food and medicine instead of bombing them with bombs. Kennedy got that. Eisenhower got that. Roosevelt got that. Johnson got that. Kennedy established the Peace Corps. 
It's why he set up the United States Agency for International Development to give out foreign aid and development assistance. And the Republican, the general who led D-Day, Dwight David Eisenhower, President Eisenhower in 1954, who had his share of war. He was full. He created the United States Food for Peace program. It was Eisenhower, it was Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and the great George McGovern who recognized the absurdity of America's agricultural surplus standing athwart a world overflowing with malnutrition, hunger, and famine. George McGovern called this one of the great paradoxes of our time. How could America have a surplus of food when so many in the rest of the world were starving to death? 45 million people right now in 43 countries are facing famine. Feed them, vaccinate them, but instead America bombs them. And then we wonder why the world hates us. Yes, we do feed the world, but we spend more on bombing the world than feeding the world. Now, look, this country is not the apocalyptic hellscape I sometimes paint it as. I get that. There are a lot of good people in this country. Unfortunately, they're not in charge. Everybody in charge is a piece of shit. But there are good people in America. It's not my job. It is not this show's job to be complacent, to remind Americans of how good things are. It is not the job of this show to remind everybody of how good things are. It is the job of shows like this. And most importantly, it is the job of every elected government official and every citizen to wake up every morning and focus on how bad things are. I ask my doctor to treat the disease, not celebrate the parts of the body that are doing fine. I can handle that. I need my doctors and my leaders to treat the disease. I don't want a president, a governor, or a mayor, or a news media telling me what's right about America. I want them to isolate the problems and then try to fix them. And we used to do that here in America. This country used to isolate problems and then fix them. And then the brutally racist Ronald Reagan became president telling us everything is fine while making everything worse. He ignored the problems and he made this country worse. Because of Reagan, because of the Republicans, America can't fix anything because all problems in America stem from Reagan era creed, climate change, poverty, war, homelessness, hunger, crumbling infrastructure and our lousy schools, greed. This country has problems and all of those problems are caused by one thing, greed.
And because of Reagan, because of this, because this country is now the greed is good country, no problem can ever be fixed because it means someone will have to pay more taxes or the industry that's causing the problem will end up losing money. You name the problem here in America, I'll tell you the type of greed sustaining it. Unaffordable housing, greed, the greed of homeowners, the greed of lenders. 31 million Americans have zero health insurance, the greed of doctor, doctors, the greed of our for-profit health care. In early 2020, the federal government set up a program to provide free testing and treatment for all uninsured Americans so they would seek treatment and not spread COVID. Two years later, that money has now dried up. Greed. Joe Biden has asked for about $10 billion in emergency COVID aid, but Congress has no intention of approving it. Greed. Weapons for Ukraine that feathers the nest of David Rubenstein, that's fine. But free COVID testing, free COVID treatment, can't afford it. As a result, citing insufficient funds, our federal government announced late last month that it would no longer reimburse doctors who treat uninsured COVID patients. Greed. Many healthcare providers here in America are now informing the uninsured they will no longer be tested for free. They will have to pay for it. Greed. One of the largest testing laboratories in America, Quest Diagnostics, record profits is now charging $125 to test the uninsured. Greed. Last month, the American Hospital Association, a lobbying group representing nearly 5,000 hospitals, called on Congress to increase COVID funding for the uninsured. Isn't that nice? Even though hospitals are making record profits, they want the government to foot the bill to treat the uninsured. Greed. Chip Kahn, CEO and president of the Federation of American Hospitals, which lobbies for for-profit hospitals, joined in the call for Congress to approve emergency COVID funding because he doesn't think for-profit hospitals should have to pay to treat COVID among the uninsured greed. And according to the New York Times, while the Federation of American Hospitals lobbies Congress for more COVID relief, it is one of the leading lobbyists against Medicare for all. Greed. The oil companies post record profits last month. And instead of spending the money on lowering prices for us at the pumps, they are passing those profits along to their shareholders. Greed. They continue to deny climate change. More greed. They spend more on denying climate change than fixing it. Greed, greed, and more greed. This planet has, if we're lucky, 10 years left to fix it because of greed. So why is there so much anti-Semitism? Because the richest 1% 
has always needed somebody to blame their greed on. When you destroy the billionaire class, you will destroy all bigotry because the billionaire class needs scapegoats. What Dennis Prager, the Jewish right-wing intellectual shill for the billionaire class, what this fool doesn't understand while he's working for the billionaires, scapegoating the blacks, the immigrants, and the LGBTQ community, what he doesn't understand is that behind his back, they are also scapegoating the Jews. Right now in America, the problem isn't Nazis. The problem is the greedy need what they've always needed, scapegoats. And scapegoats are the only reason for war and genocide. We'll be right back with Grace Jackson.
wish for one day I could be Professor Mike Steinel. That's Turtle. That's from Professor Mike Steinel. It doesn't stop with this man. That's Turtle. And I think it's going to be used in his audio version of Saving Charlie Parker, which we will discuss in upcoming episodes. Let us go to Great Britain, where Grace Jackson is standing by. She is co-host of the Literary Hangover podcast. I, I'm going to call her an expert on history and fiction and China, as far as this show goes. I know that embarrasses her, but as far as I'm concerned, she's an expert. And we're going to talk about America's policy of strategic ambiguity and revisit America's relationship with Taiwan and the One China policy. Welcome back, Grace Jackson. Thank you. How are you doing, David? Well, I, do you mind if I ask you a, a question about your parliament? Oh, go ahead. I'll try to answer. What is tractor porn? Oh. How come I, <laughs> I was oh. just looking at like... Look, I'm so embarrassed at this point. I, I don't know if we can get any further into the gutter in this country, but um, yeah, apparently there is a there is a smooth pipeline from looking at tractors on your phone on Google, I assume, to um, not looking at tractors. And we have a, a front bench conservative politician who has confessed to viewing pornography not once but twice while doing his job as an MP, um, sat quite close to some female colleagues. And I, d I don't even want to, uh, I, I can barely go there myself. Right. But apparently th there is a fetish of British schoolboys who look at farm equipment. Oh, um... <laughs> Oh, that's not why you came on the show. Let us talk about strategic ambiguity. This is much more titillating. Strategic ambiguity. Oh is America, so when I know that when Reagan was president, he deployed the madman theory, like the guy's crazy. You don't know what he's going to do. Biden is deploying strategic ambiguity. What the hell does that mean? Well, Biden himself isn't deploying. I don't think he's deploying much, but strategic ambiguity is a, a kind of pillar of US policy towards Taiwan. And it's something that arose out of the Cold War. Um, but I was thinking about strategic ambiguity this week because of the kind of increasingly um, unambiguous stance that the US is taking vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine. Basically, it seems like um, we're getting closer and closer to a straight up admission that America's aims are to weaken Russia as opposed to kind of bring the war to an end or to kind of help to help to move towards peace. And there seems to be a kind of um, less and less ambiguity in the position. But Strategic ambiguity is really important when it comes to U.S.-Taiwan relations and U.S.-China relations because it's the phrase that we use to define 
the way the U.S. has interacted with Taiwan ever since 1979, when it's formally recognized the PRC, the People's Republic of China, as China as such. Uh, prior to that, the U.S. had recognized the Republic of China on Taiwan, which is the, the kind of name that, that was given to the Republic of China on Taiwan. Um, so in 1979, after uh, Nixon and Kissinger had kind of been working on it for many years, since 1971, um, normalization with the PRC uh, happened. And <clears throat> the US had to kind of come up with a way of maintaining some kind of connection with Taiwan and also having some ambiguity around whether it would come to Taiwan's defense in the event that the PRC uh, attacked Taiwan or tried to kind of unilaterally unify with Taiwan using military means. Um, and so this is a very important phrase. There's a lot of talk in the media at the moment that the US government is kind of chipping away at strategic ambiguity with Taiwan because there have been more high level uh, kind of connections being made between the US government and Taiwan. There was a sort of uh, group of congressmen and senators who visited Taiwan last month, including, I think, Lindsey Graham. Um, so there is more of that happening. Uh, and yet there is still a huge question mark over how much the US would intervene. Would it intervene at all? Would it be more of what we're seeing with Ukraine, which is that the US would provide heavy weaponry. It, it already sells a lot of it already sells a lot of arms to Taiwan. Um, and the Taiwan Relations Act, which was passed in 1979, allows for that. It allows for the US to uh, provide Taiwan with weapons of a defensive character um, in order to kind of maintain peace, to maintain the status quo across the strait. Um, and something I wanted to mention, because in 1979, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Obviously, this was a result of, of the US needing to do something about the fact that it was kind of not going to recognize Taiwan anymore. Taiwan lost its seat at the UN. But something that people don't often talk about in relation to this and something that I have not even been thinking about that much until recently, is that in 1979, China invaded Vietnam. Now, this is important because China's image on the world stage or the image that it has projected quite successfully on the world stage is one of a uniquely peaceful country that takes a principled stance on intervention. It doesn't intervene in other countries' domestic affairs. It certainly doesn't go gallivanting around the world like America. And this is something that's very important to the way China projects its power um, and its diplomatic power, especially. And, and yet, yes, China has uh, waged an aggressive war in the past 50 years. How did, um, why did they invade Vietnam and how did it go for them? It was horrible for both sides. It was sort of like not really one. China told China kind of said that okay, we've we've done what we came to do. After a few months, they got to they said the gate of Hanoi is open. We're going to go back, but it was it was very bloody. Um, 
huge losses on both sides. Now, the reason that it happened in the first place, and this is fascinating. Uh, so at that point, Deng Xiaoping was the premier. Mao had been dead for three years. Mao died in 1976. Deng Xiaoping was sort of consolidating his power and launching his reform and opening up policies. So how he was reforming the Chinese economy, opening up to the West, um, allowing some marketization of the Chinese economy. And when Deng Xiaoping visited the US in 1979, he, he met with Jimmy Carter and he said that of Vietnam, he said, the child is getting naughty. It's time he got spanked. <laughs> Hmm. He said, if you don't teach them some necessary lessons, it just won't do. Now, there's a whole background behind this, and it has to do with the Sino-Soviet split, which happened around 1916, kind of persisted. Um, but China's stated reason for attacking Vietnam was to get uh, Vietnam to leave Cambodia, to relieve pressure on the Khmer Rouge because China was allied with the Khmer Rouge at that point. And Vietnam was backed by the Soviet Union. And right. America was Rouge making... Pol Pot right. was the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer yes. Rouge being Pol Pot. Pol Pot, exactly. Um, and yeah, Vietnam was backed by the Soviet Union. And at that point, of course, as I've just said, America was uh, making beginning to make overtures um, or had made overtures to the US. And so the US and, and China were kind of getting closer. Um, and there was a lot of tension along China's northern border with the Soviet Union at this point. The Soviet Union had amassed troops on China's northern border. So it was threatening its security. Um, and China, and I thought this was cute, China also cited the mistreatment of Vietnam's eth ethnic Chinese minority as part of its justification for invasion, which, of course, we've heard that, before, you know, that's something that feels very 2022. Um, and I'm not I'm not going to kind of litigate whether that was a real justification or not. But I just thought it was interesting how there were these there were several reasons given mostly to do with this this alliance with the Khmer Rouge and the background of, of the split with the Soviets. Um, but it certainly does. It adds some color, I guess, to this uh, picture that China projects of itself as uniquely peaceful. Now, I'm not saying that um, I think China has done a lot less damage on the world stage than, say, the United States or the United Kingdom. But just to say that it's not uh, strictly true that China has never intervened uh, beyond its borders. And in fact, it had me thinking that you know, we're so obsessed right now, and understandably so, with the comparison between Taiwan and Ukraine, you know, as a victim of a larger kind of power uh, and sort of revanchist claims to ter territory. But I think in a way, the Sino-Vietnamese conflict of 1979 is, it, it kind of provides more food for thought, I think, as an analogy to what Russia is doing in Ukraine at the moment. Um, the difference being it was it was short. It, you know, it took a couple of months. It wasn't won decisively. And as Deng Xiaoping said to Jimmy Carter, it was, 
it was basically a slap on the wrist to Vietnam. Um, although that's definitely underplaying it. It's interesting that it's called this, the Chinese side called it the self-defensive counterattack against Vietnam, which is a, again, like these, these terms are so uh, paradoxical, just like this strategic ambiguity, which contains within it so many contradictions. About uh, three weeks ago, you were talking about an article you had read where the writer was saying there doesn't have to be a conflict between America and China, that, that basically war is not a constant in nature and we don't have to go to war with these countries just because China is growing economically. Are most of these wars about strategic interests? And if so, what is America's strategic interest in, in China? Is it oil? Is it nutmeg? Is it tea, opium? Well, probably opium, but what, what is our strategic interest other than our allies, our alliances? You mean the reason why the U.S. is not content to allow China to rise? You mean? Yeah. What What does a What does a a strong and powerful China? What does that bode for America? Well, I think the the sort of foreign policy blob, as it were, and and I I think this is true in both China and the U.S. to an extent. They see foreign relations as a zero-sum game right. that if China is winning that must mean that America is losing <clears throat> and there may be some truth show to business. That. that's how I view show business <laughs> your success is my failure but you know I'm a lunatic <laughs> uh, this is lunacy to think that way right but there's a whole history of ideological competition as well, which is underpinning this relationship and mutual suspicion, mutual admiration on both sides. I've also, I, I read a pretty interesting book a few years ago about the history of US-China relations. Um, it's called The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, I think, by John Pomfret. And he makes the case that China and the US are essentially doppelgangers. They're like, evil twins or something. And they've always had this special connection, but they've also always had this rivalry, um, you know, distrust, suspicion, and, and yet a mutual attraction as well. And it has to do with the nature of being a great power. Um, and China has also thrived in the world that the US made in the post-war period, China has been, China has done very well from the, the global order. Uh, and I think the US probably feels a little bit um, annoyed about that, <laughs> that this country has, has managed to do so well uh, with so little, you know, with so little space given to it by the US. So I think it's complicated. It's not just about resources, though. It's not just about, you know, you've got this and I want it or 
a particular sea route. It's it's a whole history of of rivalry and competition. It's a hard sell to the American people that China or Putin is going to storm into America and colonize us. That's a hard sell. We're seeing how hard it is in in Ukraine for Russia to colonize Ukraine, how hard it was in Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, Korea. It's really hard to physically occupy another country mm -hmm. militarily. So these wars, it, it, it's really hollow to scare us. It does, I don't think it works anymore. You can't say, first it's Moldova, then it's Estonia, and next thing you know, it's Brooklyn. I just don't see Americans buying that with Putin. I think you have to now elevate th this battle and explain to the American people why we're fighting. What are we really fighting for? What is it? Why, why is America so afraid of Vladimir Putin that it would... I mean, he invaded Ukraine. I, would you agree that he invaded Ukraine because it was America? The, the, it was NATO and America encroaching on Russian territory? That seems I, mean, I, I agree that he was baited. I don't agree that that means he's not culpable or accountable. I think he yeah, had I, a choice, but he was baited. There's no doubt. And, and he's wreaked havoc, you know, through the Internet. And uh, there's no question that he's a menace. But there are ways to deal with menaces other than weaponry and, and war. So I what is the threat that china and russia pose to america other than russia flexing its muscle in eastern europe and china surpassing us as the world's largest producer of greenhouse gases what do we have to fear from china well i mean the people in washington would say you have to fear an authoritarian axis which is uh, threatening to democracies around the world. I'm not, I'm not saying that I buy that as such, but there's a certain amount of ideological um, common ground, I would say, but they're not the same. I think America just fears a loss of hegemony around the world. It fears a loss of power. Um, this isn't necessarily a traditional kind of territorial issue as such for America. It's not like an, it, it's more to do with, I don't know how to, how to formulate this properly. Um, but I think ultimately to, to kind of create the conditions for peace. And this is why I wanted to bring it back to strategic ambiguity, this concept of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Peace is ambiguous. Like <laughs> it's fragile, it's ambiguous. And it can be it can be disturbed by like a single word in a single treaty. So, for example, in the um, in the Shanghai Communique of 1972, which began the process of normalization between the U.S. and China, um, the U.S. and China agreed that well, this is where the one China policy comes from, and I think it's really interesting 
and says a lot about how fragile and how kind of nuanced all of this stuff is. So in this communique, um, the US said that it acknowledged the Chinese position that there is one China and that Taiwan is part of China, right? This is what the PRC uh, put forward. Now for China, that means that Taiwan is a part of the People's Republic of China. That's its position now, um, that Taiwan is a part of China and should be, should be unified with China. However, the US, that's, that's what is called the One China Principle. And China, the PRC government has a One China Principle. The US has a One China Policy. And the One China Policy is simply that the US says, we acknowledge that you think that. We, we acknowledge that that's your position, basically. And this was put into writing in English, but both sides created their own version, their mm -hmm. own translation. And at the very last minute, after, after it had been agreed, the Chinese side changed the translation in Chinese uh, from a word which means, which kind of has connotations of like understanding. This is a translation of the word acknowledgement, right? They changed the word to one that has a stronger association of acceptance. And so you had this two, these, these sort of, this little change that meant so much and that has allowed China to say, oh, America actually does recognize our position. And actually the English version, which is the binding version for the US policy, it says simply that we acknowledge, we acknowledge that China has this position. And I think it's amazing. It's such an absurd, weird little episode in, in diplomatic history, but the, the amount of weight that that one word bears for world peace is extraordinary. Um, and I just think, yeah, to, to finish on this note, I think ambiguity is very important and it's, it's not ideal. It can lead to disagreements, but it's, it, it's the kind of fabric of the status quo, at least in, in East Asia at the moment. Right. There are people who enjoy war. There are soldiers who miss it, generals who enjoy fighting it. Uh, right? There's a nobility to war. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, I'm, I gather that's the case. <laughs> it's a whole <sighs> industry as well. It's a huge part of the economy. And without it, you know, who knows? We could actually live better lives. Grace Jackson, thank you. Great job. What a privilege I'm it is sorry, to have. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't go too off topic for you there, David. No, are you kidding? Uh, I didn't like uh, your position on tractor porn. I found that to be American. <laughs> I think Henry Wallace, who's rolling over in his grave. Uh, Grace Jackson is co-host of the Literary Hangover podcast with Matt Leck, and she comes to us from Great Britain. And you can follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you Thank next you. time. Yes, next week. More, 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 okay. more. Thank you. More. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. 
friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and go to my website to sign up for the newsletter. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience and meet our guests, go to my website and sign up. We also have a YouTube channel and a chat room that I have now started to uh, slowly enjoy. Well, let's go to Mexico where Jason Miles is standing by. He is the host of the This Is Revolution podcast. And we're going to talk about, I can't believe it's been 30 years since the LA riots. Hello there, Jason. Now you can hear me, right? I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, it's been 30 years since the uh, I remember where I was. I remember where I was, but I was about six hours north. You were where? Six hours north. I was living in San Francisco. I remember. Now, what people need to remember is that there was video of a police riot. Rodney King was just being pulverized by about 10 L.A. cops. It was incontrovertible evidence that Rodney King was beaten to within an inch of his life. It was this was before iPhones. So Mm -hmm. it was our first glimpse into what African-Americans experienced when they were pulled over by cops. If this is what gets captured on a clunky video camera in 1992, imagine what happens most of the time. So we watch that video and you go, okay, these cops, they're going to be put away for life. I wasn't even concerned about it. They held the trial in Simi Valley where the Ronald Reagan library ended up being. So the officers could get a fair shake. So they said, and I'm in my office in San Francisco and comedian Larry Brown calls me and he says, they've acquitted the police officers. And I, I started laughing. I thought it was a joke. I swear to you, I thought it was a joke. Well, let's go. Let's go back a little bit. Um, and if we want to start it in '91 at the Rodney King beating, um, if you if you think about why that trial was moved, and you go back into the wayback machine and think about famous trials that have happened in Los Angeles County, we can start in '69 with uh, uh, Manson, Charles Charles Manson. And then uh, again, Richard Ramirez uh, in 86 or so, the night his trial is also, the Night Stalker is also held in, in Los Angeles County. Now, whenever you have a trial like that, where you think the jury pool is going to be contaminated because it's such big news, you, you try to move the trial over. So Los Angeles County has had big trials in the county and no one had a problem, but for whatever reason, they wanted to move these officers. Um, Originally, the prosecution wanted the trial to be moved to Alameda County because the racial makeup was similar to L.A. um, And there was a courthouse sitting there and everyone would have had to have lived in Alameda County. Ventura County had a brand new courthouse in a place called Simi Valley. Um, And mildly unbeknownst to the prosecution, it was a bit of a retirement community 
for law enforcement and military. So it had a very, it's part of the red part of California, David, that a lot of people don't think about when they think of California, they think of LA and maybe the Bay area and don't understand that the rest of Cal, as you know, as someone has probably spent enough time in SoCal, Orange County is very red. Um, Simi Valley is one of those red places. So the jury pool is very different. And when I was, I, I did a show Saturday talking about the 30 years. And as I was writing up the thing that I actually sent you or sent to Hannah, I hope she sent you. Um, I watched it. One thing that came to mind is there's two things that are very important when we think about Rodney King and the riots is that um, Rodney King's trial and OJ Simpson's trial are two kind of sides of the same justice coin. So the 24 hour news cycle goes crazy during the Rodney King riots, which we don't really call the Rodney King riots. And mainly because Rodney King spoke. And if you remember as a man in comedy, he was the butt of every joke after he spoke. And the only reason, yeah, everybody thought that was funny. And I actually get a little emotional whenever I, 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 when I was cutting that clip because there's pain and there's honesty in those words. And people have to understand that was the first day of his civil trial. And he was dragged through the mud so hard in the criminal trial. Um, you know, he never did test positive for PCP, which was the officer's defense for, for beating him. And for having superhuman strength. So just, just for the record, so we can kind of kill this once and for all, all the studies that have ever been done on PCP, there's no extra strength you get. You may lose certain pain receptors, but when it comes to actual being stronger, doesn't exist. Rodney King wasn't under the influence of PCP. And, and this was right around the time Hillary was talking about super predators. The super predators. A couple of years kind later, of, kind of, it's a few years later. So, so if you want to talk about super predators, which I was actually looking at, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I actually yeah. brought that up. Go on. Go no, on. no, 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 no. I, th I think it's very important. I think it's a very important thing to talk. I think about. Hillary was married to a super predator. <laughs> the super predator narrative is important because when you think about New York and you think about that time, um, New York was a very violent city and much like LA, you have a violent police force that goes with it. That's, it's a bit corrupt. Historically, New York and LA have corrupt and violent police forces. Um, but also you have a lot of crime in both of those areas. So it's not like, how, how can I say it? There's roving hordes of cops that are oppressive, but there's also roving hordes of criminals at the same time, because we've cut out, jobs because we're in deindustrialized cities where a lot of the manufacturing sector has moved. So what generally takes the place is going to be the illegal marketplace of work. So New York is getting flooded with cheap cocaine from, from Florida. And around the time of, of Rodney King and the blow up of LA gangs, you're seeing them get flooded with cheap cocaine from, from Mexico. And the gangs give these large drug cartels, a distribution network that's massive in scope when you think about it. 
So I try to use this time to really talk about how capitalism functions because too often we look at this strictly through a racialized lens. So Rodney King is only about the evil of white people. And that's why I say him and OJ are kind of the, the yin yang twins, if you will, of, of the way we look at justice. Because if we strictly look at justice through a racialized lens, then why wasn't OJ thrown under the bus? And why was he handled with kid gloves the way he was? And you, well, he was famous, doesn't mean anything. He's still colored. Rodney King doesn't get the same protection as OJ Simpson when we think about, about justice and we look at it as, as just, it's just racialized. When you, when you think about um, the 65 Watts riots where everyone likes to start where they, well, where, how does 92 happen? They go, well, 65, 65, a lot of things changed post-65. There were a lot of race-based programs that changed the makeup. But again, jobs were leaving the area. L.A. becomes extremely deindustrialized. Most young people that thought they had a future in the factories, as the factories left, there was nothing there for them. The gangs were there to take that place. And again, as cheap drugs flow in, now you've created... <laughs> A new job marketplace because so much money is being Bert made. Dealers and, dealers and cops. Think about it. One kilo of cocaine in this time period that's coming to you somewhat pure. You know, you can step on that so many times and you can now cook it into a crack, maybe make $50,000, $60,000 on a night. Right. And you now have well, we don't want to talk about it. Let's not bring up Hunter Biden. This is not the time <laughs> the place to bring up Hunter Biden, please. But but, you know, you, you kind of have to talk about these easy legal networks that kind of blow up in this in this time frame. And the, and one thing we don't talk about is the fact that police were non-existent in these areas. That is why these cartels were like, look, we found a great place to drop off this dope. There's an open air drug market in Los Angeles with an amazing interstate highway system <laughs> that's enabling these cats to distribute dope all over, all over the city. Um, that's never part of the conversation. It's always from the lens of, well, how can cops be nicer? We have to remember that cops were kind of just non-existent in the first place. Um, before Rodney King gets beat with batons, there was a, a massive problem with hundreds of black people and people of color in general dying in police transport um, that were getting choked out from a carotid chokehold, which became illegal in, I think, 83. Um, after too many people were dying from the chokehold, they then gave police these lead batons and taught them how to strategically hit joints to break bones. And this is how you're going to you know, calm down these uh, rogue individuals that are that are high on PCP. Um, and as the gang problem was kind of ripping through neighborhoods, police really didn't do anything. So the call from even black leaders in the early to mid 80s was we can deal with a little bit of police repression. But what we can't deal with is the drug problem. So we'd rather have overzealous law enforcement than um, 
drug dealers kind of running the area. So overzealous law enforcement was, well, we're just going to thump. And, and, and this really gets doubled down on when a young Japanese woman is accidentally gunned down in Westwood. Uh, you get what's what you would call stop and frisk nowadays. You get that in L.A. times 10. And also you have a history going back to the 40s of a police chief that actually had protégés that took over his mantle that were very fascistic. But by the time we get down to Chief Daryl Gates, the fascistic police force no longer is just a bunch of white dudes from the South that came from the military. Now it's people of color, it's women. Rodney King was beat by a multi-ethnic, multi-gendered cadre of cops. Oh yeah, there was a woman in there too. According to Rodney King, she's a, yep. Yep. I don't remember a, a, I don't remember an African-American. Nope. There was a Latin man, Racino. Okay. So we also have to remember that as jobs are leaving the area, where else can you get a job making at the time, 50, $60,000 a year is a lot of money and your union law enforcement. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Locking Up Our Own is the book. James Foreman Jr. has a great book where he literally writes out how there was a push in the early civil rights movement to get black cops because there was the thought that if there were black cops, they would know who the quote unquote good black people were. That hasn't necessarily happened So as we look back on 92 and the 800 million to a billion dollars worth of damage, you can juxtapose it to 2020. That was what the damage was, the riots, the the Mm -hmm. run. Uh, 64 people died, 2,300 injuries. Um, What changed? What what are we still talking about when it comes to reforming police? We're still kind of having the same discussion that misses very, very important points is that there's municipal policies, first of all, that just involve law enforcement. So before Rodney King and far after 65 was 1979, a woman named Eula Love was murdered by law enforcement. She had uh, 12 bullets in her a 60 some year old woman who couldn't pay a water bill. And it was procedure that, you know, when they couldn't pay a bill, they have to cut the water off. If the person is difficult when they're trying to cut the water off, you call the sheriff's department. She came out with a butcher knife, old lady, cops put 12 bullets in her. Daryl Gates defends this. About four years later in New York, a woman named Eleanor Bumpers is murdered by the sheriff's department because she is being served an eviction notice and comes to the door with a a, a butter knife, I believe, or a paring knife. So what we're seeing here is municipal policies that are punishing poverty. And that becomes law enforcement's role. So how can you make this more civil? We're looking at it from the wrong lens. 
In 65, the call was for jobs, but you don't get that. You get community centers and you get, um, especially after the Kerner Commission report, you get more images uh, of yourself on TV, right? You're talking about the Watts riots. Mm -hmm. They were in 65. Mm -hmm. And what, what prompted the Watts riots? You know, similar things that happened with, uh, with, with 92, an overzealous police force that is extremely fascistic, extremely racist at the time. Um, and people had had enough. And some cops pulled over a couple of brothers and a fight broke out. And I think they might have shoved a mother or a sister of one of the guys that might've been pregnant or, or looked pregnant. And then police people kind of, you know, went crazy and, and, uh, the rest is, is history. And the news media had helicopters and they were able to video send video of the riots live. And it became compelling across America. You could watch the riots in the safety of your own home and be terrified of black people and the inner city. And also there was a message, you know, cause again, everything is very extremely racialized. So there was a message coming out of the riots when they were having these great big meetings that were like, you know, Hey, we're coming, we're coming to the white neighborhoods next. We're, gonna, we're not going to just keep messing up our own neighborhoods. That of course never happened. Um, so there is a debilit. I, my kids were raised in Los Angeles and there was a, demilitarized zone there was south of wilshire mm -hmm. there was north of wilshire and south of, and you just did not see african americans north of wilshire where my kids grew up and so the the sister soldier statement who went to my i she went to dwight morrow high school i'm a graduate of dwight morrow high school in New Jersey and Sister Soldier famously said, why don't black people take a break from killing each other and start killing white people? And Bill Clinton <laughs> yeah. used that yeah. right around the when he was running for president after 92. Yeah. yeah. He used that to betray his African-American constituents. The, the first of many, not the first, but and attack Sister Soldier. But it did make sense. And I and I. I wonder, you said how many people died in the riot? 64. I remember Reginald Denny getting mm -hmm. hit over the head. He was white. Oh, yeah. Uh, he got beat. He, got the, he almost got killed. Right. And it was black people that actually saved him. Yep. Uh, so do we know the numbers? Did, did, was it mostly black on black business or? We know. As far as the damage? Yeah, because it came into, I remember it came, I think it was the Korean shop owners. Yes. Were brought out guns to protect their yes. stores. There's a lot of tension between the Koreans and the African Americans. Who, of course, who suffered most of the casualties? Uh, black people died. I think there's 28 deaths of black people, 15 of white, two Asian. And the rest were Latin. And were they killed by police or do we know how the police? We don't know. The police, I think only two police officers died in the entire thing. 
I mean, you got to remember when, when it started, when it started, when the, when the 92 really blows up, police bailed out. They got out in a hurry. And Bush sent in the National Guard. A few days later. Yeah. Yeah. And originally with the when the Rodney King beating is shown originally, and a lot of people probably won't think this is true, but look it up if you don't believe me. It didn't even make the front page of the L.A. Times. It was on page like eight. Even with the, the even with the videotape, it kind of caught a life of its own with, again, the 24 hour news cycle. And again, when you think about O.J. and Rodney King, they're both extremely racialized cases that we, we look at when we think of the term justice. And I asked the question is like, what do we what do we mean when we say justice? And then what does justice look like? If Cornell West says justice is what love looks like in public, you know, then why is O.J. justice? Because there was a sigh of finally when that acquitted verdict comes down and uh, and Rodney King is, you know, cause for uh, blowing up a city. And then his name kind of gets removed uh, from the incident altogether because he wasn't the spokesperson that you could project your movement on. And there's a lot to be said about trying to build a movement off of a, a beaten person. You know, he wasn't a public speaker. He wasn't an activist. He was just a dude. Mm-hmm. And of, of course he didn't want the violence happening in his name. Right. So one of the remarkable things about capitalism and neoliberalism is its resiliency. It learns, mm-hmm. it, it shape shifts, learns from its past mistakes, invade Iraq. Don't the mistake in Vietnam we made was allowing journalists like Walter Cronkite to go off and film the atrocities. Don't allow that. We we learn from our mistakes to make things worse for the rest of the world. Right now, Black Lives Matter, the, uh, the George Floyd murder. What did the ruling class learn from Rodney King that they applied to the George Floyd murder? You know, it goes back to it goes back to 68. It's kind of like, how do you satiate these angry masses, especially as you have a left that's no longer rooted in the wording working class? And even to, to bring up your point about Iraq, there really is no left. Um, there's a bit of an anti-war movement. But no one really thinks about the anti-war movement during the Iraq war, even though some of the biggest protests that happened in history happened at that time. We never really think about that. It's a very apolitical time for the country as a whole. Post the fall of the Soviet Union, when the big bad is gone, there's really nothing for Americans to be mad at. Um, And you have a lot of deregulation that is allowing a certain segment of the population to now get, get hoisted up into the middle class. Um, so I think that has a lot more to do with the fact that there was no journalism, because if you think about as the Iraq war in Afghanistan lasted for so long, you have some of the best journalism that comes out during that time. Jeremy Scahill writes Dirty War, which is, is an amazing uh, uh, expose on what was really going on over there, you know, but it kind of falls on deaf ears because more people would rather watch people getting kicked in the nuts on jackass. Right. People would rather watch right. Fear Factor. 
I can get internet porn from my phone whenever I want it. Can you get so, tractor porn? You, hey, if I can beat one to it, I can watch it. So, <laughs> so, so you know, like let's like let's let's be let's be serious here. So, what what do you get after sixty eight? You get a lot of, and Pascal talks about this all the time. You get the current commission report. It's like we you know we have to start. You know, uh, what's representation? A lot more black shows, a lot more black people on TV. You get the same things in the nineties. Just looks a little different. We start to get all these hood movies. You know, why does the frustration get quelled? I mean, New York, up until Dinkins becomes mayor, is a powder keg right. of racial tension. Los Angeles has a black mayor and had one for a long time, for over a decade, Tom Bradley was mayor. It's during Tom Bradley's regime in 84, before 84, before the Olympics, that the LA police department gets militarized as they are trying to clean out that area for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So what calms people down? Sometimes it's a little bit of capitalism. It's a little bit of come up. And and that's something that people don't like. You let just enough in so it dilutes the anger and it, you turn it back on the black community and say, you see, Jason made it. How come you can't? Watch we have to a movie like Boys in the Hood. Watch a movie like Boys in the Hood. And Boys in the Hood is steeped in Moynihan-esque logic. It is the failure of the black household. It is these matriarchal households that are the problem. If they just go to college and pull up their pants, they will succeed. You're talking about Patrick and then benign yes. neglect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. We have to wrap it up. We have a, a Senate candidate coming up. I love you. I love having you on the show. This has to continue next week. I wish we could continue it Thursday, but you have this is revolution. I have I, I will get a hold of Hannah and see what time Thursday, see if I can make it work. Okay. I would I'd like to continue this. Thank you. Jason Miles is the host of this is revolution with pascal robert it's a brilliant show and jason does some amazing videos i watched your uh report on the rodney king uh arrest and the fetishization of white police officers patrolling the inner city and how they were just doing their job just doing their job yeah yeah uh, thank you, Jason. How do people follow you? How do people contact you? Uh, you can find me at, uh, at TIR show Oakland on Twitter. This is revolutionpodcast.com. We're on all the sites. Uh, leave a message. Uh, we'll get back to you. Um, thank you, David. Thank and- you. I wish we had more time. Thank you, Jason. Great job. Peace out, brother. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, Tom Nelson is a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, and he is endorsed by Howie Klein. So we're going to raise money for him in the next half hour. I want you to go to your Internet right now and go to Nelson for WI, that's short for Wisconsin, and give him money. Give $5, $50, $500. 
Nelson4wiwisconsin.com. Please welcome candidate for the U.S. Senate, Tom Nelson. Hello, Tom. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for the plug. I appreciate that. That's great. uh, Howie Klein can't make it, and uh, we have to raise money for you today. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to do some call time afterwards, though, but I think we took care of this, so we can go longer. We raise, right? (laughs) I I like to think my listeners will will send you money. Go to Nelson for wi.com right now give five dollars fifty dollars or five hundred dollars and you will feel better the world is it's devastating and there's it's it's paralyzing when you donate money to a candidate like tom nelson you're helping yourself it's you gaining control back from the scott walkers and the tom ryans of the world Give this man money. Thank you, Tom. You are right now the county executive for, I'm going to butcher this word, Outagami? Close. It's Outagami. And actually, Out-a-gami. the phonetic pronunciation is supposed to be Outagami. But this is Wisconsin. We like our long A's. So Outagami. Right. We have Professor Harvey J.K., who yep. teaches at University of Wisconsin Green Bay. And I'm sorry he's not here to go over uh, his economic bill of rights. What is what are the top three issues that you feel catapulted you to the decision to run for Senate before we get to the politics? What are the three most important issues facing the people of Wisconsin that Washington can fix? I think the three ones, the ones I've been focusing on is economic security, health security and the climate crisis. And even though it might seem like three disparate issues are very closely linked, you know, you can't have a good job. Well, what good is a good job if you don't have your health? And what good is your health and a job if you don't have a planet? And I think that those three issues tied together, together, I think are pretty compelling. And they touch a lot of other sub-issues, you know, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, I'm a big champion Medicare for all, whether it's a comprehensive approach to get the climate crisis under control and at the same time creating good paying union jobs. So I think it all comes together, economic security, health security, health security and, and the climate crisis. I want to ask you why Ron Johnson is the worst senator in America. That's some pretty stiff competition. He's <laughs> a Republican. He is a multimillionaire who is running for re-election. We weren't sure if he was going to run for re-election. He is. Let me ask you some, I have about three tough questions I ask, and uh, they're a little rude. Do you mind? Yeah, it's your show. Go ahead, please. Are you a millionaire? No. Are you rich? No. Okay. Do you take corporate money? No. Did the these are questions I ask of all the candidates. Did Afghanistan attack us on 9-11? Did Afghanistan attack us on 9-11? The Taliban, the people of Afghanistan attack us on 9-11. Well, I mean, they were harboring, you know, Osama bin Laden. That's where he was hiding out. I mean, I think if you look at who's behind that, if you look at the attackers, most of them were Saudis. 
And, you know, if you want to look at the U.S. policy in Afghanistan, I mean, I think what was really unfortunate, and this is just a complete tragedy, and I talked to some veterans' families after this happened, though, but we spent 20 years there, 20 years of, you know, you know, our blood, our treasure toiling, and we were at the exact same spot we were 20 years early at the end of, at the end of 2001 with respect to Taliban. I mean, I don't know what we accomplished for 20 years. And I think this is also the reason why there's a big reluctance to the extent to get involved in Ukraine. And I think it all comes together. And of course, it all comes back to this neocon um, foreign policy that came from people like George Bush, that came from Dick Cheney, and now whose daughter is you know, front and center to this spectacle. If you look at what's happened, what led to the insurrection, that taproot goes into the Tea Party, it goes to Dick Cheney, it goes to George W. Bush, it goes to Newt Gingrich. I think all this stuff is pretty clear. Unfortunately, for some people, it took all of this time to look back and say, geez, that was all coming. I disagree. I think this was clear as day, you know, um, you know, with the events leading up to this year. Is it a disservice to the American troops to call Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan a mistake? I think there's two things. I think that there's a political question. I think there's the military question. I mean, of course, if you're in the military and you enlist in, in, in the military, um, you listen to your, to, your, to your commander in chief. And that's where the decisions about where we're going, how the, how the war is going to be prosecuted. When people sign up to the military, they're not checking a box. I'd like to go to this country or that country. They are serving their country. And so when they're serving their country, um, depending on if it's a Democratic administration or Republican administration, they're going to be probably making different decisions. But here, here in Wisconsin, I mean, we have a high proportion of veterans. It's about 7 or 8% of the population. And as county executive, I run a county veteran service office. And so it falls to the county. And so what we're doing, we're on the front lines working with veterans, working with their families to make sure that they get the benefits that they are owed. And it, I mean, I just think that this is a real good example of just how, uh, you know, of just how ridiculous and how absurd our government is structured. So I've got this department at the county level whose job is to help a veteran navigate the VA and the federal government. So you have one government trying to help another government give the money to the people who are sold. And of course, the taxpayers have to pay for this. But I take these issues very, very seriously because I've spent a pretty good part of my budget and I've spent a lot of my public service making sure these veterans' families, regardless of where they serve, that they are given the money and they're given the benefits that they are owed and that they should be respected, regardless of the political decision made by the, by the commander in chief. Right. Homelessness. I say the only reason there is homelessness is because there's a shortage of housing that we need to spend more on public ho housing, that we have to get rid of the Faircloth Amendment, and that the United States government, HUD, has to get into the business of building free and or low-income housing. It is not a market-based solution because it is in the market's best interest to limit housing because fewer homes mean higher prices. Right, right. No other excuse for homelessness. Right. Right, right. And you know what? I'm glad you, you, you put in that context because this is related. We don't want to get off topic, though, but the economics with this issue is the same thing with the economics with the oil industry and pricing. 
So Republicans are saying we need to drill here and drill there. We need more leases, more leases. Well, guess what? These oil companies are sitting on the leases they already have. Why? Because they're doing great. They've got record profits. They don't have any obligation to control inflation. They don't have any obligation to make it easier for my constituents to be able to pay to get to work and back. No, their job is to their shareholder to maximize profits. And whenever you have a profit incentive built into a service, whether it's gas, whether it's housing, there are going to be bad actors. And it's not necessarily because they're bad actors, but that's how things are set up. It's set up to make money. And as long as a company is clear profit and their shareholders or their owners are happy with it, it doesn't matter the public policy political implications. And I think you see that across the board, not just with housing, but when you mentioned this, this framework with housing, you can see in that issue, but you can see it across the spectrum. Right. Right. And you see this as the county manager that it that mental illness is caused by homelessness. It's not the mentally ill who become homeless. It's the homeless who become mentally ill. If you're living on the streets, you're you're going to become mentally ill. Uh, Medicare for all can you have Medicare for I know you're for Medicare for all. Can you have Medicare for all? And at the same time, companies who sell Medicare Advantage, can you have health insurance companies coexist with Medicare for all? I think it depends on the proposal, though. But the whole idea of Medicare for all is that you're taking insurance companies out of the equation. And so that there isn't this layer in the healthcare economy that's profiting because they're denying you health care. I mean, and that's the problem with the for-profit health insurance companies is, again, they've got this built-in profit mode not to make you well not to make sure you get enough care, but so that they can make a profit. And a lot of that is denying a claim. You talk to people who work on the front lines at health insurance companies, they are denying claims, not because they want to hurt their neighbor or they want to hurt their friend or family member, because that's what they have to do in order to stay in business. And so when you look at the different problems with the current system, that's a big part of it. And so I think if you go to a Medicare for all um, model, the objective is that you want to make sure that everyone has access the same care, that it is affordable. And that's not what you have under the for-profit system, the private um, healthcare system. Right. Everybody uh, needs to go right now to this website. It is Nelson for WI, WI is Wisconsin, Nelson for WI.com and give him money right now. You know, Starbucks, I support the workers of Starbucks and I support Starbucks as they go union. But, you know, Howard Schultz is the, the leader of Starbucks and he's a multi-billionaire who's anti-union. If you have to choose between getting a latte or giving the money to Tom Nelson, I strongly urge you to give two lattes to Nelson for wi.com we need to send him to washington dc he supports medicare for all he's endorsed by howie klein that's all you need to know he's been thoroughly vetted by howie klein give money and you will feel better you're doing this for yourself 
and for your, your children. Education. This is tough. These are, it's tough to run uh, statewide and talk about education. Do you believe in busing? I do. I believe that our, our current, I think public education is an apartheid state here in America. I think our schools are as segregated and I'm not the only one who's, who has said this. I think public schools in America are as segregated as they were at the time of Brown v. Board of Education. I think we're in violation of Brown v. Board of Education and Plessy versus Ferguson, which said separate but equal. We don't have separate but equal. We have separate. The schools are not equal. So we're in violation of both Brown v. Board of Education and Plessy versus Ferguson. Are you a lawyer? I'm not. Wow. Go to Nelson for WI.com. The fact that this man is not a lawyer. Now, $10, or $1,000. He's not a lawyer. $10. Don't insult this man by only giving him five. $10, or $1,000. He is not a lawyer. So busing is pretty much dead in America. It's politically dead. People don't want to, you know, they say they don't want to send their kids 60 miles. They hear the horror stories uh, of kids being sent 60. I was bust. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, how do we integrate our schools racially? not economically. We always say, well, you know, it's important. We shouldn't integrate them based on race. It should be based on, you know, rich and poor. No, no, it has to be mixed racially. Or am I wrong? Well, I think it's I think it's not so much that the schools segregated, but that our communities are segregated. I mean, school districts, they follow the lines, not just of the jurisdictions of cities, towns and villages, but it also follows the contours of different, you know, neighborhoods uh, within the city. And we have to acknowledge, I mean, this is not the deep South, of course, but, you know, Wisconsin, some of our cities in Wisconsin are some of the most segregated cities in the country. And if you look at the indicators, um, you know, they're really bad. I mean, we have some communities uh, that have the, have the lowest um, infant mortality rate of any city in the country. And that's Wisconsin. This is a Wisconsin, and this is, you know, Wisconsin is about 90% white. And yet we have one of, you know, the worst mortality rates, um, infant mortality rates for African-Americans. So we're doing something wrong. So I think that there are a number of issues. It's not just schools, but I think if you go to the communities and how we got to that, and it's not just schools, but it's also housing. It's also banking and redlining, all that that's been going on and on that is either happened by law um, or is just just become a practice. And I think that that's something that um, is such is I mean, it's so severe because it really has seeped into these different aspects, these different facets of life. You're the son of a pastor. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. What denomination? Lutheran, ELCA. Does religion have any place in the public square? 
I think it does because I think it goes to who you are. I think when you run for office, people want to know who you are. They want to know what your values are, what your beliefs, what your ideology. And I think core to that is your upbringing, you know, and I think that has a big part. I mean, religion is a big part of my upbringing. I grew up in a church. My dad's a pastor. And so my worldview, as I mentioned um, at the, I think it was this interview, I think I've done like three or four today about how, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, that's right. That was a previous one. So they asked about the formative experience, a formative experience. And so I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. All the dads worked at paper mills, except for my dad, who wore the white collar. He was a Lutheran pastor. And so my draw to politics and public service came from that environment. I learned two very important lessons growing up. I learned the importance of serving your neighbor and serving your community. When I was with my dad going door to door as he started at church and those things were inseparable. And then the second thing growing up in blue collar neighborhood, that there's a lot of people in this world that work hard, play by the rules, pay the taxes, but they can't get ahead because there's too much money and too much power concentrated in so few hands. So you can see how for me, in my upbringing, religion has a lot to do with my worldview. And so I think regardless of what role religion plays, what your beliefs and what your values, I think when it comes to politics, especially running for office, I think you should be upfront and very transparent. And so this is not only is this, you know, you know, what I talk about in interviews, though, but it's actually a pretty big part of my stump speech and it's featured probably extensively on my website. Well, most of my listeners, and I think I agree, believe that religion has no place in the public square. But when it's weaponized by the right wing, the Democrats owe it to themselves to challenge the Republicans on yes. their claims to be religious. Yes. Yes. Are you willing to are you willing to challenge Ron Johnson on his Christianity when he when he presents himself as a good Christian? I mean, I'm not going to question his Christianity, but what I will do is I'll come up and say, this is what I believe in. This is why I'm campaigning, because this is what I was raised. Now, you guys speak to your own actions, your own positions and your behavior, though. But I will challenge anyone who will take hostage a particular religion to advance their political goals. And so that's what's happening on the religious right. They have they have taken hostage this entire religion to advance this, these right wing causes that I believe have nothing to do with each other. And so for Christians who are Democrats and Christians who are not right wing cranks like Ron Johnson going on to um, podcasts, doing interviews with people who rightfully are looking at religion from that perspective, it's on people like me to make it very clear that, yeah, they may say that they're a Christian, but I do not look at things the same way they do. And this is how I interpret the Bible. And this is how I look at the world. This is how I want to make a difference. And so I think for me, I would speak to where I came from. I would speak to my views. And if he wants to run on that, fine, but I will not allow him to hijack religion just because he has the litmus test, whether it's on this social issue, that solution, in my mind, that's not why I'm a Christian. That's not why I'm a Democrat. See, the problem with religion in the public square is it's OK to talk about it, but it's not OK to challenge it. At the top of the show, I went after I'm Jewish. What a surprise. And I went after Dennis Prager, who is a a bigoted right wing Jewish intellectual who 
supported Donald Trump trivializes the plight of black people, uh, undocumented Americans. He trivializes uh, income inequality. He is a despicable human being who wraps himself up in Orthodox <laughs> Judaism. And today I decided, you know what? I'm a Jew. I'm going to go after this pig, Dennis Prager, who's a fraud. He's not a rabbi. He's not a professor. He's just an obese blowhard. And I felt uncomfortable challenging him because it's in this country, it's okay to be a right wing Christian who insists they speak the Gospels right. or, you know, right. I'm a right wing Jew who hates blacks like Dennis Prey. You know, the man is trivializing the plight of blacks and the LGBTQ. I I've decided, you know what, if you're Jewish and you talk that way, we're in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Give me give me. Yeah. Where in the Torah does God give you the permission to talk this way? Why does the left respect these religious charlatans and not throw scripture yeah. into their face? Yeah, look, if they want to invoke religion and they start saying, well, because of this, yeah, I mean, then, okay, fine. If you want to use that, then you need to, need to back it up. I mean, I believe, I mean, I believe in a Jesus that, you know, lifts those up who speaks for those who do not have a voice that lifts up people without money, uh, people that don't have no one else to, to stand up for them. And I think how you can interpret that with this right-wing ideology, I think that they're completely inconsistent. I believe the teachings of Jesus Christ and this right-wing ideology are completely inconsistent. And you're right. How is it that Democrats allow people like Republicans, whether it's Ron Johnson or Donald Trump, how do we let them get away with it? And I think we have to right. get rid of the stigma that religion is only something that Republicans can talk about. Now, this is something Democrats can talk about and should talk about, especially when they're hijacking a religion to advance their political agenda that I think is completely inconsistent with those teachings. Are billionaires a policy failure? Yes. Should Bill Gates have a foundation and get to decide unilaterally how money is spent on vaccines and treatments for malaria, or is that the job of the federal government? I think it's the job of the federal government to have meaningful antitrust, anti-monopoly laws, and meaningful tax laws that make the rich pay their fair share so that you do not have the concentration of wealth, that we, the obscene concentration of wealth that we have in this country that manifests itself in some of the personalities that you just talked about. We could go on and on about that, though. So Elon Musk, you know, Jeff Bezos, a lot of their success has a lot to how they've taken advantage of, they've bought the politicians so that they don't have to pay their fair share. That's the problem. So we shouldn't get to this point where we're even having this, this discussion. They should not have been able to, corporate America should not have been able, able, able to, I mean, it goes back to my upbringing little shoot, you know, seeing the working right. families, union families on Carolyn Drive, work hard, play by the rules, pay their taxes, they can't get ahead. At the same time, the billionaires reap 1.6, 1.6 trillion dollars of new wealth in a pandemic. When people are losing their jobs, when the kids can't go to school, when they can't put food on the table, when they can't pay for gas. The, <laughs> yes. The 50,000 
human beings uh, along the border trying to get into America from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, are they refugees or migrants? I mean, look, they're they're people, they're human beings. And a lot of the reason why they're at our border is because there's been a failure of U.S. foreign policy in Central America. I mean, we are propping up these dictators and these regimes that are persecuting, killing the very same people who are coming to our border. And so when we look at immigration policy, you have to look at it from another angle. And we refuse to do it with our overall foreign policy. But before we even start talking about immigration, before we even have a debate on this, let's recognize this one thing. Republicans do not want immigration reform. Republicans want a broken, they want a broken immigration policy. In fact, if it were up to them, they wouldn't want to have any borders. Why? Because it messes with the business model of the Chamber of Commerce and their patrons. That's what this comes down to. And so there's never been a meaningful piece of immigration legislation on the floor of any Republican Congress. Fact. Thank you. They 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 use the immigrants for cheap labor and other eyes them. And then they have somebody to run against every two years. They do not want to solve the immigration problem. I don't No, They don't don't want to have a conversation on racial, you know, on racial issues. They don't want to talk about immigration. You know, that's why Democrats like, why am I stopped talking about this social issue? We didn't bring it up. You know, and the Republicans, they don't want to have some sort of thoughtful discussion, some sort of policy solution. They want to do that to divide our neighborhoods, divide our country, win elections and do a lot of bad things to all of us. I'm going to ask you two more tough questions. These are tough because you're running statewide. Are there any laws on the books that demand homeland security lock up immigrants is there is there a single law a statute on the books that insists that if you come to america seeking asylum or as they say illegally are there laws in the books that say you must be locked up no, there are no laws on the books. This is this is a, a unilateral decision made by our commander in chief to lock these people up. Are you talking about Title 42? I'm talking about immigrants who come to America undocumented. There are no laws on the books that say they have to be put in ICE detention facilities. They can be brought here, turned over to NGOs, churches, they have they're they always show up for their hear- rarely do they not show up for their hearings this is a five billion dollar a year for-profit ice detention mm-hmm. industry for profit yeah yep. i mean follow the money this goes right back to housing it goes right back to oil right it goes right back to education whenever you have a profit motive in the marketplace is it a public good or is it a private good it can't be it's it's very rarely can it purely be one or the other. And that's where you have these problems. You have the problems with housing. You have the problems with gas price. You have the problems with trade policy, inflation, on and on and on. We spend sixty thousand dollars a year to imprison each refugee. Sixty thousand dollars a year. If they're in a family shelter, it's something like one hundred twenty thousand per refugee. Why is this not 
being told to the American people, why do why is running on abolishing ICE such a uh, a non-starter for the Democratic Party? Well, I think the reason why, you know, again, the reason why we're talking about these issues is that the Republicans put this on the front burner. They're not looking for a solution to this. Okay. If they were really serious about this, they would bring some sort of meaningful immigration reform, but they have not. I mean, what Democrats have to do is we have to stand up against things like Title 42. I want to mention Title 42. Do you know what Title 42 is? Title 42 is this because this is center stage. If you want to look at the the absolute depravity of the Republican Party is how they stand by this. And for the Democratic candidates and most U.S. Senate Democratic candidates, ask Howie about this, actually support Title 42. And it's a tragedy. This is a racist policy. It's a racist policy that says, you know, you cannot come into this country because of COVID. So the Republicans who are saying COVID's not that big of a deal, don't have to wear masks. You don't have to take these precautions. At the same time, they're defending the hilt on Title 42, which is a racist policy. And Democrats cannot stand up to that. That's wrong. Abortion. I am not pro-choice. I'm pro-abortion. The, the Republicans are winning on abortion because they call themselves pro-life. The best the Democrats can do on abortion is they want it safe, legal, and rare. You can't win if your position on abortion is safe, legal, and rare and call yourself pro-choice. You're either pro-abortion or you're not pro-abortion. Why won't the Democrats embrace calling themselves pro-abortion? They take money from Emily's list, but they can't bring themselves to say, I'm for abortion. Well, I'm running against an Emily's list candidate, so I'm not taking Emily's list money. Right. <laughs> that would support me. I understand what you're saying, though. Um, don't you think women would come out of the woodwork if we just... If it's okay for Republicans to hold up jars of pickled fetuses, that's not considered unseemly, but it's unseemly for the Democrats to utter the phrase, I'm pro-abortion. I, I mean, Why I don't can't we say that? Well, I think that there are a lot of Democrats that do that. I think there are a lot of Democrats. I think, you know, what what I have found here, look, I'm from a red part of the state. And when I was in the state assembly, it was a pretty conservative, a very, you know, quote unquote, pro-life. I mean, it was a very pro-life um, constituency. And so, you know, I don't think it's so much. I think it's a matter of, you know, whether it's abortion, whether it's health care, whether it's a Green New Deal, immigration, it's just learning how to talk about these issues with people in a right. persuasive manner. And so, I mean, on this, I mean, I look at it differently. I mean, I'm pro-choice. Right. I believe that it comes down to women's right to choose and to have the Republican Party that says, OK, you can't do it the same party that's supposed to be libertarian, that wants less government. You know how they can champion these awful, these awful abortion restrictions across the country that are disproportionately hurting people with limited means. Shame on them. Right. Harvey, Professor Harvey J.K. from Wisconsin said famously on this show, you ain't talking blank if you're not talking labor. He says, and I agree with him, all that matters is labor. Everything else is noise if you're not talking labor. David Cobb is about to join us, and I know he has some questions for you. 
Tell me about your work as a union organizer. No, no, you, Tom. Um, I'm not a union organizer. I mean, I work for unions. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Like, I'm not, okay. So I'm not like a paid union organizer doing that. In my, I'm sorry, in my capacity as a county executive, I organized, I worked with with the local steel workers to help save them. I think you're referring to that, right. Okay, so, I mean, you know, know, in that instance, it was very informal. It wasn't an official way though. But no, I mean, throughout my public service, I've looked at ways in my standing as an elected official to work with organized labor. Whether you want to use the word organized partner, you name it though. But I found these different ways in which you can lift up the labor movement for constructive change, not just to help them and their families, but the community. And front and center, the issue was when I got together with the local steel workers union, we figured out a way to object to a sale of a, of a mill to a scrap dealer that would have scrapped it. And we saved it. We saved it because we were able to join together with management and labor and local government to prevail on the judge to give us a second chance. But they would say, no, this is a community asset. And these workers, their jobs are worth saving. And not only that, though, we can actually make this owner rich. And we did. And he ended up selling the mill for like 120, for like $100 million. It was, it was ridiculous. I mean, that was not only, not only was it labor saving labor, but labor making the owners pretty darn rich. So when Harvey, when my good friend Harvey says, if you're not talking labor, you're not talking anything at all. Labor is the reason why. Labor is the reason why capital got rich in that one example. He's exactly so Tom, I'm, This is David Cobb. Even before I get introduced, I'm going to jump in on Feldo and say that's a great story. And let's make sure that you and I get connected, because the next time you tell a story like this, I want you to tell that it ends with an organized labor got together and bought it themselves and be- workers began owning the mill. And I can help you do that. OK, David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party. He ran Ralph Nader's presidential campaign. Let me just say, you are, uh, you're the best. Tom Nelson, you are the best. And uh, we, we need you in, in Washington, D.C. This country needs you representing the great state of Wisconsin. And anybody who's an American citizen or has a green card can donate to Tom Nelson, go to nelsonforwi.com. I'm begging you, I want him to come back. The only way he can come back is if it's in his campaign's best interests. Everything's transactional. Give him money. Go to nelsonforwi.com. He takes no corporate money. He's not a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. He's not a millionaire. And he's not a lawyer. Nelson4wi.com. Give him $10, $100, $1,000. He's running against Ron Johnson. Very quickly, why is Ron, of all the horrible senators we have in Washington, D.C., let's go negative. Why well, is Ron? There is no one else that was at this nexus of the insurrection, right? Because he was a Homeland Security chair and he was focused on these, you know, um, these conspiracies with the 2020 election, which, by the way, are still going on. So he's, 
he's he's not focused on this domestic terrorist threat. He's ginning up these conspiracies, and then we have the insurrection. Meanwhile, he's saying that COVID's not a big deal. He champions outsourcing. There's a thousand jobs that could be in Oshkosh right now that he's allowing going to non-union South Carolina. Not only is he currently the worst senator, but he might be the worst senator in the history of senators. Wow. Nelson for WI.com. David Cobb, jump in here before Tom leaves. You have a question? Well, actually, a, a, a quick one. Any relation to Gaylord Nelson? Uh, no, you're going to ask that. No, he's um, um, he grew up in the same town as my dad did, but no relation. Great man. Well, listen, I, I've got some I, I've got some. Uh, we we really should uh, uh, connect because I actually do know some folks, uh, some Scotties that I would like to actually get connected. Uh, and you're right, like uh, Ron Johnson. Like he's not the worst U.S. senator, even that the state of Wisconsin has produced. Let's be honest about that, right? Like there's <laughs> one that be on everybody's mind. Yeah, I know, I know. But look, if you look at look, Joe McCarthy did a lot of bad things. But the thing about Joe Mar Joe McCarthy, though, he knew he knew he wasn't doing the right thing. This was a way. I mean, he was a complete. You know, he he was a showman. He was running around trying to find an issue. He this this really wasn't his core. Then <laughs> Ron Johnson, I really do believe. He believes in things that come out of his mouth. I mean, that's the one thing I'll say. The, being the guy is actually genuine. This who's this is who well, he's genuinely harmful. And you and he's, I will agree. He's on always that. been this way. He's always been this way. It's just becoming more and more apparent. The guy gets older. He gets angry. He gets crankier. He gets more extreme. He gets more right wing. He does. He does more damage. So we got to get rid of him. We got to beat him. Got to get him off. The other thing about the other thing about Joe McCarthy is he paid a price. Nixon paid a price. They paid political prices for their venality. Imagine that there was a time in America where politicians who damaged this country paid a political price and were humiliated. Thank you, uh, Tom Nelson. Go to Nelson for WI.com. I'm asking you, I don't ask for much. He is the real deal. He is the real deal. Nelson for WI, your book is One Day Stronger. Yep. And so this is about working with the local steel workers to save the mill that David thought was a really good story. You can get it from my website, Nelson4WI.com. The book has its own website. Um, see a video. We did a video with a couple of the workers. Um, it's kind of um, a uh, uh, kind of companion to this campaign because jobs and labor and manufacturing have been a really big part of this uh, candidacy. I just want to thank you because it's horrible. The world just gets worse and worse. And when I meet people like you, you, you give me hope for my kids and for myself. And you're a great investment in our future. Nelson for WI.com, $10, $100, It's the best investment you can make. Thank you, Tom Nelson. I will be plugging you throughout the day. I hope we can send you some money. Thank you. You're, yeah, you're a great man. Thank, Thank you. you. And I'm not Thank an attorney you. either. And I'm not a lawyer. You're not, you're not, a, you're not a lawyer. $15, $150, <laughs> $1,500. <laughs> David Cobb, on the other hand, is a lawyer. <laughs> All right, guys. Enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tom Nelson.
I don't know what it is. I, I want to introduce your guest in one second. I when I meet people like you who ran for office and when I meet somebody like Tom Nelson, they give me hope for this country. Nelson for WI.com. I purposely don't. I'm not polite when I grill these candidates because I don't want to take it. Like, you know, I, I ask them kind of rude questions. I know they're going to answer the questions correctly, but uh, people say, why are you being so rude? I, I, there are things I believe in. He answered every question absolutely perfectly. And that's why Howie Klein endorses him. Nelson for WI.com. Well, David Cobb, thank you for bringing Debbie. Why don't you introduce Debbie to us? I will. And I am so incredibly excited to introduce my uh, good friend and colleague, Debbie Notkin. Uh, what I'll say is this. I, I work with Debbie very closely at the California Public Banking Alliance. This is the citizens group across the state of California uh, that was responsible really for passing the historic groundbreaking law that I've talked to you before, AB 857. This allows the state of California to charter up to 10 local or regional public banks, right? Uh, well, Debbie was instrumental in helping to make that happen. But wait, there's more because <laughs> Debbie Notkin is one of the key leaders of the public bank East Bay, who is right on the verge of actually creating the, the she is in process of creating the first public bank chartered in the United States of America in the last hundred years. Ladies and gentlemen of the David Feldman Show, Please meet my good friend, Debbie Notkin. Debbie, welcome. Welcome. You are muted, um, Debbie, in the immortal COVID words. You're muted. Now, now I am not muted, and it is an oh, honor you are not here. It's very exciting. Yes, it's great to be here. So, David, uh, I've told Debbie a little bit. I, I told Debbie you're a comedian first and a political pundit second, which I'm going to insist is the, the order to always talk about Feldo. Uh, uh, so she knows a little bit what to expect. I could lead this conversation, but if you'd like to actually just uh, chat with Debbie, because I think your listeners and your viewers uh, are going to get a lot out of this. Well, let's contextualize it first about public banking, because there was a time when the post office, as most of my listeners know, did banking. They did it better yes. than the banks did, and the banks didn't like that. The same people who insist that government can't do anything right at the same time say, no, no, pass, pass laws that prevent the post office from providing banking services, because how are we going to compete with the government? Well, which way is it? Buster, either the government can't do anything right or it's so good you can't compete with it. The truth is the post office is is a shining example of everything the government does right. And they used to do banking for the underbanked. What percentage of Americans are underbanked in this country who don't have enough money to put to save some of it in a bank? Well, it's about a third of Americans and not all, many of them don't have enough money to put some of it in the bank. Some are undocumented. 
Some don't trust banks for various reasons, like they have undocumented relatives or whatever. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of reasons why people are unbanked or underbanked, and most of them could be very well addressed by the return of postal banking. But what I would say, just having listened to that little bit with Tom Nelson, I think it's important to say that the Republicans say the government can't do anything right when there are business interests that want whatever it is the government is doing. Exactly. So that what happened to postal banking, there's a beautiful book on it by Marissa Baradaran, who went on to write another book about black banks. This one is called How the Other Half Banks. And she goes into the whole history of how the banks opposed postal banking from the beginning to the end and finally won. Right. What is a public bank? So a public bank, the way we think about it is a little different. The postal banking that you're talking about is retail banking. You, you could have an account at a, at a postal bank. I could have a, an account at a postal bank. But when we talk about public banking in California in the 2020s, we're talking about banks that can handle public money, tax, mostly tax money, tax and fee money. All of that money right now, virtually every penny of that money is in Wall Street banks. And we know what the Wall Street banks do with that money. They fund fossil fuels, they fund private prisons, and mostly they make themselves rich. And we think there are better things to do with tax and fee money than make rich people richer. That, so the bottom line for the contemporary public banking movement is to move that money. So, into a place where it can replenish local communities. So as David Cobb, the brilliant David Cobb, explained it to me, you have a, a city or a county that wants to build a bridge. And they don't have the money. They don't want to raise taxes. So they issue a bond. They right. borrow money. They say to the American people, we need a million dollars Here's a bond. We're issuing a bond that you buy the bond and we'll pay interest on the million dollars. I guess it's tax free, right? The interest is tax free. But in it, order it to. Yeah. But in order to issue that bond, you have to go to Wall Street. Exactly. And they Wall Street and, and Wall Street and middlemen who do nothing but make money off selling bonds to Wall Street. So how much more expensive is it for the city of uh, Chico to go to a public bank if they if they go to a public bank to issue the, the bond or if they go to Wall Street? Who who makes more money? Uh, there are two. Oh, well, there are two answers to that. One is the public bank could probably um, have a slightly lower rate than Wall Street does. So there would be money to save directly that way. But the more important point is that it, with a public bank, the city would be paying that interest to itself, right, through the bank. So in effect, the bonds become very close to free because the income from them comes back to, the, to, to build that bridge. Or an example I like to use from a, from a school meeting I was at a few years ago, is you could get the rats out of the park 
and you could budget the schools, right? You could do both because you would have, you would be, you would have no one double dipping against you. All right, explain that to me because I'm I'm not good at math or finance. So Chico needs a million dollars. They go to a public bank. The public bank issues a bond, and then people have to buy right. the bond, and they buy the bond to collect interest. So the bond costs more than a million dollars, right? The public bank buys the bond. It's it, it, this isn't like um, treasury bonds where you and I buy them in hundred dollar increments. M most bonds are held by banks and and financial institutions. So the public bank would buy the bond. It would um, trust the city to pay the interest. The interest would come back into the coffers of the public bank instead of going into the coffers of J.P. Morgan Chase and the pockets of Jamie Dimon. And then when the, at the end of the year, when the bank calculates its profits, some of them go into more loans, say to BIPOC businesses or affordable housing, and some of the profits go back to the cities that have their capital in the bank. So the cities that are paying their interest to the public bank get that back in the form of bank profits returned to, return to the depositors in the bank. Because, because the cities deposit money in the bank so they get interest on their deposits or because and they have an order and they own the bank. Well, you're, well, the, the cities own the bank. It's a little complicated. The cities don't run the bank. We want bankers running banks. We don't want politicians who can be voted in and out every five minutes and change their direction and suddenly decide they hate things running the bank. So it's, a, it's not that the city owns the bank, but it's that the city is entitled to some of the bank profits. And David and looks like he wants to come in. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, go ahead. Like, like this is a very important point that Debbie's making, and I want to simplify it for uh, listeners, viewers, and especially to Faldo, because he's a great comedian. He's not the smartest guy, Debbie. I'm just going to no. let you know. Like, you know, we love him. We love him. Uh, we love him. But he's not the smartest guy. So, so uh, Faldo, think of it this way, right? That the, the, the benefits of the bank accrue to the public. We definitely, Debbie and I and everybody in the public banking movement want to ensure that public banks are still banks. They need to be operated by bankers who understand this. They need to be managed as banks. We need to protect the integrity of that. But the difference is the public owns the bank, right? That all of the benefits of the bank that are currently being siphoned away from these rat bastards in Wall Street and becoming billionaires at the public expense, that is actually public money and it's treated as public money. So we could absolutely get into the, okay, this is the bond and a capital project here, and right. et cetera, et cetera, non-escalating fees, all of that is true. But what I want your listeners to fully appreciate hearing from Debbie is, all of the benefit of a public bank inures to the public. That's the difference. It's still a bank. It's owned and operated at the public's benefit. I just, I just have to say that two years ago, I was that person who needed it explained the way David just explained it. And now I've become the person who has to be careful not to get into the weeds. Uh, well, totally the differences between you and me two years from now, I'll still be the person who needs to explain <laughs> to me. 
Yes, but if I tried to be a comedian, it would be a stone disaster. Uh, if you had my act. Anyway. Uh, uh, so, okay, where has this been tried? In, well, all over the world, for one thing. About a third of the world's money is in public banks. There's some chat going on about public banks in the UK. There are many countries that are fully public bank, including Germany. Germany isn't fully public bank, but it has a very robust public bank system that's responsible for a lot of its green success. Costa Rica has public banks, Vietnam has public banks, on and on. In the United States, there's really only one laboratory and that's the unlikely state of North Dakota, where the public bank was created in 1919. Yes, I, I said that correctly, by socialists who were sick and tired of watching all the North Dakota grain go to Minnesota and all the money from the grain or much of the money from the grain go to the Minnesota bankers and, um, and rich people. So that public bank, somebody just said in the chat, it survived the depression. It survived everything. It's still going great guns. It protected North Dakota from the 2008 recession. It did a better job of distributing Paycheck Protection Act loans than any other state in the country. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. It really is amazing. And you know, David, you ran Ralph Nader's presidential campaign and he rises above ideology and focuses primarily on civics the answer is civics if you if you believe in socialism communism you'll the path not that ralph does but the path is through civics is is working locally and taking on the moneyed interests uh this is to me this is an example of america's past and and how, as you talk about the fetishization of politics, sometimes we fetishize ideology and get nothing done. This is an example of just good civics. Absolutely. And I want to point out, I don't fetishize electoral politics. I say that there's an appropriate role for them and not but and we have to build mass movements and bluntly. Let's be clear, the public bank of North Dakota is an example of what happens when you have a broad-based mass movement of people making demands that then translates into electoral success to make legislation that makes people's lives better, right? Because remember, the public bank of North Dakota was actually part of the great populist uprising that swept this country. Uh, for 20 to 30 years uh, as a result of hard scrabble dirt farmers. And by the way, credit unions, uh, uh, grain cooperatives, uh, they had a sub-treasury plan uh, for the federal government. The populist uprising, by the way, led by U.S. Senator Robert La Follette from Wisconsin, speaking of, let's bring Tom Nelson back, because Tom Nelson sounds like this generation's fighting Bob La Follette to me. All to say, what you're seeing is the beginning of a true mass movement of people, not, well, look, ideologically, 
I can tell you, I talk to conservatives right now and can get them excited about public banking because it's good public policy. And that's what I think Debbie is sort of pointing at whenever she lifts up correctly the public bank of North Dakota and all it has done. I wanna make sure, because I know that we only have a limited amount of time, Debbie, we gotta have you talk about how close you are in East Bay and Oakland, California. So, so in the East Bay group, which I'm one of, David said something about how I am close to opening a public bank. I wanna make it very clear that it's a big, robust team. It's not me, but I am part of it. And we have reason to believe if no, if you know anything can happen, but we expect to be able to open our doors in 2023, ideally just about a year from today. Um, and we're well on our way. This will not be for regular civilians. No, no it's, no, it's not a retail bank. It's a wholesale bank for the county of Alameda, where I live, and the city's at least of Oakland, Berkeley, and Richmond. And we really think it can happen. Right. Does anybody like their bank? I like Does my credit you... I like my credit union. Okay. But nobody likes Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase. Nobody likes Wells Fargo. Now, if you live in San Francisco, you know that the Bank of America building has a big obsidian sculpture in its plaza, which is known as the Banker's Heart, a big black sculpture, roughly the shape of, a, of an anatomical heart. Right. So we, we hate our banks. We hate Wall Street. We hate corporations. We hate our, we hate our bosses. We hate our healthcare system. We hate our Congress, not necessarily our congressperson. And we just roll over and we just hate and do nothing. Well, except, not for, you. Ex except for David and me. Yeah, except for you guys. <laughs> Yeah, I know one of the reasons I got into this was I, when Trump was elected, I knew that I had to be building something. If I was just going to be resisting for the rest of my natural life, I was going to want to jump out a window. But making something, making something that people will not hate is so gratifying. Right. Now, By the way, go ahead. I believe it was Bank of America last week was asked to divest itself from fossil fuel investments and they refused. They had a vote and the CEO of Bank of America said, well, we don't think it's good for the economy to uh, suddenly transition from fossil fuels to alternative energy. And somebody at the shareholders meeting said, we're not asking Bank of America to transition our economy from fossil fuels to alternative energy. We're asking you not to invest our money into fossil fuels. We're asking you not to make it profitable for fossil fuels. These, these requests come up at every big bank shareholder meeting and they get more and more traction every year. But really getting the damn money out of their hands and into the hands of people who won't invest in fossil fuels will work better. Mm -hmm. 
But will you come back? I'd be thrilled to come back. Uh, Harriet Fraud, Dr. Harriet Fraud is joining us. Do you have any anything to say about public banking and our guests, Debbie Notkin and, and David Cobb? Well, you have to unmute yourself. Let me unmute you. Sorry. Hang on, hang on, hang on. It's very, very important because the banks have been behind every depression we've ever had. And they keep feeding off of the, you know, the drained corpse of what's left of America. It's terrible. And so, of course, the, you know, in the uh, 2007 recession, for which the banks were responsible, selling those subprime mortgages and bundling them and reselling them, Obama bailed them out and they used that money to, to lobby and make sure they're totally unaccountable. And Glass-Steagall was uh, suspended by Clinton. It's a disaster. Of course, public banking is needed. It goes without saying. David, you have the best guests. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> you don't need to tell me. Do you remember we bailed out the banks in 2008, and that Christmas, they took billions of our tax dollars and what did the banks do with it bonuses to themselves the the rat bastards that's exactly what they did they I'm used like, our tax absolutely. dollars they yeah, used they our tax dollars yep to pay bonuses and what did they what did they what did they I'm do sorry? in 2020 they took the in 2020 they took the paycheck protect Paycheck Protection Act money and gave it to their biggest, richest customers instead of the people who needed it, and sometimes to themselves. Right. And we didn't follow the example of Iceland and Finland and nationalize the banks and put the worst banksters in jail where they belong. Really? Yes. Right. Well, thank you, Debbie Notkin. Please come back. David Cobb, please come back. How can people contact you and find out more about public banking? I just put a couple of URLs in the chat. Um, maybe David will add one or two. But basically, well, for this our is. Listeners. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So the Public Bank East Bay Group, which is the, the group that I uh, chair that it hopes to open a bank next year. We're at publicbankeastbay.org, O-R-G. And the other uh, thing, other place you might want to look is californiapublicbankingalliance.org, which is how David and I met each other and the place where we most commonly work together. Stunning. Please come back. David, how can people reach you? My pleasure. Well, thank you. Uh, the easiest place to, to reach me is on Facebook. I'm David Keith Cobb there. A big shout out to those of you who have already reached out to me. It's been uh, great uh, getting in touch with Feldo listeners and supporters there. You can also uh, check me out at the Weot Tribe, W-I-Y-O-T dot U-S under the Dishkama Community Land Trust. Fantastic. Well, when we come back, we will be talking to Dr. Harriet Fraud. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Some new music from Professor Mike Steinel.
by the great professor Mike Steinow. Well, let's go back to New York where Professor Prof. Dr. Harriet Fraud is standing by. She is the host of It's Not Just in Your Head and Capitalism Hits Home. And every Wednesday at 2.30, you can listen to her on WBAI Pacifica Radio. Welcome back, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're running. Okay. Look, I, I do the It's Not Just in Your Head with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro. So they do it too, just to add that. But here I am and glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. I want to talk about sexism, misogyny, and how the LGBTQ victimizes uh, protected classes, people who need to be protected specifically from Republicans. But I had some time. Uh, I was in the country over the weekend and I thought, well, you know, all I do is talk about how bad this country is. But you meet people and some of them probably don't agree with me on most things. We get along. Nobody's, you know, I'm, I'm white. It's easier for me. But, you know, you get out of the city, it's not as bad as I painted to be. But it's not our job to tell people how great things are, is it? No because we want to show, galvanize people to action against the wrongs that exist. Right. They're, they're mainstream media and our politicians rather wave the flag and say, you know, what happened that, that what, when that Jones strike killed 15 people, that's not who we are. We're a good people. We're a good, we don't need our leaders or our media to tell us how good we are. We could figure that out on our own. Yes, we, I don't, we don't need the constant hype, which comes from advertising as well as the government. We don't need that. What we need to do is face the problems, know our strengths, and deal with the problems rather than deny them through celebration. Mm -hmm. The greatest, the greatest, the greatest, forget it. The people, Ronald Reagan would tell us it's morning in America and what a great country we are, and he would make it worse. The people who yeah. flatter you are stealing from you. The people who okay. wave the flag and tell us how much they love America are stealing. They're stealing. They're using patriotism and the Bible as the narcotic. So we're asleep when they steal from us. Well, let's talk about the right wing, which is getting worse and worse. Let me play you a clip of a Senator Neely from Tennessee who wants to fine homeless people $50. His name is Senator Tyson. Right. Mm -hmm. They have no money, so you're going to get fined $50 for not having any money. It's kind of like Chase, when I don't have enough money in my checking account, fine. they charge me for not having money. Right. This, is, this is, I want your reaction to Senator Nicely from Tennessee. Uh, this is just when you think they can't get any worse, 
or stupider. I'll give you a little history on homelessness. 1910, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with and then went on to lead a life that's got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life. Uh, and he didn't resign. He didn't check himself into rehab. He is still trying to pass the bill to find the homeless uh, $50 for being homeless. Have you in your life ever seen this level of depravity? No, I haven't. But I never lived through a Trump. I lived through a much more hopeful period of the United States. The 60s, the 70s, when America emerged from World War II as the king of the world, and where they hadn't yet outsourced, robotized, and um, mechanized and replaced workers' jobs. But it was a period where gender was more stable. And I think one of the things that has happened, here he's trying to find the, the homeless. A lot of right-wing energy is going into defining gender as biology. And if you say that biology is destiny, well, then what are gays? People who are denying destiny? And what are transgender people? so that you automatically eliminate people. And I think in America is now failing. We are not the king of the world. America is so afraid of China and China and Russia in alliance that we're organizing it so millions are displaced and thousands are killed in the Ukraine. Whoa, things are very bad into, you know, geopolitically for us. And our economy isn't growing like China's is. And so we're in bad shape. And there's a different ways of dealing with that. And I think one way is to turn against poor people as if there's some plot, which um, Senator Neely is doing. And to some extent, our mayor Adams is doing as he tears down people's tents and has cops take their belongings and offers them shelters which they won't go into because they get robbed and sexually molested. And or COVID. Because so, they're all, and get COVID, because they're all in bunk beds. And they won't take over the empty hotels and give everybody their own room and bathroom and have social spaces. So, you know, what they've done is try to turn people's anger from their immiseration, from the fact that 60% don't have $400 in the case of the worst emergency. And people are dying younger and are plagued with suicide and homicides are, and shootings are going through the roof. The country's in trouble. And instead, they say the problem is gender. And I think they can do that because at the same time as America the wealthiest Americans started exporting jobs to China, outsourcing well-paid, often unionized jobs to China. Women had to pour into the workforce to compensate for absent male wages and try to keep their families afloat. And the gender balance changed. 
And with the gender, with women's work outside the home, they weren't full-time slaves for women, for men and full-time servants. You know, I'm sure you remember the joke, there's a handy little thing called a wife. You screw it on the bed, it does all the housework and the childcare, hey. So, you know, there were gender changes and now the majority of women are single by choice and don't wanna work outside the home, then come inside the home, do all the housework, the childcare, the social connection, the emotional connection and provide sex, it's too much. And so the gender balance has changed and also made room for people who aren't binary, who don't want to be either male or female in a stereotyped way, but wanna find their own way or change their physical appearance. Cause after all, Gender is a set of meanings attached to a physical difference. And they are Say that again, please. Gender is only the, the intellectual meanings attached to a physical difference at birth. Different genitals, which have no meaning in and of themselves. The biggest and most thorough study of that is a, a big fat book called gender about you know, all the, the research that there are no innate differences between men and women except for genital differences. And also nobody's created a society that has no reference to meanings. And so no one knows actually if there could be any differences, but we know how people are, are um, socialized between one and a half and three years old Children form a permanent gender identification. And that happens because the second they're hot out of the womb, they say, oh, isn't she beautiful or what a bruiser, you know, then they wrap them in the pink or blue blankets and people start relating to them differently. And so they are socialized into a gendered system of expectations and definitions. And those are breaking down to some extent. And the Republicans have decided that the problems are, of our society are because people with the wrong genital are in the bathroom doing their crapping or whatever with the door closed. It's so far-fetched, but people have so much free-floating fear and rage that there's a guy who shoots people who stand, who stand up for being transgender or gay. Mm -hmm. And he shoots nursery school teachers who talk about gender. It's, you know, they are, part of it is in psychology, we have something called displacement. Displacement is you have a feeling you can't accept, so you direct it towards an acceptable goal that's deemed acceptable. So if you're angry that the boss has mistreated you, you come home and smack your wife or your kid because you have that right. anger. And they have, subs they have given people gender identity and changes in gender identification, what it means to be a male or female and gender possibilities to be transgender, to change your gender to love and feel attracted to people of the same sex. Right. Or have no sexual attraction or whatever. That they have 
projected their fury at their displaced position financially and in ev- and for men as the superior gender onto attacking people for gender changes in what has happened. And so, so I just want to say one more thing, then I'll shut up for a while because I am. I, I, I want to ask you more questions about this. But also the fascists need to divide the mass of working people that would otherwise and should otherwise unite against them. And so do the capitalists. They have a lot in common. And so they want to create divisions, divisions on the basis of color, that some people are superior to others because they're a different shade of pigment. They want to create sexual differences so men are superior to women. And women should work for men, and people of color should work for whites. And to separate us as a prevention from our uniting together in our own interest to make America a, a safe, kind, egalitarian country. Now I can be quiet for a bit. No, no, no. I, I'm fascinated. It's, uh, I just want to clarify some things that you've explained before. Dave Chappelle, in his last special, said gender is a fact. So what is the difference between gender and sexuality? That's important because sexuality is the genitals, hormones, and chromosomes with which you were born. That is your sex designation. Gender is the meanings that are deposited on those physical differences. So in matriarchal societies, the fact that you were born female meant that any child you had was cared for by your mother's line, your your brother, your sister, and they lived in and among your family. And that if you were a woman, you had the right, if you were with a man to, and you wanted to separate from him, to just leave his belongings outside the tent and that's it. Those were the meanings that went around with gender. Gender is social meanings. In Lapland, when they have certain jobs assigned with reindeer herds, certain jobs assigned to males and females. But if you're in a family that's all females, they decide a couple of them are males and then they live as males and even have females for wives. So they don't pay attention to they don't pay attention to your lap in Lapland. That's right. The physical lap is much is not as important as getting these jobs done. So generally so social. Okay, so help me out here, because this is something that I really don't think about, because it's not that I don't care. It's to me, you, you, I look at somebody who is a transgender person, and I think, how do we love them? How do we make sure they're safe? They have housing, mm-hmm. jobs, and they're safe from the cops, because the most dangerous people in the world for a transgender woman are the cops. Whole other story. Okay, so my if I can be sexually attracted, I, I'm a man who is sexually attracted 
to women, that would be my sexuality. That would be my biological urges that while they can be fluid and negotiable over time, depending on how much wine <laughs> I've been drinking or how long the prison stay is. But for the most part, I'm attracted to women and I identify as a man, but it is possible. And that would be my gender. I identify as a man. Right. Your meaning is for, for your sexuality is that you're attracted to women. I'm attracted to women, and I, but I've chosen to to label my gender as a man or my parents chose that. That's a societal that's construct. Right. That's right. It is. Okay. And so you are constructed and the whole society has conspired to construct you thus from the moment you were born. So they, the, the society said, David Feldman, male, believe it or not, you're a man. Right. Believe, I know it's hard for you to believe, but you're a man. And so I use the men's restroom and I dress like a man and I try to act like a man. And these are all societal dictates exactly you have learned that identification by the time you're three years old and they put um sensors on children and they notice that after three if they show them little films about girls and boys they identify more with the one they have been told they are and have been taught to do okay and so an 11 year old boy that we call a boy says, I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. Does that mean he or they, they, does that mean they, they say, I'm, you call me a boy, but I'm a girl. Does that mean they want to, they, they say they're a girl because they identify their gender. Email. Right. They identify with the behaviors and attitudes and interests that are labeled female in our society. And so often they want a gender change. They want to change their physical body to match their psychology. And their psychology is shaped. Their psychology is shaped by civilization, by the mold. Civilization, however, some people, for whatever autobiographical reasons, grow to identify much more with a different sex from the biological sex they resemble, and they want to transition and have their psychology max, uh, match their physiology. Okay. They become transgender. Okay, so help me. Okay, so help me out. So uh, I'm born attracted to women no you're born attracted to nobody you're born you're a baby okay you're a male and you're taught to be attracted to women and if women aren't around as in jails you know in prisons males become sexually attracted to other males because they're around okay so but then but but if you're gay you're born gay that's what well there is no real proof that it's chromosomally or hormonally determined or that it's all societally determined. But there are people who 
feel attracted to the same sex. And that usually happens as soon as people start having those attractions, about 11 or 12. And so um, they're attracted and they can become gay. They may want to be transgender. But we were told, I've been told that being gay is not a choice. You're born gay. That's right. There is a lot of dispute about that. And for a lot of people, it, uh, you are born gay. That isn't proven or disproven. Because the Republicans say it's a choice. And that if I just apply uh, these jumper cables hook up to a battery will make you choose. Different. That's right. Or they have conversion therapy often where the boys are raped by the guy who's leading it. Um, But they are told and they are so punished in their identification with being gay that they think that they'll, by torturing them, they'll be straightened out. Most states have banned that because it's nothing right. like torture. But uh, re- uh, reparative, what was it? Repar- reparative therapy. Oh, Is yeah. That it's called? Conversion therapy. And for, yeah. Transition therapy, where you transition from male genitals to female genitals. But I'm saying you can't, the idea of curing, like Project Exodus, you cannot ever cure quote unquote, somebody of their sexuality. No, you can't. Right. They may change. You know, some people are attracted to males then are attracted to females. Attraction is much more fluid now among young people who are much less frightened of being gay. Okay. And then the gender, you, you pick your gender. You should be free okay. to pick... You should be free to pick that, but you don't pick it if you're already being trained in a gender identity from the minute you're born. Right. Because they don't, so, the, the mother who just gave birth, it's a wonderfully healthy baby. They say, it's a boy, it's a girl, and start relating to you differently from then on. Right. And... So it is understandable that if you're a parent, because I don't understand this, and then suddenly you have an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old who's confused, and I'm confused, do we owe sympathy to the parents who struggle with this who think maybe everyone deserves compassion but if a child is identified as a different sex from that which his her or their organs show then you need to help that child feel comfortable in his body or her body or their body you have to because they have to live with themselves every second unless they kill themselves right right um and so uh, the idea of hormone treatments and... That uh, allows the body to change. Those treatments allow the body to have the physical appearance of the sex the person wants to be and feels he or she or they are. Right. 
But this is a but this is a decision that the child is making. Not That's it's not right. a biological. It's not well, their it's gender not a biological thing. They are choosing that because whatever autobiographical and chromosomal and hormonal changes that existed in their body are dictating that. There are children who have adrenal gland mis- malfunctions, which make their genitals look ambiguous. And then if they're brought up as one sex or gender, and then they're actually chromosomally another or hormonally another, they're often confused for the rest of their lives. Right. Because social humans are social animals, and the social meanings that we gather are the most important thing. And yet, people's autobiographies often have enormous differences and can affect those, they can affect those changes and those changes of identification. Right. So girls who are deprived of mother love may have been born homosexual or may have adopted, want to be physically intimate with women as a way of healing that loss. Okay. So Tucker Carlson, did you read any of the profile of him in the New York Times? No, I didn't. Well, as a hypnotherapist, a psychotherapist, as a doctor, I highly recommend. Here's some facts from the New York Times three-part series on the venal Tucker Carlson. At the age of seven, uh, his parents divorced. The father got custody of the mother, and he never saw her again. She moved to France, and he discovered that his mother wisely didn't love him, left him one dollar in his will. He's been tight-lipped about this up until recently. He's opened up and said that his mother gave him drugs at the age of eight or nine. This is the the New York Times reporting. The mother was addicted to him. I'm sorry? I thought his father got custody. The father got custody of the mother because the mother, according to Dr. Carlson, was taking amphetamines, drinking, smoking marijuana, and sharing her drugs with her children. She packed up and left when Tucker Carlson was eight, moved to France. He never saw his mother again. He openly admits that it was ugly, dysfunctional, and that his mother did not love him. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does that have to do with his politics, with the things he says? I think it has everything to do with it. I think it has something to do with it. I think he hates women, that's for sure. And he would like to see women controlled and our reproductive apparatus controlled as a way of, that really is a way of keeping women subordinate. Because an unwanted pregnancy means you, and illegal abortion means you either try to abort yourself and have a great chance of dying, or you have to live 
with someone who supports you because also you're discriminated against in employment. And so you go back to the kind of hierarchical domination of men over women that had existed in our nation and still does to some extent, but to less extent, and sexual control of women. Which okay, so is now, but still exists. A, a, a child who is put up for adoption at birth has to overcome a bit of a trauma knowing that. I mean, some some children who are put up for adoption are fine with it. Others desperately seek their birth mother because they feel, how could you not love me, even though your mother didn't know you? You're right. like, and even though at least they were chosen, those kids are accidents. Right. You know, uh, so you have adopted you have adopted children God bless them, who, you know, Laura House is on our show. She found her birth mother to, for closure and understanding and for a love that she couldn't get from her adopted parents. Not all adopted children need that. Then you have Tucker Carlson, who got to know his mother. She got to know him. And at the age of eight said, I don't like you. I'm going to France and I'm never going to see you again. That is exponentially more traumatic. That is as he was abandoned. He was abandoned, but I don't have know anything about his mother. However, she wasn't also all there. If she was on drugs all the time, she wasn't present. Because you're not. But you agree that he is a a. He's a, abandoned. He's abandoned. And traumatized. Yes, and, and probably did not get the psychological help he obviously badly needed. And so he's dead inside and and feels nothing and for others. And he hates women. Yes. Right. Wants to keep them subordinate and controlled. Right. And serving men. He would have liked his mother to stay and serve him. And leave. And because he's a Republican, a right winger who refuses to get help, he thinks about his mother hating him every day, every second of his life, whether he knows it or not. Maybe he does, or maybe he just feels abandoned. And maybe he feels a level of rage that comes to affix itself on right wing causes because he does feel abandoned. And in, in psychological terms, I think it's called being a piece of shit. Yes, I think that's, that's the technical term. Yeah, piece that his mother identified him as a piece of shit, and he is a piece of shit. And it's very sad when a child discovers that his mother's right and that he's a piece of shit. Also, look, the mother was in custody of her husband and utterly controlled by him. You know, the Britney Spears case really brought that up dramatically, what that means. And she had made the only way she felt she might have been free of his father and of being imprisoned is to leave. We don't know. We also know that she wasn't in her right mind if she was a jockey. So right. there's a lot we don't know, but we know he was abandoned. And right. that is a very lonely, terrible thing for children because 
children don't really differentiate themselves from their caretakers. And so when someone that important to you walks out, you feel hollow inside. It isn't like you feel they left, you feel a part of you left. And that's very lonesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm glad Tucker Carlson's mom made the right decision. I think she was right. Dr. Harriet Prod is the host of It's Not Just In Your Head, Capitalism Hits Home, and he has a show on WBAI here in New York City, 2.30 every Wednesday. That's right. How do people contact you? Well, they could go through my website, harrietfraud.com, or any of my podcasts, or go to hfraud at gmail.com. Fantastic. We'll see you next week. We love you. Thank you so much. This is a beautiful show. Bye, everybody. It is. It is. Let us now go. I don't know. Are we going to Brooklyn? Or are we going yeah, to Brooklyn? Are we in Brooklyn? Or Ethan yeah. Hershon? Yeah, hello. Hello, doctor. And hello, David. Hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, and on a Monday. Without, on a Monday. Uh, Without your father. I know. Normally, I hibernate between Thursday night and the following Thursday night. But here I am. What have you booked so far? What, what, what has been your, your most recent booking? Every time you come on the show. Well, Dave Cyrus uh, had dinner at Al Pacino's house. Wow. And I said to him, you're really starting to annoy me now. I was rooting yeah. for you. Until you told me that, that he was in, inside out. Yeah. So uh, tell me some good news. Well, I have an audition tomorrow night for the part of a, it's a, he's an aging rock star. Like, I an, can see like that. yeah. So I'm thinking I'm going to leave the beard was for the Hasidic guy today. We shot that, that scene, but I'm thinking I'm going to leave it. He has to talk oh, with Samuel L. Jackson. I did. I had a scene with him today. Yeah. Any pictures? I got you the selfie to prove it. The selfie, which I can't share until after the movie comes out. I, I promised Mr. Jackson that that's how I would roll, obeying the, the rules of the, of the producers. But, Was it um, as thrilling as you anticipated? As what? Was it as thrilling as you anticipated? You know, it was thrilling in certain ways. It's always fun to work, and it was so cool in certain ways. And then also it was a very choppy day because the scene was just quite a bit of yelling, not a hell of a lot happening, and then also a lot of technical stuff with, like, exactly where where the director wanted my shoulder to be in relation to the, another actor's shoulder in relation to samuel jackson's head you know you can, right. you can spend a lot of time depending on how you're working just on little things like that and so it becomes a little bit like uh being a mannequin um and then suddenly their a- action and you have to turn it on and it was it was uh it was challenging but it was it was cool it was fun but it was, it was getting, i could see getting deep in, you know just standing there my mind wandering yeah. and just losing it yeah yeah, you you can it's yeah you gotta stay focused because then suddenly yeah you're talking about something else or you're thinking about something else and then bang you have to jump right back into it so it's um but it was cool also, Murray, was, oh yeah filmer yeah. reportedly threw a paperweight at Richard Dreyfus's skull while making what about Bob one of my favorite movies. Bill Murray physically threatened 
Richard Dreyfus got in his face. He said, you are not appreciated. And they had a higher security to keep Bill Murray away from Richard Dreyfus while they made one of my favorite movies. What about, about a psychiatrist and his crazy patient, Bill yeah. Murray? Yeah. I'm not defending Bill Murray's behavior. So you see, sometimes what happens in the retelling of these stories is things get exaggerated. So I think maybe he threw a paper clip. <laughs> And then over a few retellings, it's a paperweight, and it's a very different story between a paper. It's like we had a great grand, a great grand. My dad had a great uncle, call him Murray. He was a cab driver in New York City, maybe in the twenties. The family lore is that he once stuck his head out the window, uh, and he got hit by a by a streetcar and died. That's the story. But I think he just one day at work he had a headache. <laughs> And over, over a few generations. So, you know, I don't know if I believe that thing about Bill Murray. It's hard to imagine him being violent, but who the hell knows? Here's something interesting. Whenever you hear someone defending someone else and they say, oh, I never saw him do that. It's the most idiotic defense because we all, until those moments when we behave like freaking maniacs, we don't behave like freaking maniacs. Right. I heard Trump coming to the defense of some candidate the other day saying those accusations against him are false. What are you talking about? You have no idea what he does. You don't know the guy. The, the bull semen entrepreneur. Yeah. Who, yeah, uh, so, so, yeah, come to think of it, Bill Murray probably did throw a paperweight at, at Dreyfus's head. By the way, it was done in front of Richard Dreyfus's five-year-old son who later was groped by Kevin Spacey right in front of Richard Dreyfus. Wow. Children should not be like on a set or around. It's bad enough. Yeah. I mean, if it's you're, you're Richard Dreyfus's son and you've been exposed to this, imagine if you're a child actor working for Disney, how dangerous it must be. And your yeah. dad is Richard Dreyfus. You know, that reminds me, I said something on the show on Thursday and I pointed to my dad and I said, you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to think there's something going on here that these Republicans are so obsessed with this idea of grooming. But then I was thinking about it. I don't know what that means. It, it doesn't mean that they're actually pedophiles. It means I, I think that maybe they, it is just incredibly cynical and they, they're, they've somehow decided that they can get away with making this accusation, this outrageous accusation. Anyhow, father uh, and you watch. What about Bob? Did you have anything like that growing <laughs> up? One of my favorite. Oh, no, I never had anything. I didn't have anything like that growing that I know of. But I did. I think I had a reverse. What about Bob? Because once I was leaving the house, going to school, and the cat was out of the house, and I for just a couple of years, my dad had an office at the house up there in the Bronx. So I didn't know what to do with the cat. I had to get to the school bus and I took the cat and I threw it in the waiting room of his office. And my dad's allergic to cats. And I have the cat out. So later in the day, so I don't know what that is, but I was, uh, that didn't help. I wasn't helping. Yeah. So what is your diagnosis about Tucker Carlson? We were talking. Did you read the piece in the New York Times? I didn't read it. I, I kept seeing it, and I was attracted to reading it. But I also I have an allergy to that guy. Like uh, I His find mother the whole thing. Hate. What's that? 
Oh, I heard you say that to Dr. Fraud. Yeah. Well, that's okay. That's again. That's something he says. We don't know. We don't have his mother's side of the story. Again, maybe she once scolded him and he has such a thin skin. He turned it into my mother hates me. Well, he never after the age of eight, he never saw her again. Right. Hmm. Does that make you happy? I'm, I'm happy that he's unhappy. That he's got I don't know. I, I can see him. why you would be, and it makes sense in a way to be. On the other hand, it doesn't help the world or it doesn't help matters that he has his own misery. Because you'd hope that, that his misery would open him up to the potential misery he's causing in others. But it doesn't. He seems like such a hateful, just horrendous creature. Um, so, I, I don't know. The thing, that's the problem with, you know, if you're religious and you believe that that in the world to come, you'll get your, you get your just desserts. That's, that's very comforting. But then if you're not religious and you don't have the comfort of that story, I guess maybe it is then natural to say, okay, he better get his just desserts right now in the form of his yeah. mother hating him. But he seems fine. I, he seems like he's doing fine. I don't know. Um, but I should read the article. Well, just to see how effed up his childhood was and how, how can you not separate uh, somebody who was abandoned by his mother, who, who pretty much signaled, I hate you, Tucker, and his fascistic beliefs? Isn't that just, isn't that the seeds of his hateful ideology? Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking that would certainly sow the seeds of some sort of hateful look at the world. Does it necessarily have to come out as fascistic? I don't know. I feel like you, you'd express your hatefulness in many ways, but maybe not. Maybe politically that is the apotheosis of hateful, hateful politics. I guess, I guess it is. Um, Hitler, Hitler hated his father and was very protective of his mother. He hated his dad because his dad was named Alwa. I mean, if you remember your dad was named Alwa. I mean, what kind, what kind of a name is that? That's like a, some people, some people have a face you want to punch. That's a name you want to punch. Alwa. That's a terrible, that's a terrible name. Plus, they're in Austria and he has this French name. That's just embarrassing. Everyone else's name is like Horst and Friedrich and he's Alwa. It's embarrassing. At the PTA, at Parent Teachers Night, this is my dad, Alwa. Jesus. I mean, that's infuriating. So. Yeah. Now, would you kill baby Hitler if you could get into a time machine? Would you kill baby Hitler? You know, I read the book. Stephen Fry wrote that book. Stephen Fry, that amazing like monologue guy and writer and actor, that that incredible guy. He wrote a in the end of the nineties. He wrote a, a sci-fi novel. I read it, and it's about a guy who goes, a guy who studies physics at Princeton, makes a time machine, and I think goes back and poisons the well in Alois village. So then <laughs> Alois is never born. I guess that's how I know his damn name. Um, I think it then. Well, that's a that's veiled anti-Semitism on Stephen Fry's part. Doing a little well poisoning. Oh. <laughs> right, he could have chosen any. You're right. He could have chosen any way to off Alwa, and he went with the well. You're right. Yeah. Wow. But um, yeah, I guess that would be a, a good a good. I don't know. Isn't that funny? That. You'd think it's Somebody a cut and dry. We had a competition 
at office hours about three months ago while watching a Twilight Zone episode, the chat room, we were coming up with baby, killing baby Hitler jokes. <laughs> and somebody said, and I, I, I think it might have been Dave Amy, I don't know, said, I wouldn't kill baby Hitler. I would raise him, nurture him, bring him up in a loving and caring family. And then when he turned 18, then I'd kill him. That's that's uh, proper answer. Kill him. Yeah. But I thought I liked where he was going with that. I thought he was going to go with then by doing that, by raising him in that different way, the, the outcome, you wouldn't have to kill him. You just have to love him. I have no idea. I, I Who the hell knows? Yeah. But, um, you know, he... Uh, he had it rough. He he had, he ended up committing suicide in a bunker. I was thinking about the that the other day with Paul Auster's son. Paul Auster was one of my top five or ten favorite novelists. His son, who was addicted to some bad stuff, accidentally apparently killed his own baby because he woke, you know he went to sleep and the baby got some fentanyl on him and died from fentanyl. And then a few weeks later. Uh, Paul Oster's son, the father of that baby, killed himself with a, an overdose. And, you know, I was talking with someone about, you know, what's criminal there and what's unacceptable behavior by that guy, by that, because he also was involved, that, that son of Paul Oster was also involved in some death of a drug dealer 20 years earlier, although not, not indicted. But I, my main thought was how mis how his life is just over. It's just horrible. What horrible depths, knowing that he had been involved in the death of his own child, and then all that was left to him was to OD in a in a in a train station. It's just the most horrible, sad thing in the world. I'm not saying that I feel bad for Hitler, but he, he, how did he end in a bunker, killing himself and all these people around him? You know, he didn't. It didn't. Things didn't turn out well for him. Do you think he ever compromised when it, once he became Fuhrer? Do yeah. you think people, do you think there was somebody like a, a, a Mr. Fixit who would say, wait, I can speak to him, hang on. And then he would go like a, a, an Adolf whisperer. So you mean where, are you asking if he had a sense of that he, he could be even better at what he was doing? Like he had a coach? No, like Ava, he humiliated Ava at the Berktisch Garden. Okay. And she says there's no talking to him. Do you think there was a Hitler oh. whisperer? Oh, that there was, was someone who had it. Yeah. Who had someone. someone who did or who could have? Yeah, that he actually had some, somebody. I have no idea. Was, wasn't Albert Speer, wasn't he supposed to, like his architect, supposed to be? They were apparently pretty close. Um he could reason with Hitler. You're yeah, saying right. somebody could reason with Hitler. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Look, what I am saying, and I don't want to offend anybody, he was very good at what he did, but then he wasn't good enough. I mean, he had a project, he got pretty far with it, and uh, in the end, he couldn't, he couldn't get it over the finish line. Thank goodness, but you know. He, he must have had some emotional IQ, Hitler, to keep the bureaucracy going to have people believe in him there must have been some empathy on his part otherwise people would say there's no reasoning with him he's i, I don't monster. know 
Yeah, I think he was a monster. But the interesting thing, if you look at his career, he was hit. He began as Hiddle, and then he was Hitler. He never became Hitlest. <laughs> <laughs> Did he make up Schickel? He was from Schickel Gruber, right? I don't know. I heard you talking about that the other day on it, and certainly I've heard that. I've heard that in some songs and jokes about him. Uh, but yeah, I don't know whether. <laughs> Who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich? Shire, right? Yep. And that that Hitler did pick his last name. And that I think it's Shire who said that had he picked, had he stuck with Hitler instead of Hitler? Oh. It never, that there was something about the name Hitler. Let me play you my favorite clip of the day. Senator Nicely from Tennessee, he's a state senator, who's fining homeless people $50 for being homeless. Well, that should help. That, that should like help. A, that sounds like a solution. And and he and he's here's where he draws his inspiration from. I want to give you a little history on homelessness. 1910, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with and then went on to lead a life that's got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life. Um, oh, my God. Oy vey. A productive life. What is that? What is he? He's District 8 of, 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 of the Sudetenland. What, what state is this guy in? I, I have no idea, but... Wow, we are we are we are living in a wow. This is dystopia. Are there supposed to be consequences for saying something like that, even if you're a Republican? Apparently not. Not anymore. Wow. Hello to whoever just tuned on. Hi. Well, uh, what, so what what did you want to talk about tonight? Ich ich. Yeah. Well, here's a thing that came up today. I had a question about basically I think I think it's been discussed but I was there today dressed as a Hasidic guy on this movie right. and I had a moment when I saw another line that referred to my character and the other guy in a certain way and I thought am I engaging essentially in blackface here like it was very uncomfortable I make jokes on the subject. I, I like, I love the Yiddish language. I, I don't shy away from embracing that I'm Jewish and doing those kind of roles. This was the first time I had the pay, the payas and the hat and the whole thing. And I thought, you know, time will tell. When we see the result, we'll see what, what it was and what it wasn't. But part of me was rebelling against the whole thing. I thought, I got to just get back in my car and get the hell out of here and not put this on film. So it's just an interesting feeling. They made you do this. No, no one made me. I auditioned for a role, and the role is for a, Hasid, a guy who's Hasidic. So I. You're not allowed to talk about it, but is it a a negative portrayal of Hasidim? I mean, I, we're not allowed. I can't see them, yeah. so no. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't get into it in any great detail. Not, not nothing especially, uh, uh, but it was it, it was just. Uh, but you're right. Of course, that's what it's about. It's about how it's portrayed. It's not just about putting on a because Mel Brooks put that outfit on in all sorts of contexts, and it's it's just for laughs. So, 
Um, Let me ask you a question. Any, no. It's a major motion picture. Um, I think it is. Yeah. Emil L. Jackson. Yeah. It's Union. Yeah. <laughs> it's not anti-Semitic then. <laughs> I just checked. Now, major motion picture. It's a good credit. You're going to make a lot of money. It's not. No. Nothing wrong. We have no, to I, just get, I get I get scale on a thing like that. I just get a day, a regular day. But it, then if it's a big hit and a billion people see it, then I'm, what I'm hoping is it turns into like a cult. So someday in like 60 years, kids will gather at 6 p.m. I mean, at, at midnight uh, on Saturdays and watch it and know the lines by heart. And then they'll they'll mouth my, my lines and it'll just be a cult thing. So who the hell knows? What do you think it's before you go? Yeah. You think it's like to be somebody like Samuel L. Jackson and go to the mailbox every day with the residuals coming his way. He doesn't care, right? He's not even thinking about the like he can't he he doesn't get any tingle in his thigh when he opens up his mailbox, right? Oh, the t- I don't think he, oh, I don't know. He probably does get some tingle there. I, I think everyone who does their job and gets well paid for it probably gets some satisfaction from that. But I did see the second the camera was on and he was doing his lines, he, there's magic there. The, the level of just charisma and a knowledge through, I guess, 40 years of doing it, of knowing how to direct all of your psychic and emotional energy into the lens. I could feel, I, he, he, it was just, it was very, very funny. And the lines weren't super funny, but I was just like, oh, my God, that you can feel why someone is he's at that level. Um, and also, very interestingly, there was a moment when he got a, he got a note from someone from the production. So the person was going on in quite, quite a lot of detail. And then he had, his answer was like, essentially like, so do you want me to look there or look there? He was basically like, okay, let's just move it along. Like he's, he's, you know, such a pro and been at it so long. Like we can dispense with all the, it was cool. It was cool to see someone who's at that level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some people are just better than we are. And well, get <laughs> you know, bless God smiles. <laughs> the true pain of, of my existence is, there are many people who are more talented and better than i am and they get recognized and (laughs) they get everything they deserve there's no pain in that it's all we're all one everyone else's success is your success and their failures are your failures yes we're all lifted we're all in the same same ocean here we're all rising and falling together with samuel l jackson today we're all one we're all one yeah i was wearing a hasita outfit today and i gotta be honest with you i felt i was turning my back on my people i felt like forgive me my ancestors i felt forgive me but it's a gig forgive me it's a gig I wish I summoned the courage to say, take this job and shove it. Uh, I love you, buddy. Are we going to work on our project? We're going to work on that. And I have another one also, which is apropos of this. So thank you. And what do you uh, want to do? we're going to move it along. All right. All right.
Let's yeah. go to Dave PA, who is going to do some ASMR. Oh, wait, hang on. Thug Thug Jew on Thug YouTube. Thug Jew on YouTube and. Views and do you have? Say again. How many, how many views do you have on YouTube? Oh, it's at, it's like 61,000. When I say it's approaching a million, I mean from below slowly. But keep sharing it and it's heading towards a million. Whatever. It's just people should watch it and enjoy it. That's really cute, that little Ken doll in the shop. Oh, let me just say this. I have a May 17th at the Comic Strip, uh, a, a fundraiser for a foundation. May 14th up in Connecticut, Simsbury, Connecticut. May 14th, a fundraiser show. And June 18th, upstate New York. Those are some fundraising comedy shows I have for various foundations. So uh, send me a note if anyone's interested in coming along. Okay, fantastic. Toodaloo. Before we, before we go to Peter B. Collins, we're going to do some ASMR for the eyes while we're having the conversation, if that's okay with you, Dave and PA, very quickly. Hi, Dave. Are you? How are you? Good, uh, good. I'm going to be working on this walnut cabinet here. I'm going to be doing a dry run of the glue up, make sure everything fits properly, and a little bit of sanding. Uh, should take a little about a half an hour. So that's it. Okay. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll watch you, and uh, let me mute you. Well. That's our ASMR for the eyes. Let us now go to Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, Peter B. Collins, and you have a very special guest and a somewhat uh, terrifying subject for all of us. Thank you, David. Indeed, we have a, a problem to face that independent media outlets in this country are being unfairly and arbitrarily denied the free flow of donations from their viewers, readers, users. And there is a pattern that is developing. Uh, Joe Loria, who is the editor-in-chief at Consortium News, may be able to join us uh, before the end of this segment. He okay. is traveling offshore somewhere, and I woke him up. <laughs> and uh, he, he does hope to join us, but over the weekend, Consortium News was notified by PayPal that uh, it has been cut off from payments that are sent by uh, users of Consortium News. And this, of course, is the website that was started by Robert Perry, the late investigative journalist who helped exposed, uh, expose Iran-Contra, and he never stopped. Uh, his, his work continued until his death including his uh, uh, very clear skepticism of the emerging Russiagate scandal. Uh, Joe Laria is a longtime journalist, wrote for the Times of London, for uh, the Wall Street Journal and other corporate media outlets before he became the editor-in-chief there. So uh, I hope he will be able to join us. But the first canary in the proverbial coal mine, uh, at least recently, has been Mint Press News. And this is a scrappy independent media outlet that I have the highest regard for. Uh, Manar Adley joins us. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. And she got the same kind of a notice from PayPal recently. Manar, thanks for being with us on the David Feldman podcast. And thank you for interrupting your Eid celebration to join us to talk about this very important topic. And I believe you're muted, Manar. 
Oh, that's our agreement with PayPal. <laughs> can, can, uh, can you hear us? Can you hear me? Sorry, I did unmute myself. Now you're there, Menar. Oh, okay, I, I apologize. That was my microphone. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you for doing And before we talk about this crackdown on uh, independent media in this country, uh, I'd just like to note that I have been following Mint Press News for years, and the uh, coverage that you provide is an important antidote to the failures of our corporate media services in this country. And I want to single out your courageous publication of Whitney Webb's uh, exposés on Jeffrey Epstein before uh, he checked out uh, while he was in uh, a jail in New York. Uh, and it, it not just exposed his uh, sexual predation patterns, but his deep ties to the state of Israel, to the Mossad, and that his relationship with G. Lane Maxwell was a significant part of his relationship with the interests of Israel and with rich Americans who have been uh, strong supporters of the Zionist movement in that country. And that's just one example. Uh, yeah. Almost every day, there is an important story at Mint Press News that either adds important context and dimension to corporate news coverage, or it contradicts the lies that we are being fed. So uh, know that I, I have a great deal of respect for your work, and I want Ms. Mint Press to continue. And this cutoff by PayPal occurred just as you were launching uh, a new initiative with my friend Mickey Huff. I, I met you at a Project Censored event back in the aughts somewhere, Menar. And you have teamed up with him at Project Censored at Sonoma State University. And you're starting to raise six-figure amounts at a time when PayPal has decided that you don't deserve to be able to receive money from your readers to support your work. That's right. And, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, when when WikiLeaks uh, was blocked from receiving donations from PayPal, that basically became the blueprint uh, for today's censorship of dissenting voices. And we have to remember that, you know, in 2012, an, uh, an EU parliamentary resolution criticized providers like PayPal uh, for this kind of arbitrary economic censorship. So we're certainly not the first, but um, this really does set a very dangerous precedent for uh, independent journalism and journalists who have been at the forefront, as you mentioned, um, and exposing the dangers of the national security state, and looking at uh, the deep, the deep state, uh, the ties between Israel and our think tanks and our politicians. So PayPal banning myself and Mint Press is absolutely blatant censorship of dissenting journalists um, and outlets. I mean, if you look at our coverage for the past decade, we've been at the forefront unapologetically working as a watchdog journalism outlet, exposing the profiteers of the permanent war state. Uh, from the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, to apartheid Israel's occupation of Palestine and Saudi Arabia's uh, genocidal war in Yemen, to the many regime change operations um, in Syria, in Ukraine, and Venezuela, where weapons have been flooding these nations to plunge them into devastating civil wars. And it's these think tanks and these figures, these billionaires, 
um, these special interest groups that are deeply entwined with big tech that are at the forefront of ensuring that they uh, prevent any sort of critical thinking and any sort of alternative narrative uh, that challenges their permanent war state. And I believe that is exactly why uh, WikiLeaks was first targeted and we are now being targeted along with Consortium News and other really uh, incredible investigative journalists. And, and Manar, uh, this is not the first whack at your uh, independence because uh, we know that Google and Facebook uh, about, has it been three, three and a half years ago now? Uh, they changed their algorithms and they specifically targeted uh, progressive independent media. And you took a big hit. Uh, I was doing a daily podcast at the time. Uh, my uh, organic audience, so I, I had subscribers, regular listeners, uh, they were not affected. But the uh, search-related listeners, people who searched for a topic, I did a lot of coverage of Guantanamo. And so you enter Guantanamo, and you'd see a couple of episodes of the Peter B. Collins podcast. Well, my traffic from search dropped uh, dramatically. Yeah. And so I know that the articles and, and uh, the complaints that you made at that time were accurate. Consortium News had the same issue. And a lot of this comes from, in my view, uh, the, the old saw, first they came for Alex Jones. But right. I wasn't Alex Jones, so I didn't care. I didn't stand up for his right to post and publish whatever he wants to do. And we now see this, this phony controversy playing out as Elon Musk uh, is threatening to take over Twitter. It could be a pump and dump, and this might be a, a story that's dead a month from now. But uh, the right wing is elated. They think that uh, he's going to give them unfettered speech rights. And these same people are demanding that he fire uh, the entire staff of Twitter because it showed that people who work at Twitter who did make political contributions uh, overwhelmingly favored the Democrats. So we are hearing these false cries for free speech at a time when speech is being suppressed in a brutal and arbitrary manner, and you are a target of it. That's right, and we have to remember that Elon Musk, along with Peter Thiel, and Pierre Omidyar are three billionaires that founded PayPal. And so uh, PayPal has been engaging in economic, um, you know, financial uh, sanctions against not just journalists here uh, in this country, but also, you know, engage in the U.S. sanctions, you know, warfare against countries like Russia, Iran, and uh, Zimbabwe and Cuba and Venezuela and others where the United States is trying to starve those countries. But, um, you know, in an era of a declining U.S. empire, censorship has become the last resort of an unpopular regime and its forever wars to make the truth disappear and critical thinking um, all but dead. And so we have to remember that, you know, first they came for Alex Jones and we were actually as an independent nonpartisan news outlet, we actually sounded the alarm at that time and said, hey, guys, you know, the censorship of Alex Jones and people on the far right 
is only going to set a way, it's only going to set a precedent for um, censorship for people on the left and other dissenting uh, journalists and voices. And so during the 2016 elections, we saw this wave of calls for cracking down on so-called fake news, uh, Russian disinformation, Iranian disinformation, you know, foreign meddling, you know, Russiagate, all of that. And we knew from the very beginning of that, that these big tech monopolies were now partnering up with uh, figures within the Democratic Party, the Hillary Clinton camp, uh, pro-Israel groups, um, think tanks that are funded directly by NATO, like the Atlantic Council, which is also funded by the apartheid state of Israel. It receives funding from the despotic regime of Saudi Arabia that's engaging in a genocide um, in Yemen. And also it's funded by weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin um, and Raytheon. And if you look at the board of any of these think tanks that have partnered up with um, these big tech giants, I mean, we've got people like Henry Kissinger, Susan Rice, uh, Samantha Powers, like these people. And then also people from the Bush era, uh, the, the Bush era crazies that brought us the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there's definitely a major conflict of interest um, in these partnerships. But we have been since then, since 2016, sounding the alarm saying that this is not good. We should not be. Um, supporting any sort of censorship because we knew at that time that down yeah. the road, this kind of censorship that was um, targeting the right was only going to be used as a precedent to start cracking down on dissent. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And when they went after Julian Assange, that was also, um, you know, a precedent that was being set that we're seeing now that's going to be taking place against all of us. And Menar, I recall, I, I believe it was right after the 2016 election, the Washington Post published uh, a, a lengthy piece that attacked media outlets. And it was based on a murky, uh, dark money group that had decided they were the arbiters of what was acceptable discourse. Yeah. And uh, this is part and parcel of a whole pattern that we have seen uh, coming on like a freight train for a number of years now, where the corporate media does not do anything to defend the rights of expression of people who are outside of their advertiser-supported big money milieu. And this is a very dangerous pattern, but we uh, the people who populate corporate media outlets to recognize this threat at all, because, hey, their access hasn't been interrupted. Their ability to publish uh, stenographic uh, type articles based on official sources at the Pentagon is not affected. And this comes into sharp relief now as we look at the coverage of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And I want to recommend to uh, David's listeners here and I, I just picked two because uh, there are many other great pieces. But at Consortium News, published April 29th, Natalie Baldwin interviewed an uh, academic named Olga Baisha. And she was a journalist in Ukraine. She describes herself as a Ukrainian, uh, you know, leaning person who lived in uh, Kharkiv. 
And uh, she has a very important set of views that people need to understand. And let me just tick off a few things that uh, before the invasion by Russia, a year before, Vladimir Zelensky, who is seen as this great small-D Democrat and a champion of liberty and freedom, he shut down three media outlets that were critical of his country. He uh, flipped on almost every issue that he ran on when he won 72% of the vote, like land reform and other populist measures. He had rejected the imposition of Ukrainian language requirement that was imposed under Petro Poroshenko, his immediate successor, and the man who was installed uh, with U.S. help after the Yanukovych coup in 2014. Zelensky has a, uh, a, a covert group that disciplines and in some cases is accused of executing people who have been critical of the Zelensky government. There is an enemies list uh, that is referred to as the, it's the peacemaker list, Mirovoritz in Ukrainian. And this is like Nixon's enemy list, enemies list, which was only sicking the IRS on people, but this is leading to death threats and actual execution of opponents of Zelensky. And then I want to cite Dan Cohen's piece at your outlet at Mint Press News dated April 14th, I think here. And uh, he adds dimension to the piece I just referenced at, at Consortium News by putting a face on it. A Ukrainian opposition figure who had helped Zelensky get elected. His name is Anatoly Shari. He started his own political party. And he is now being subject to death threats that are being relayed to him from uh, former allies. So these are important issues that not a word has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or broadcast on any American cable outlet. And this is being suppressed by cutting off the funding for Mint Press, Consortium News, by disappearing the video uh, archives, <laughs> of uh, Lee Camp, of Abby Martin, of Chris Hedges from YouTube. And so this is a very serious and severe crackdown. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy we can share this with the audience of David Feldman's podcast, but it's not going to be covered in the major media unless I'm wrong. Well, we have a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, website, the Washington Post that you mentioned uh, from the very at the very beginning of what you were just talking about here, when they published a proper knots list of uh, websites that were to be blacklisted. And I just want to go off of your point that um, according to this you know, article that went viral, any website or journalist who criticizes Obama, who criticizes Hillary Clinton, or any of the Clintons, or NATO, or even expresses critical analysis of the mainstream media, or even expresses worry about a nuclear war with Russia, is subject to being blacklisted by proper not. And we just have to remember that, you know, we can't expect the mainstream corporate media to provide us any sort of 
uh, critical coverage of the war in Ukraine or any of these forever wars that I listed at the very beginning from Iraq to Afghanistan to even Israel's occupation of Palestine or NATO or AFRICOM or any sort of modern day colonialism that's being perpetrated by the West because um, you know these websites, these news outlets have basically become stenographers for the national security state. If you look at Proper Not, which is really the one that went viral, um, you know, a couple of years after, you know, when it first came out, Proper Not was very mysterious, like you said. But actually, <laughs> we have come to now know that it was founded by Michael Wise, and he's a non-resident senior fellow of the NATO think tank, the Atlantic Council. And so we have now mainstream corporate media outlet that is a Pulitzer Prize winning outlet, the Washington Post, which by the way is owned by Jeff Bezos, right? By another billionaire, um, publishing like a PR piece for NATO. That's what it, I mean, that's what it is. And so NATO clearly has a vested interest in uh, Ukraine in turning it into uh, another proxy against Russia, which it already has basically turned into that. And so whatever these wars whatever these uh, conflicts and wars that the United States is going to be waging by proxy or directly, these media outlets from the New York Times, the Washington Post are never going to provide any sort of critical coverage. And of course, you know, independent media outlets, you know, we're lucky enough to have some funders and to also be funded by our readers as well, but we are treated as suspect. Right. We're treated as suspect when we are receiving donations and we try to be as people funded as possible. When we don't take money from corporations, when we don't take money from, you know, government or any of these think tanks or weapons manufacturers or any corporations. But these media outlets that are directly funded by billionaires um, who make all of their money off of like, you know, sweatshops and, you know, slave style labor and they make their money off of wars um, and very shady sort of style of investments, they're treated as if that is like the normal and that's the regular thing. And that's something that is respected. And so if you look at like the Daily Beast, for example, which is basically another mouthpiece for uh, NATO's war machine, right now they're going on a rampage, a witch hunt of targeting uh, independent journalists and outlets in an organized smear campaign um, to, and they're also pressuring outlets like Patreon um, and PayPal to block these journalists like Max Blumenthal, um, Caleb Maupin, Benjamin Norton, really great, incredible journalists who have exposed uh, the war machine to block their donations and calling it, you know, treating that as suspect. And so, it's just, I mean, it is just so insane to think that this is happening right now, but it is because we've entered wartime. And by the way, the Daily Beast is also responsible for uh, Gonzalo Lira, the American Chilean uh, journalist that went missing, um, who was basically targeted because of the Daily Beast. I mean, they made sure that uh, Gonzalo Lira was uh, targeted by, the, by Ukraine's SBU, the secret police, and he was, he was taken in by them. And so these corporate media outlets, their interests is very, is very clear. It is to target and silence and censor and sanction um, any sort of dissenting uh, voice and alternative narrative 
to the war machine. You know, I remember there was a time when we had a diversity of corporate, even corporate media outlets, um, where sometimes somebody could be even on those outlets and speak out against war. But now that's a very rare occurrence and they're cracking down and hitting back against uh, the dissenters. Yeah. Lenar, I, I value uh, your visit here tonight. I know you need to go here in just a minute. I have two final questions. One is I want to make a contribution to Mint Press News and I know I can't use PayPal. Right. How should I how should I do that? Well, first of all, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, we uh, did have our two fundraisers taken down from GoFundMe uh, without reason or warning. And then we also just recently had PayPal uh, block us. But we do have a fundraiser right now on um, Indiegogo, which is for our video project for Behind the Headlines. But if you want to uh, make a donation directly to Mint Press News, we recommend just going directly to our website and making a donation uh, through our website, which we do receive a lot of donations and memberships through there. Okay. And lastly, uh, Manar, in the uh, chat here that we see on, on our Zoom uh, dashboard, here's a, a quote, and I think it came from um, uh, that Washington Post article originally. Uh, editorially, Mint Press News supports Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the governments of Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and Syria. Now, that is a smear. <laughs> Absolutely it is, yeah. Because you're not aligned with any government, including our own. But this is the kind of bullshit, pardon me, that you have to confront on a regular basis where those with the power to, uh, you know, like Prop or Not, which was amplified by the Washington Post and then played out in the rest of the uh, media in this country, uh, you know, they don't give you the oxygen or the platform to expose that these are lies. That's right. And, and they do that even through any sort of uh, coverage of us or myself. You know, we're not presented as, oh, independent media outlet, Mint Press News, editor, Manar, Adley, or anything like that. We have to have all these descriptors <laughs> around us uh, and before our titles. Um, I was just looking up our Wikipedia page. Um, if you actually read our Wikipedia page, it's edited every single day. It's been edited for the last 10 years. Wow. Um, and they ensure that the descriptions of Mint Press are that they spread, Mint Press spreads Russian disinformation, check, right? Supports the government of Bashar al-Assad, check mark right there. Uh, supports the government of Russia and Iran and Syria. Opposes the governments of Israel and Saudi Arabia, like what's wrong with that, right? But they have that in there. It's a conspiratorial website. It's anti-Western, anti-Jewish conspiracies. So it's just a smear after smear after smear without once challenging any of the sort of reporting that we do. And all of our reporting is investigative. All of our sourcing, you know, if you look at some of the sources that we use, a lot of it is from directly from these think tanks. We cite them, their yeah. websites, their work, government press releases, um, and so it's not like we're just, you know, spewing out these, these, uh, and we're not even supporting, like you said, any sort of government. We're just very much critical of, uh, us foreign policy. And we act as a watchdog to those in power. I mean, that's what journalism is meant to act as in a functioning democracy. And obviously we don't have a democracy anymore. We live in an oligarchy. So the media that we have today represents the interest of the 1% billionaire class, the permanent war state, 
and the military establishment. Um, yet we are the ones who are doing the job uh, according to our First Amendment, which is to act as a watchdog to those in power. And when we do that, we are targeted in these uh, smear campaigns. But it's very obvious who these people are, like Michael Wise from the Atlantic Council. And this is not the first time, and I don't think it's going to be the last time. I think these attacks are going to continue. And their goal, of course, is to make us completely disappear off of the face of the Internet. I mean, we used to appear at the very top of Google News. Now we're on page maybe three, maybe page four. Um, so the algorithms have definitely uh, made a huge difference. And on top of that, we really have to watch out for something called NewsGuard, which is going to be oh, yeah. yeah in our in, in all of the Internet browsers, a plugin that's going to that's already, by the way, uh, in all of the U.S. public libraries um, across this country. And what NewsGuard is, it was actually founded by Bush era architects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, of the wars on terror. Um, people that wrote the Patriot Act, the authors of the Patriot Act run NewsGuard. And this uh, NewsGuard, this um, uh, um, browser plugin is basically uh, blacklisting websites. And so far they've blacklisted Mint Press They've blacklisted, the, they're going to be blacklisting the gray zone and multiple independent media outlets while they give green check marks to outlets like CNN or the New York Times or Fox News. And yes. what that means for the future of journalism is that if this becomes, and, and by the way, this is being pushed in all Microsoft products, okay? Imagine every, you know, how many people use Microsoft products uh, in this country. This is being pushed on all Microsoft products. And if you are not, if you don't get that green check mark from NewsGuard, you will not even appear in internet searches at all if this is installed in your browser. And it's going to be automatically installed in all the browsers of Microsoft products. Menar, Menar. This is, this is but, very, yeah. But Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> David, before Menar has to go, did you have any questions or comments? Four minutes or five minutes, Menar? Yeah, five more minutes. Just waiting okay. for my boys to get home. <laughs> for my boys to get home. They went to visit their dad today. Okay. Do you, I'm just asking questions here. Do you believe there is a problem with misinformation, disinformation on the internet? Of course. <laughs> of course. We live in a very imperfect world with so many different opinions and, and so forth. But I think the biggest purveyors of disinformation and fake news and propaganda is coming from our mainstream corporate media. It's not coming from independent media. And by the way, in a democracy, for it to flourish, we have to encourage healthy public debate. We have to encourage people to have conversations with each other. I mean, look what happened in the age of COVID. Whatever side you are and the whole COVID okay. conversation, we weren't even allowed to discuss it. We weren't even allowed to have a conversation about it. That is well, very, that, very uh, dangerous. But that set a dangerous precedent to where we are today. You just mentioned, I, I don't want to get into an argument, but Joe Rogan has 10 million listeners and he's promoting ivermectin and he's telling people not to wear masks and or get vaccinated so is that really true that you can't i don't think that he told anybody not to get vaccinated or to not uh wear masks i think that he uh did provided interview and i, and I watched many of the interviews by the way he provided interviews to show you know if you're 
you're under the age of 30, my recommendation is don't get vaccinated. And he's promoted ivermectin and a lot of what I consider quackery. So I, I'm not sure there's been that kind of crackdown on COVID. I think the problem with the internet is there's a lot of uh, anti-science available on the internet. Well, we, and again, we have to be careful with that because we have, you know, what, again, that's part of the problem with having this discussion is that there are so many scientists that promote vaccines and wearing masks, but there also are a lot of scientists who don't. And so where is the truth? I don't know. I don't know where the truth is, right? But we have to, we have to be allowed to have the conversations and we have to be also critical too of the you know conflicts of interest that do exist uh, within the spectrum. But I do have I do have to get going. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the kids. <laughs> yes, I hear I hear some knocking on the doors. All right, Manar, thank you very much. Yep, thank you guys. Have a good night. All right. So, Peter B. Collins, let me do some follow up questions. Sure. Um, this is fascinating. The Southern Poverty Law Center, through default, has become the go-to gold standard on what constitutes a, a terrorist organization, a white supremacy group. Uh, I know there are problems with the Southern Poverty Law Center. They do a lot of fundraising, but they also do a lot of great work after Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. They urged, I believe, 2017, they urged PayPal to cut off several neo-Nazi organizations. Everybody I know said, well, PayPal is a bank and they can choose who they do business with and who they don't. Why are they funding these right-wing neo-Nazis, and so PayPal pulled the plug on various hate groups. Are they within their right to say, we don't want to make money off white supremacists? Well, I think that that is a uh, horse of a different color. And I would argue that the biggest issue here is that uh, Menar personally, has been blocked on PayPal. Her organization, Mint Press News, has been blocked. And the same is true of uh, Consortium News. And right. they are given no reason why they have been banned. And in fact, oh. PayPal is threatening to hold almost $10,000 of Consortium News money behind an arbitrary process where they cannot appeal. They can't phone somebody at PayPal uh, Joe Lauria did. He wrote about it on Consortium News Today. And he got somebody at a call center who just said, well, I can't explain why you have been cut off. And the statement that comes from PayPal is so vague that you have no idea what triggered that. And so uh, I would also argue that even neo-Nazis uh, have some rights. Uh, if they're not violating the law, in raising money and using PayPal as, as a conduit. Uh, the issue is whether they use the money for criminal activities, in which case uh, I would support legal action to restrict or, or eliminate uh, their access. 
But, you know, Bank of America, uh, Chase Bank, name your big bank. Do they get involved in censoring media outlets by restricting or cutting off their access to funds? Well, so a couple of things on this. When PayPal cut off the the right wing extremists who were selling merchandise to help promote uh, Charlottesville as well as January 6th, they they did not want to aid and abet the financialization of uh, call them whatever you want. White supremacists on January 6th. You know, your microphone is scraping. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, call it whatever you want. Insurrectionists, whatever you want. Uh, there, there are things that cross a line and nobody is, uh, no internet is being shut down. I'm not challenging the premise of this conversation, but I am raising questions that I think some of my listeners have, and that is nobody shut down Mint Press. Nobody shut down Consortium News. They simply said, you cannot raise money through our bank. We don't want to be associated with this. Unfortunately, there's a monopoly. There are only a handful of ways. Right. To ra- that is, that I, is- I, tried, I tried to dump PayPal several years back, and it was going to cost me about $5,000 to reconfigure my software. And right. uh, a number of my supporters took to just putting checks in the mail because they didn't want to deal with PayPal. But we, we have to return to the fundamental issue here, that there is no process. There is no appeal. There are no standards that are publicly articulated. This right. is a backdoor shutdown that begs the question, to what extent it was done in, in league with our government? Okay, I don't but know there... the answer to that, but it's, it's a very important question. But we, you know, in terms of the First Amendment, and I'm not arguing with you, I'm just raising some questions that I know the audience has. Our guest just said that we should hear both sides of the argument when it comes to vaccinations. Mm-hmm. At some point, there are a lot of people, including me, don't believe there are two sides to vaccines, that you can question the vaccines and the funding behind the vaccines. But at some point when a million Americans are dying from a disease that some would say, most would say, is uh, a problem primarily for the unvaccinated or or senior citizens who are vaccinated, uh, it's a public health menace, right? When, when people are, Joe Rogan, for example, is a public health menace when he's pushing ivermectin. And so people load up on ivermectin instead of getting vaccinated. And now there's a shortage of parasite medication for kids in India who can't get their river blindness treated. So well, inter- well, David, I don't think that there is clear science that says that ivermectin and not the uh, veterinary version. Okay. 
There is a human version of ivermectin that has been used for years to treat other maladies. And the, you know, I saw Rachel Maddow do this on a nightly basis where she made fun of the idiots who were going to a, a horse supplies or a, a feed supply store to buy the ivermectin that is intended for animals. And so to cut off discussion of this and to say that Joe Rogan is not allowed to have a pro ivermectin guest on his show. And I don't watch Joe Rogan, so I, I don't have a detailed analysis of what he did or didn't do. But I fundamentally support his right to speak and that, that people have no requirement to listen to him or to believe what they hear from his program. The same is right. true of yours or mine. Right. But I do believe the, the, the problem, and I think you pointed that out, is we have monopolies here and no competition. So that when Twitter has every right to shut Donald Trump down, it's their company. Unfortunately, Twitter is almost at the level of a utility. It's like an international highway that everybody should have access to. That That's the problem. But if I owned PayPal and people were trafficking in ivermectin or uh, what's his Alex Jones boner pills, I would have uh, a problem uh, facilitating that. I, I as, as the owner of a bank, I would say, you know what? I don't approve of Joe Rogan. I don't approve of Alex Jones. They're free to say whatever they want, but I'm not going to be a party to it. So I don't want to do business with them. The same applies to neo-Nazis and people who were using the, the, the lead up to January 6th. I, if I own a bank, I don't want to do business with those people. The problem. Okay, how, how is that decision made and on what terms? The, the commerce you're allowed because no shirt, no shoes, no service. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, you know, PayPal is the only game in town. That's the problem. We need to break up PayPal. We need we need alternatives to Twitter. It is it is their power. That's the problem. I I, I get that. But a business should have the right uh, not to want to do business with somebody. I receive, you know, as you know, this podcast is syndicate syndicated or distributed to something like 20 different platforms from uh, iTunes to Spotify to Pandora to wherever, every YouTube. And I, I got a, an email from one of the platforms that said, uh, due to the war in Ukraine, we will not monetize any of any podcast that spreads disinformation about the war in Ukraine. And they they said, we're, we'll still we're not deplatforming anybody who is spreading disinformation, but we will not allow you to mo make money to monetize any podcast that says uh, that Putin was right for invading 
Ukraine that discounts the uh, the level of uh, war crimes, not war crimes, but they, they I don't know, remember the term, but uh, the 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 deaths of civilians, uh, if you say it's self-inflicted by Ukraine, we will not monetize uh, your podcast. And I read that and I went, well, that kind of makes sense to me because this is America. I'm not defending it. Uh, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't uh, uh, trivialize or diminish uh the, the civilian casualties in Ukraine. I, I don't believe they're self-inflicted. I believe that they are Putin's fault. Uh, okay, but, but let me interject. What if one incident was caused by Ukraine? Are we not allowed to talk about that? I there, believe you should. There might have been. I have every reason to believe that Zelensky, who is a TV director, uh, knows how to you know, set up a scene. I, I, I think capable of it. Um, uh, but this is in terms of making money. Nobody would deplatform me if I made that charge. But they but the company that wrote me the letter says we don't want to make money off any speech that suggests uh, these war crimes are self-inflicted. But that's so, arbitrary, David. Who decides? Who sets the standard of what is absolute truth and what is somehow so toxic to that that it cannot be said or heard? You don't have the, to believe it. Right. Okay, well, but, I, but I, I want to hear the other point of view about what's going on in Ukraine. And if Zelensky is presiding over a military that commits war crimes, then they deserve the same treatment as what we say about Russia, even though we're not going to join the International Criminal Court and won't do anything more than spew rhetoric I, about it. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. The problem is monopolies. The problem is the government has no right to censor anybody. Uh, there, there's probably some back, no doubt there's some back channel censorship that's just internalized by people who work at these big platforms. They don't have to be told to censor. It's been internalized by our system. I get that. But there are still legitimate news organizations who I can trust to report Zelensky if he in fact, if his army is committing war crimes, but there's also a problem. Two problems. One is you have Russian propaganda. That is very adept at telling two different stories to two different groups to create confusion about what's actually going on. Uh, I objected to RT being shut down. Uh, I think people should be allowed to hear anything they want. They don't. They don't. We don't get to hear everything, but there's no. I don't see. I see, the problem is the monopoly. Everybody, well, but, but David, it, it is metastasized 
the monopoly issue is real. But when monopolists collude with the government, that is yes. capital F fascism. Right. And to some extent, we know that's what's going on here. Because right. of the way it's all so opaque, we, we cannot, for example, uh, deduce whether the article that I cited uh, based on a Ukrainian uh, scholar, an academic scholar's uh, analysis of the situation, all right, uh, is that what caused Consortium News to get cut off by PayPal? We will never know. There is no process for that. Try to call PayPal. Try to call Twitter. They don't have phones. You email I've somebody. Called, I've called PayPal. I've had, you can I've call called. a customer service person. You can't call the executives who made this decision to cut off Consortium News and Mint Press News. Okay. If and, somebody, and the people who answer the phone don't know shit. And, and they, they're not authorized to talk about it if they do. Right. If a if a uh, an organization, a criminal organization is using PayPal to raise money to buy weapons that will be used for terrorist activity, I believe a bank or a PayPal PayPal has every right to make to act unilaterally without the government to cut these organizations off. Uh, now, terrorism, terrorism is a uh, is up for debate. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the the government of the United States decides who's it decides that uh, was a Carrera who was the head of the Contras, the terrorists. Contras were terrorists. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> Reagan defined them as terrorists. Oh, no, he, he called them freedom fighters. It was, it was, they were terrorists, right? It was so, a civil, it was a civil war and they used the available means. And, right. and, and I just want to come back, David, that we don't have any independent or credible arbiter of what constitutes uh, misinformation or disinformation. It's whatever the dominant voice declares it to be. Well, we have a new Homeland Security Department. Yeah, isn't that great? It's looking into disinformation and misinformation. You have an ex-president like Barack Obama who's giving lectures that insist democracy is being threatened by disinformation. They blame Trump on disinformation and misinformation. Uh they believe that I do believe. I agree to some extent that there's a recklessness to some uh, independent media outlets who uh, sometimes report American propaganda as well as Russian propaganda. It's not up to the government to decide what is acceptable and what isn't i think it's up to the individual and it's and what's happened is monopoly takes away our freedoms that's the problem but it's monopoly in service of information management and control 
as defined by the current keepers of the government. Right. I agree with you. Here's what I'm getting a flashback. I'm getting a flashback to 2002. Right. In the lead up to the invade, the illegal invasion of Iraq. And there were reasonable people who said what I'm saying right now. It sounds reasonable what I'm saying that, you know, we're, we were attacked. The government has to do something about terrorism. It's reasonable for the country to invade Iraq uh, because, you know, even if they only had like one percent involvement, blah, 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 blah. And I would sound measured, studied and reasonable. And then 20 years later, when you realize the whole thing was a fascistic enterprise, you go, oh, yeah, I, I guess I was wrong. So I hear you. I, I hear you. And I've never seen anything like this. The, the I've never seen the chilling of, of speech like I have with Ukraine. I, I've never I have never seen an entire American populace march in lockstep on Ukraine. I've never seen anything. Nobody questions it. It's yeah. not questioned. And they are using that. Uh, war-based consensus to silence the dissenters, those who object to empire and endless war. And this is a very serious turning point for America. It, it's To me, it's much bigger than Trump. Uh, you know, Trump caused a lot of damage. He divided the country. Uh, but he dominated Twitter, and in turn was able to dominate the media that, that followed it every day. Right. But we didn't see, other than Julian Assange, we didn't see a significant pattern of silencing dissenting voices. Trump drowns them out. Right. But that's Here's very different from this clandestine move to uh, pull the plug on the funding, which will indirectly limit their ability to report and reduce their contribution to our knowledge base. Here's what I would like to do. I'd like to call an audible because Professor Catherine Liu is about to join us and she's we're all incredibly busy, but I've, I've been trying to get her back up. Can we do this, Professor Marianne and Peter? Can we talk to Professor Liu and then pick up on this after? If, is that OK? Because I would love to listen to her. OK, yeah, and then, I, I will. I will try to rejoin you after Professor Liu. Uh, I, I have dinner duties, <laughs> but I'll, okay. I'll, uh, I'll 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 be listening and uh, try to rejoin. OK. Great. Uh, well, uh, Professor Catherine Liu is professor of film and media studies at University of California, Irvine and author of Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. And Professor Mike Steinell played, uh, wrote a song called Who's Afraid of Catherine Liu for you. But I'm not going to play it tonight. I, okay, I want okay. it's I played it over and over again. And I know how busy you are. And we're we're thrilled to have you back. 
virtue hoarders. Everybody go buy virtue hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class, virtue hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. If you buy this book and it doesn't make smoke come out of your ears, I will reimburse you. It gets the Feldman. <laughs> Go buy Virtue Hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. And if it doesn't make you angry, I will reimburse you. Just tell me that's how much I believe in this book. It's a great book. We don't need to revisit who the uh, professional managerial class is other than they are the lap dogs for the ruling elite. And you cannot have a billionaire class without the professional managerial class, the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, the the, the advisors, the, the consultants, the um, defense contractors, engineers. Yeah. I mean, okay. they're the yes men right now. Yes. To the Democratic regime. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you and I probably read the same garbage on the Internet. I was reading Town and Country last night. And can you hear me? Yeah. What were you reading? I, I missed that word. Town and Country. Oh, Town and Country. I never read that. That's crazy. David, why are you up, reading that? Because it came up on my feed. Okay. And expose on all the members of the professional managerial class who send their kids to Marlboro and Harvard Westlake, and they're having a really bad year because these elite Ivies are getting more and more selective. Harvard's only accepting 3%, and you don't have to take the SATs anymore. So everyone's applying. And it turns out that Harvard, the, the Ivies, are spitting back the values of the professional managerial class and saying, we don't want your kid. We, we're not interested in a kid who is at 18 started their own business yeah. or, or did or, or traveled to Chile to uh, study how migrant workers respond to glyphosate. Uh, and now these two, literally $2,500 an hour college advisors are telling the parents you want your kid to get into an elite ivy have them go work at a coffee shop don't write a <laughs> oh have them work in a coffee shop why That's oh to be like a normal person yeah 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 you right. know um I, you know, I know a lot of these types and uh, one of the things I'm really grateful for is actually, you know, despite how, you know, stultifying Orange County is my kid went to a public high school here. So um, it's become like this, uh, it's become like warfare over there. I mean, in the elite private high schools, I don't want to give them too much attention, but you just... They, they educate a tiny percentage of the population, the private high schools, and then the public, and then the IVs. And I just feel like it's even, it's like really just talking about the 1%. And, um, you know, alligator tears, man, alligator tears. I don't know what they're doing now. It's just terrifying what's happening in 
um, higher education. I thought you were going to say that they're like going woker than woke and they're like making life crazy for the parents because they're so woke now, those schools. Um, I, you know what? I'm laughing and crying at the same time, but um, their new armament thing just like went straight up through the roof and now they paid $55,000 a year for their kids to be treated like researchers, artists, and specialists. Now they can't get into the IVs. You know what, cry me a river. Yes, let's talk about Tucker Carlson. You read the piece in the New York Times. You know what, I told her I want to talk about it and I, I didn't realize how long it was. I read part one. Me too, uh, that's all I did. It, it's so long. So what did you think about that? What did you, I'm, his, oh, I'm interviewing you now, sorry. His mother, <laughs> sorry. mother was brilliant. She hated him. She was she knew exactly what she she spawned. She said at eight, I'm out of here. I hate you. Tucker. Oh, my God. Yeah. The mom. She gave, he alleges that she gave them drugs when they were kids and they were like in this um, countercultural maelstrom. And then he had to go work, move to San Diego with his Republican dad. Right. I mean, what is happening? What? Okay, so I I hate the way that the New York, okay, everyone knows I hate the New York Times, but I hate the way they give you that, like, picture of his background without really commenting, but also, like, insinuating that he's so angry because he's been abandoned by his mother. That is mm -hmm. height PMC culture. That is the height of PMC trauma culture right now. And, you know, I'm working on this book about this, so they don't actually say it, but they want to say it. They want those New York Times journalists are dying to say that he's just this way because he was traumatized by his crazy hippie drug taking mom who went to France and abandoned him. So I I'm like, oh, yeah, they want to play Tucker's trauma card for him. So yes. are they protecting him? Are they what? Protecting him? No, it's just this kind of like show, don't tell New York Times journalism. They're pretending to be objective. Why write that stuff if you're going to not just say it outright that they think he's damaged by his abandonment by his mother, what, which is very hard to substantiate and fact check. So they're not going to say it out. They're not going to say it outright. They're just going to say like, Oh, it was said that she took drugs and gave them to her children. And then at the age of eight, she left them never to see them again. I love that. <laughs> never to see them again. I was like, oh, am I supposed to be crying for Tucker and his brother, like Bradford or something? Branford? I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say about that because the his politics and his career are really fascinating. I did not know that he had been on PBS. I didn't, you know. I hit a show on PBS and it was yeah, successful. So he learned how to play to the extremists and play to this audience. Um, I, you know, the, the extremist anti-immigration stance is truly horrifying. But um, if you look at what liberal immigration policy is now, um, we don't talk about the kids in cages anymore. We don't talk about, um, detention. We don't talk about what's actually happening at the border. 
because we have a democratic president and there's all this like the hand waving has stopped and um it's just so hypocritical there's something really go you know just hypocritical about the way that liberalism is the dominant ideology of the msn it is the dominant ideology of the ruling um last i heard the democrats had both the house and the senate and tell me real the presidency right Mm-hmm. But um, they still act like they're aggrieved and these people are really scary. And I just continually see like um, rather than take change, thinking about what's wrong with Democratic Party politics, they sort of fear monger um, on the right and just, you know, show us what's going on and in the extreme right. And this is going to be the hand that they play over the next 18 months. The immigration, the ICE detention centers, for-profit ICE detention facilities. Still open, right? Still open, still functioning. Concentration camps. They are still concentration. For-profit, for-profit. Con- we have for-profit oh. concentration camps. But it's no Putin. talks about it anymore. Joe Biden is president, so we don't talk about it anymore. Right. The, what, you're, you're a professor of media studies. Yeah. Do I remember a time about three years ago when the White House correspondents decided, you know what, there's something unseemly about having a comedian and all this glamour and we need to get serious. I I know that the New York Times no longer allows uh, the reporters to attend the White House correspondents. And then they hired Ron Chernow, the author of Hamilton, to speak instead of a comedian. And the White House Correspondents Association announced that they were going to get more serious because our democracy is at stake. Was this under Trump? This was under Trump, right? Yeah. 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 And then and now we have Trevor Noah. I did not see his shtick, by the way. I don't know. I, I missed his shtick, but I read the things that he said and it just seemed, you know, like um, the establishment, he's just an establishment guy saying what the establishment wants to hear. Um, did you hear, did you watch it? His uh, shtick? Did you I, watch I, read, it? I read about it and I read about how they, the, 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 the biggest celebrity was Kim Kardashian that that lobbyists and reporters pretty much the same job uh, were falling over themselves to get to uh, Kim Kardashian. Talk to me. I, I read the same article or I started the same article. I think you did in Vanity Fair about the National Conservative Convention, this new wave of right-wing intellectuals yeah yeah was this like i couldn't get through it because i couldn't see any names is this like how does that compare to barry weiss's new york times expose on the intellectual dark web are are these the same people who who are these conservative intellectuals i didn't see one name in that vanity fair um jd vance and there are some other J.D. Vance is one person that you would know. There's some other people whose names I had never heard of and who are supposed to be, you know, the um, the new right. There's this person named Curtis Jarvin and Blake Masters, and they're being funded by Teal, Peter Teal, who, um, you know, we all know is like this um, 
billion, a tech billionaire. And um, Thiel's agenda is to destroy liberalism, right? To destroy liberalism from the right. And um, then you, so you've got Masters, you've got Yarvin, you've got J.D. Vance. Um, Vance actually, with compared to the rest of them, like comes out fairly legit. I don't know. I hated Hillbilly Elegy, but he seems like genuinely concerned and disturbed by the state of America. Um, I don't know if you put that on for the um, um, journalist. The, the journalist is a, an interesting guy too. His name is like, um, what is his name? It's uh, He's been on um, a bunch of left-wing podcasts too. James Pogue, James Pogue. And, um, you know, he, he does a lot of head scratching in this and tries to understand like what these right-wing young guys are doing they're very edge lordy. Some of them, well, the, they're not just guys. I mean, he talks about Red Scare, the podcast with Dasha and Anna Kasparian, and they are sort of flirting with the um, these right wing thinkers now. Um, and um, there's a kind of downtown scene now with hipster girls wearing maga hats. I think it also has to do with this like transgressive subcultural. Um, thing of 20 somethings looking for something and um, um, but behind them is a coherent like far right um, set of beliefs and thoughts about national economic nationalism about the abandonment of the working class by the Democrats and the Republicans and so they but they style themselves like culture warriors and class warriors so um it's a kind of, so Pogue is like genuinely fa fascinated and horrified by them. And Did we see the punk movement, wasn't there an undercurrent neo-fascism and skinheads and some, they played with Nazi imagery and you couldn't tell if it was ironic or not? I know people, you know, there was that, and there was that in punk, and but I also feel like there was there was this like deep anti-authoritarianism in punk, and that, you know, in the Brixton race riots in the seventies, the punks and the Af and you know the Afro-Caribbean immigrants they allegedly like fought the police together, so there is an anti-authoritarianism among this new conservative movement, and they think the authorities are. The liberals. Right. So, right. I mean, and we just said the Dems are in power now. And so they're transgressive um, and sort of kind of, I don't know, the, James Pope made them sound like kind of pathetic too, right? But they're, but they're, they're looking for something and like they're flocking around JD Vance. They're looking for a political movement. And you know what I thought really fascinating about these, you know, right-wing intellectuals is they think the whole thing is going to collapse very soon. Like they, they think American society is nearing collapse. And I, you know, I wish that there could be this transformative collapse so we could really get corporate America on its knees and, you know, free ourselves from big pharma, big ag, big food, big insurance, and remake. Help everything, big higher ed. We started, but um, mm -hmm. 
There's something really resilient about this kind of crisis prone state of capitalism that just keeps going on. And I guess that's like a really pessimistic thing. And they think there's going to be, oh yeah, they're really, oh my God, David, they're really into um, authoritarianism. They think they're anti-authoritarian authoritarianism, authoritarians, if you can, you know, deal with that. But they want, um, some of them are monarchists and they want a strong leader to come in and clean everything up. And that's sort of the image that um, um, Trump gave them. Right. right. This like, you know, um, really strong leader and uh, um, who could, you know, what, what do you say? Like drain the swamp, which is totally ridiculous. But like, can you imagine like this is this is really a part of American conservatism now. So the problem I have on the show is I wake up every morning and I hate the liberals. I hate, as you say, the professional Right. That's how we agree on so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, because I say, well, Donald Trump's a cancer. I thought Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, who I can't stand, were at least going to be competent surgeons to remove the cancer. And it turns out they're oh, saying. You, did? you thought that? I did not think that. I'm a Bernie bro, but, you know, yeah, I yeah. gun to my head and I voted for, for Joe Biden. So, the liberals are in charge. And I think the problem you teach media studies do enough Americans know the difference between a leftist and a liberal. They're two separate things, aren't they? And don't you think we need to have have it out? And I, I, um, well, first, I don't teach like that kind of empirical, you know, um, media studies type thing. It's more historical and theoretical. But what do you mean have it out like have a national debate on what's the difference between a liberal and a leftist is yeah yeah i, I would relish but, that but no one dares to go near that and the other thing is like um um <laughs> the liberals control the media they don't the, think of the token leftist thing left they let on national media is are, are very few and far between and think about how fragmented the uh, national media landscape is like, what would be the platform? Where would we have, where could we have it out? Tucker's show is the biggest show on TV, on national um, TV, um, news television. It gets 3 million viewers. I think right. about when we were growing up or when I was, when we were young, like ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, you sort of, there were three networks and if there was a debate, there was a platform, there were enough people to pay attention and, you know, um, when Watergate was announced by Walter Cronkite, he had so much gravitas, like the whole country is watching. And um, it really like broke a lot of people's minds. We're not going to have that kind of um, moment anymore because the media landscape is so fractured. Like, I wish we could have that moment. Like, let's just have it out. And, you know, what? define a leftist from a liberal. And I keep thinking like if there were a leftist um, vision of political change, these the, these nutty conservatives wouldn't seem so attractive to general audiences. You know, there were a lot there was a lot of overlap between the really disenchanted um, Rust Belt voter and the Bernie bro and the Bernie voter, you know, and um, he was the closest one we came to having like a national platform who would articulate like 
um, a critique of the powers that be from a left point of view. But my, you know, my just, gen I, I don't know where we could have that kind of airing. We can't even have it um, in a university, like where I teach, like it would be fascinating if we could have that discussion within the university, but it's so warped. Like today's um, New York Times had an article, had an interview with Wendy Brown. I don't want to get too academic about it, but she's like this big shot poli sci professor who um, was interviewed about what's wrong with free speech. She gives this kind of incoherent interview, but she blames, you know, right wing corporate donors for um, influencing academia. And then, you know, talks about like how the Koch brothers gave money to a small rural liberal arts college and they, had to, and they all had to read Ayn Rand. Like he bought the whole college, the Koch brothers bought the whole college Ayn Rand. And I was like, okay, this doesn't make any sense, but whatever. And then at the end, she's, you know, she's supposedly this very respected person in our field. And then at the end, they name her as Wendy, Professor Wendy Brown, UPS Professor of Political Science at the Institute for Advanced Study. She's been railing about right wing corporate donors. She has not said the word capitalism. She says neoliberalism. She says corporations. I'm like, was that part of her contract with UPS? Never to say <laughs> the word capitalism? You know, I, 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 mean, I, I've never, I didn't know that there was, I, I know you, the CEO would get a chair named after him, but they literally now have corporate sponsors. Yes. Yes. I could be the Chipotle professor of media studies if I play my cards right. But what really like what, what really kills me is because I'm I'm teaching this course on Marx and um, class and contradiction is the the surplus value, the profits that UPS garnered that allowed UPS to donate this much money to Princeton and the IAS, the Institute for Advanced Study, have to do with all the extra steps that all of those delivery people were making during the pandemic. Their right. lockdown uh, surveillance of their drivers, even though, you know, the union fights against it, but they have, you know, mo some of the most draconian efficiency um, surveillance systems in um, employment, in corporate employment, that the accumulation of surplus value is all those deliveries that all of those UPS delivery men made. And then the corporate office says, we can get a really nice tax break by giving this money and down this chair some for some, for some you know, fam fancy professor comes from Berkeley who's going to just say pablum to the New York Times about Liberty and John Stuart Mill and then we can get our name up there, the UPS Endowed Professorship in the New York Times. Every time she appears, there will be the UPS Endowed Professor. She internalizes the, uh, the censorship. She's not told. She just knows I'm the UPS professor. She, yeah. got, she got it because of her self-censorship or she's well, a fraud well, she she criticizes neoliberalism but she's not a marxist she's partners with um judith butler and you know judith butler was a donor to kamala harris in the primaries in 2020 and so 
I find them to be, you know, mainline democratic liberals. And if you, you know, say enough of that pablum, I don't, you get rewarded. I don't even know how this works anymore, but there's a deep current, you know, um, we went through McCarthy in this country um, in the professoriate. People are terrified. They have of um, um, Marx, although she, you know, mentions Marx, like Marx is among the people she um, cites, but, you know, she, she fancies herself, I'm sure, a radical, so. Right, right. But the UPS chair, like, I was like, you know what? You don't even need to write comedy anymore, David. You don't need, like, you're out of a job. Like, I'm really against corporate control of America. I'm the UPS professor of political science at at Princeton. Coming to you from... (laughs) (laughs) The, The Mark Twain prize was given to Jon Stewart last Sunday. The person who hands out the Mark Twain prize is David Rubenstein, who heads the Kennedy Center, as well as the Carlyle Group. He's one of the largest war profiteers in the world. And you, I read that David Rubenstein is giving out the Mark Twain prize and I and if Mark Twain found out that a war profiteer was handing out the Mark Twain prize, he would say, well, that's funny. That's I get that. That's pretty. That's, but it's not funny. No, it, it, I mean, corporate capitalism um, has penetrated areas of our lives that we couldn't even imagine. And we can't even imagine. I, I mean. I don't know. Uh, so, like, I, I teach at the University of California, we're, so we're more and more privatized. But at least I can say, like, um, part of Mark Zuckerberg's profits probably funded our um, the, the California surplus this year. So, you know, it's taxes, right? But thank God they didn't waste the surplus on. Medicare for all or Medicaid for all in California. So do, that was- you, do, do, you, you know that, right? The insurance companies went into the legislature and gave people a whole bunch of money to vote against it. They were going to get Medicare for all or single payer in California. And then suddenly it dies in the assembly and legislature. And the Democrats have super majorities and Newsom, right? This is another case of um, liberal failure. So... Marxism. So dark. I guess we're just like, can we say what can be? What can be like a little more optimistic today? What could be more optimistic? Tucker Carlson had a mother who hated him. That gets me through the day. I wake up now going, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson's mother hated him. You uh, talked about uh, young people this uh, authoritarian cheek wearing MAGA hats and they want a strong leader. Bernie, (laughs) we agree that Bernie is like a miracle of democracy, not since Eugene Debs ran for president in prison, right? Bernie is, is there ever gonna be, is there anybody out there even close to Bernie? 
No, it was like a miracle we had him. And, you know, the since, his, the, since that campaign, like, all I can see is a lot of leftists, like, tearing each other apart now on social media. Like, he really brought all of us together. And then the bitterness and the um, consequences of that defeat, I, I knew it was going to be bad. But, you know, there are just so many different factions, so much finger pointing, you know, there's always the graduate student faction of leftists who want to be the smartest Marxists in the room. Bernie just never had that. You know, Bernie showed us how to be leftists in public without having to be like a total dork. And then right. um, and he had so much um, compassion and empathy for working people. And it was not feigned. He had no compassion and empathy for lobbyists and K Street guys. And but, you know, there's also a lot of disappointment with Bernie, too, like young people. You know, I think part of this National Conservative Convention did have some like, oh, they said they were post leftist, post Marxist there, too. Like people are just very disillusioned with him. And part of that had to do with, you know, his um, his uh, friendship with Biden. You know, he's still he's um, very loyal to Biden. And I think that that, too, um you know, broke some people's minds. Like, I I just feel like, wow, he's just a very loyal guy. This is obviously, like, very wrong, the way that the Democratic Party is going. But you know what, David? I've really tried to separate myself these days from the plight of the Democrats. Like, I used to get really upset uh, at how stupid and how much they were losing. And then I've gone through all my phases of mourning now, and I'm just like, God, what a bunch of fucking idiots. I don't care. Uh, you know, right now with the abortion thing, sort of Roe versus Wade almost being overturned and thinking about how much um, capital they spent scare, trying to scare people into voting for them because we have to protect Roe. Roe versus Wade would be moot if um, Obama had passed on his first pre years of presidency with the majority in, in Congress and the Senate that he like... Um, a law legalizing abortion. They could still do that now. So I would rather give money to anyone who needs to come to California and get a safe abortion than give a penny to Planned Parenthood or the Democratic Party because they just are using this as a scare tactic. And so I don't want to be, like I get really angry about this now, but I just feel like I ha we have to see this for, what it, for what it is. Like it's a complete, it's a fundraising um, apparatus. It's nothing more than that. A fundraising apparatus um, that is enormously sensitive to the needs of billionaires and completely indifferent to this to the needs of the working class or um, average Americans. The the I have to let you go. When I was younger, I was told the Republicans really they don't want to get rid of abortion. It's a fundraising technique. The Bushes used to give to Planned Parenthood. Nancy Reagan, Reagan had numerous abortions. They're just doing this to play to the rubes. They don't really mean it. And as you just said, it was the other way around. It was the Democrats who didn't really care about protecting abortion rights. Because on one side, you had Rick Santorum bringing, literally bringing a dead fetus home to play with his kids. And these are people who call themselves pro-life and they believe a fetus is a human being. They 
they're out of their minds, but they they believe it. And on the other side, you have the Democrats, the professional managerial classes, you would say, who test the waters and they do some polling and they come up with something along the lines of abortion should be safe, legal and rare. Mm-hmm. Safe instead of saying I'm pro-abortion. If right. you're pro I'm pro-abortion, let's have it. Yeah, yeah. Democrats can't do that. I wish you did the show more often. Well, um, prof- I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm nearing my the end of my teaching, so it's really a pleasure to be on here talk to you. Or you are what? I'm not going to play you the love theme. That's <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, but I'm, I, I'm almost finished teaching, so I'll be more free after June 9th, David. It was really a pleasure. Let me plug your, your book. Professor Catherine Liu, Professor of Film and Media Studies at University of California, Irvine. She is the author of Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. Go buy this book. It's a quick read, and it's in terms of accessibility. It's, in my estimation, up there with Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal. It, it, it's the same type of book that will just have you see, th- for me, will have you see things where you go, these MFers, oh my God, I hate these. It, it, to me, in my pantheon, it's Listen Liberal and Virtue Hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. You think you hate lawyers, doctors, professors wait till you read this book all right well thank you so much david thanks thank for you me on. i'd be happy to come back it'd be great great thank you uh let's bring back uh, professor mary ann and if peter b collins is still here and we'll finish up the show thank you for uh accommodating me and i didn't share Professor Liu with you, and I apologize. I was greedy. Sometimes I get a little piggish. And uh, Professor Marianne Cummings is Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, particle physicist. And she puts her, what do I say? You put your foot where your mouth is, you knock All on doors. All the time you say that, David. Yes. You don't put your foot in your mouth. You've been knocking doors for Nina Turner. May 3rd is tomorrow. And how does it look in Ohio? You've been well, out there. I was uh, I was campaigning in area area called Shaker Heights, which is uh, that a nice. It was totally unlike the areas I was uh, canvassing in Akron. Uh, these are upscale. There is a large Jewish population in this area. Yes. And this is what I can say on the ground. I think the ground game is better. I didn't go to a local headquarters. I went to somebody's house. They had several satellite places. We had a, a small group. I posted the picture uh, that I was working with this weekend. And we were, we were going through, uh, we, we, they had had us going to uh, targeted precincts. And we had the little minivan on our cell phones. So this wasn't unlike last year where I kind of felt like I was on my own and I was having to even ask people, what is this district like? You know, do these people, I had to even get information on where people were going to the, 
to the polls. This time, totally different. I was given specific packs of information. I mean, they had the um, they they had the sort of little cheat sheet for Nina. You know what she was about, what her platform was, but they had specific times and locations for the specific precincts. And I can tell you, uh, a lot of the people uh, when they answered the door, went, well, wait a minute, was that? When is that? When is that? <laughs> They didn't know what day the, the primary was. I was able to tell them the day, time. You can still early vote. You have to go to the Cuyahoga uh, Elections Board, you know, down in Cleveland. But anyway, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, uh, I, I had a better feeling this time around. And when I came back home, I, uh, we, we, Sunday was kind of cut off a little early because there were downpours around the, uh, I think Shaker Heights is, is not Cleveland proper, but it's just a, a nice suburb of Cleveland to the south. But uh, I was watching um, Jordan Sheridan today. He was interviewing me. And apparently he was out with the crew in Shaker Heights too. And he was like saying exactly what I was listening to. A lot of people had really, there was a, I had some very good conversations with people. I, I usually do. I think um, I think I swayed a, a good dozen people at least. So there was that. If if she wins by twelve votes, you'll know who is responsible. <laughs> anyway, um, a lot of people were complaining about the flood of uh, of negative ca campaign ads, and I got to see some of them. I, I stayed one night at friends, one night at a hotel. And I just watched early in the morning on just the local Fox News, I mean, the flood of negative ads. They were kind of comical. All the ones for the Republican candidates who were all claiming that Trump chose them for Senate. You know, just hilarious. These guys were clowns. Well, J.D. Vance. Josh what? Mandel is, J.D. Vance has been endorsed yeah. by but Mand Josh Mandel. Yeah, Josh There's, Mandel, and I can't remember who this other, this one guy says, those two guys are knuckleheads. You know, I'm the only real Republican here, and I'm one of you guys. He was trying to be like Bernie Sanders, but I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, it was it, it was a very good time. A, a, more than one person was upset, and I had the feeling they wanted me to convince them to vote for Nina. And one gal said, well, I'm just hearing all this bad stuff. And I was able to pull out my own little story about when I was first elected uh, to the Park di uh, District. I mean, there was a uh, head of a school board who was just slandering me on social media. Now, you know, this happens. You know that local politics is just as nasty and dirty as anything else. But when it happens to you, it's shocking. You know, it's like I was accused of colluding to pilfer thousands of dollars from, I mean, this gal was being, I mean, she was putting, posting this on public sites. Now everybody knew she was crazy and she wasn't rich. Otherwise I would have sued her because, you know, I need work done on my fabulous attic up there, but uh, you know, that's a lot of, but the thing is, it's like, oh yeah, there's a reason why people pour millions of dollars because now you're feeling like, oh, I don't know about Nina. And she said, God, I know you're right. But boy, I'm going to have to think about this. And I just, you know, tried to be very nice and persuasive. And uh, I think she's probably going to vote for Nina. But I, I ran into a lot of that, which tells me that this is exactly what I needed to be doing this weekend. I mean, people right. needed to be going door to door. And that's what 
Um, last, when uh, Jordan Sheridan reported last year, he was reporting from Cleveland uh, and he was reporting what he thought was a very weak ground game. They really weren't prepared for the millions that would just were, were just dumped into the state with no other election going on. So it was all the focus was on that special primary. This time around, yeah, they, they have a lot of billboards, they have media presence, but they're much more focused on door to door, on the get out the vote drive, on the personal, like, and I think that's the only way Nina wins. Well, Marianne, we have I have a question, may I, David? Sure. <laughs> um, I wanna know what the projected turnout is in Ohio. Here in California, our primary is on June 7th and uh, I'm working as a consultant on two different campaigns to elect clean sheriffs in counties that don't currently have them. And our projected turnout is 35%. And that is despite the fact that the frickin' ballot is in your mailbox. And all you have to do is open it up and fill it out and drop it off or mail it back. And so it's, it's stunning because if you're trying to run a change election, you need high turnout. You need high participation to overcome the people who always vote and who always mm -hmm. vote conservatively. So what, what is that picture in Ohio? Do you know? Well, it was less than 17% last August for the special primary. Special, yeah. Um, the early ballots, the mail-in ballots, very, very low, very tiny. But significantly, they're the one section where Chantel Brown did very well, which is, I think, near Shaker Heights, but it's a, it's a very upscale Republican area. And it was estimated that anywhere from five to 8,000 Republicans voted for Chantel Brown hmm. in that primary because it's an open primary. Right. But there was no other elections going on. Uh, tomorrow is the regular primary. There's a very, uh, there's a very hot and spirited uh, Republican primary going on oh, for yeah. many races, for the governor, for, for senator, for things like that. So she's, Chantel Brown will not, um, have, can't, can't rely on all those Republican uh, people pulling Democratic ballots just to vote for her. Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's good. Uh, redistricting, um, Akron is out. Uh, almost all of Cleveland is in, but that includes a lot of white, kind of working class areas of Cleveland. Not quite sure how well Chantel Brown will do there. I, I just don't know. Um, but I think that um, Jordan Sheridan has been there for several days and he sees a, he sees a definite change in the ground energy this time around than from last summer. And so that's kind of what I was feeling. Um, it's hard to say when you're just in one precinct and you're just talking to people in this one area. But the fact that um, I was oh, in constant contact with the people back at the house, where we were, which were our headquarters, and they were, when we went through the lists and the young man, I think he was about all of 20 years old. He, this was his parents' house. But it's like, oh yeah, that person knows my parents and all that. I was talking to the people who were for Nina, were very enthusiastically for Nina. 
because I was walking around with this shirt and I had a light jacket, but I had it open because it was a beautiful day. So people were driving by pointing and going, Nina, in this very upscale, nice neighborhood. So mm -hmm. I think I even got one Republican who stopped me on the sidewalk and uh, wanted to argue, but you know, he said, that sounds like, that makes so much sense that you just told me. And he said, nobody's ever talked to me about these primaries before. And I don't even know all of these guys who are on the Democrat or the Republican ballot. And I said, but you just met me and I'm nice. And I'm telling you to vote, consider voting for me. So it's great fun. I, I mean, I love, I actually kind of like doing that, um, mm -hmm. but that's the only way that she wins. So, um, That'll be good. Oh, yeah. I just noticed that um, I was reading Marianne Williams' uh, Twitter feed uh, a couple hours ago, and she was kind of in a huff, said, AOC has just, period, now, period, endorsed, period, Nina, period. You know, the kind of thing that upscale liberals do when they want to emphasize their sentence. She's annoyed, but apparently... Um, I think what happened was on MSNBC earlier, uh, who was a guy, Mark Pokin was on mm -hmm. and uh, he was answering a question about disunity among progressives because they endorsed Chantel Brown. And he said, well, I didn't see any disunity. The vote was unanimous in the pro uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus for Chantel Brown. And the vote was unanimous. Oh, so there was a lot of a little bit of blowback from that in the Twitter world and other social media platforms. I saw. Let me turn to some late breaking news. Politico has published a majority opinion written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. This has been leaked and it says that the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade. This would be the most significant piece of uh, law since Roe v. Wade, and it would be up to the individual states to decide how much abortion will be legal or legal at all. Now, the Politico has verified that this decision was, in fact, written by Alito. It's not final. It's a draft, but it seems to what indicate hmm? or what it was case? released. Uh, it was they were hearing a case involving, I believe, Mississippi's law that forbids abortions after 15 weeks. And Alito and the majority decided to use this case to throw out Roe v. Wade and say it's up to individual states to decide. Well, so. David, this is, this is God's work because the Catholic majority on the Supreme Court is listening to their uh, divine uh, power and ignoring the Constitution, what Arlen Specter called the super duper precedent of Roe versus Wade. They are uh, contradicting all of the uh, problem that they spewed during their confirmation hearings. And uh, this is really just the next step uh, in 
the return to what I call the new dark ages. And, uh, you know, I live in California. Uh, we are uh, basically building out uh, abortion infrastructure to become a safe haven for people who live in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Texas, and Florida, uh, among others that have passed these, uh, uh, they're not only restrictive, but they are pretextual, uh, where they're just <clears throat> goading the court. What'll it take? And you know, how far are you willing to roll back this right? And uh, we're gonna find out, but I have believed uh, since they took up the oral arguments and since they, uh, you know, ignored the whole Texas precedent with the added feature of vigilante justice uh, and the screaming from the female minority members of the court uh, was simply ignored as using the shadow docket. And, and this may be arcane for people, but uh, the court is able to issue rulings and they have begun widely abusing uh, these uh, rulings that are issued without any explanation uh, and that are often issued in the middle of a term instead of as a ruling at the end of the term. Also, they broke with precedent to uh, you know, refuse to put a temporary stay on the obviously unconstitutional Texas law while they heard arguments and wrote their ruling to overturn Roe. So uh, the levels of corruption, mendacity, and uh, uh, you know, religious influence are, are hard to overstate. I'd like to ask you a question, you or David, uh, Peter. I mean, there is, um, you know, there's been big push for years and years for Congress when Democrats control it to pass uh, a, a law protecting abortion rights. Um, I'm, not from, I'm, I'm not an expert on the law in this regard, but why would it be important if the Democrats could muster some spine and, and do a vote and have it go uh, by reconciliation. So only majorities, uh, simple majorities are required. Why wouldn't Democrats be just railroading this in? Like right now? Well, the Democrats went soft on abortion rights when Pelosi first became speaker. And Marianne, you may not be aware of this, but I've known Pelosi since she first went to Congress and I worked as a campaign consultant for her on one uh, election cycle. So I, I haven't been in touch with her since she became speaker to any great extent. I've just seen her socially. Uh, but uh, I, I respect Nancy and I like many things about her, but she is a very uh, calculating leader. And she went soft on abortion at about the same time. And David, I heard you with Professor Liu uh, uh, talking about that carefully researched phrase that abortion should be rare, safe, or legal, safe, and rare. Uh, and that came out of, of focus groups because Carl uh, Rove used both abortion rights and gay marriage 
as wedges during the elections in uh, particularly 2004 and also in 2006. And what that did was it moved the, the uh, you know, double yellow lines further to the right. And the Democrats read this and you, will, you can see the, the pattern where they started to go silent on abortion rights. They would still accept money from mm-hmm. NARAL and Planned Parenthood, um, but they were no longer full-throated. They would talk to Democratic audiences about a woman's right to choose, but they went for the, uh, the euphemisms and a kind of vague signaling where the people who believe that the Democrats were fully in support of abortion rights would say, oh yeah, yeah, they still support it. It's the Republicans who are against it. Uh, but they made a calculation that this was no longer a winning issue for Democrats. It wouldn't produce enough money. Uh, and that's where Professor Liu nails it again, that these are marketing techniques. Right. And that's how you, you know, end up with more money than the Republicans in a number of cycles uh, since, say, the year 2000. So it's, well, it's really sad, but it's, it's been in process for over 10 years. Well, well, here's something. Uh, I think I've uh, told this to David or maybe an office hours uh, audience, but um, when I was in uh, when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s, uh, I was had an interesting conversation with uh, a lawyer at the at the Women's Crisis Center in Ann Arbor. And uh, and she was telling me that she thought Roe v. Wade was the worst thing to have happened to the women's movement. And Oh, I said, why? That's, that's odd. And she said, uh, well, because at the time, uh, abortion was becoming legal state by state. You know, but at the time of Roe v. Wade, there was four, five states where it was outright legal and two that where it was becoming legal. And she said there were just movements in dozens of other states and women were getting involved in the political process, many for the first time in their lives. And of course, if you get involved in the political process and you win, you don't just drop out of politics, you stay and it, you, people tend to stay and they tend to get even more involved in political processes because there's a whole universe of things to deal with. He, she thought that Roe v. Wade came like a few years too soon. She, she said it really kind of stopped this momentum in its tracks of women you know, getting involved in the political process state by state. And she says, yeah, and the problem is it's, it, instead of being local or statewide, it's now, uh, it was a pronouncement from on high and the Republicans, she said, they're gonna be using this as a cudgel for decades now. And I thought, well, that's an interesting intellectual argument, but I thought, yeah, we won, we won, I don't care. I think she was so right. And the counter example to that is gay marriage because, when gay marriage went through the states, it went state by state to the point where even John Roberts' Supreme Court had to acknowledge that this was an equal protection. Now, when you had the majority of states having, you know, marriage equality in some form or other, then, you know, they, I can't remember what the particular case was, but it became the law of the land, marriage equality. And you know, um, 
gay marriage, except for some corners of evangelical, you know, uh, politics. I mean, that really has receded as a push button issue. I think now because people, it's not like people have more gay friends. It's just that they know more of their gay friends than they had before. And um, well, I don't know. I, I would counter that. I would counter that with the, uh, the point that what the Supreme Court was forced into was the back and forth in California, mm. where first Gavin Newsom as mayor of San Francisco, uh, against the advice of Barney Frank and Nancy Pelosi and everybody else, just declared that he was going to allow same-sex couples to marry. That was then challenged. Then there was a ballot measure that removed the right <laughs> that had already been granted. And yeah. that is what the Supreme Court confronted. And they really had no choice but to support the, uh, the ultimate ruling of the California State Supreme Court uh, that, that found this, uh, you know, a personal right. Now, coming back I, I, to the, the big trends related to abortion and the uh, the big bang of the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. You can make an argument there, but there, there were so many other factors at play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first and foremost was the effort that started with Reagan and then uh, gained steam into the 90s and the aughts uh, to redefine feminism. And so I, I just don't think that the the fact that the court ruled and that this truncated uh, burgeoning women's movements, I, I honestly don't see that as, as yeah, a, that a was a, That was the perspective of a feminist lawyer back in the early 80s, and she had been very much involved in, mm -hmm. in Michigan and getting it uh, legal in Michigan. Um, however, that brings me back to like, well, um, the Supreme Court has no choice. I, I kind of hard to find it hard to apply that to conservative judges. They always think they have a choice, even you know if it's completely unconstitutional, they think it's, they have a choice, but if, what well, would be- Well, it was a little bit better. You yeah. know, the, the uh, marriage equality decision was what, 2011, 2012? We, we had not disintegrated as far uh, in terms of the court's uh, uh, ruling in, in you know, compliance with the Constitution. Well, uh, so that brings me back to an earlier point. If the Democrats then finally, you know, get a little starch in them and pass a law through Congress, which they've been urged to do for years and years, and which they failed to do when they had it, I mean, Pelosi, yeah, it's Pelosi, doesn't, Pelosi doesn't have the votes in the House. Well, the thing is, is that maybe she doesn't have the votes when it doesn't look like Roe v. Wade itself is, you know, is going to be immediately threatened. If it looks like Roe v. Wade is in imminent danger of being, you know, eradicated, there, that might be a different legislative or political environment. Okay, but to your uh, comment that it could be passed in the Senate through reconciliation, Joe Manchin is deeply pro-life. He is against any adjustment to the filibuster. There's no way it's going to pass. And, and Pelosi's uh, shelf life ends in November. 
So we never fight for that. This is the problem. You know, uh, we always assume that, well, one guy is, you know, could have been the squad. They could have held up legislation with their numbers. There was like technically about eight of them this last round, but they didn't care to use it. So one guy in the Senate gets to have all the power in the world, I think largely because the left, you know, just kind of lets them have it. And gives there's no... Which, gives them everything. I think, so gets everything. <laughs> I'm going to translate for David. He gets everything what, that he wants. That's what David said. Well, but there's... He does with absolutely zero consequence from the Democratic Party. So mm -hmm. I think it's about time that that gets confronted or else, I mean, then what? Then we have a, you know, a, a continuing disintegrating situation where we just basically get people riled up on can for campaign contributions and then don't do anything with the power that occasionally Democrats really do have. Yeah. So anyway, no, I, uh, I agree with you. It's it's a very sorry picture. And the Democrats had opportunities, not a lot, but over the last 20 years to codify Roe versus Wade as a law. And they didn't do it because they didn't see the polling to support them that in turn would lead to the kind of campaign money they need to either get or maintain power. I think there was something else that Professor Lude touched on also. I mean, there is a, the, the professional managerial class. I don't think there's a, there's a single professional woman who would have been like a tenured professor or some, even somebody in my position who wouldn't think that she could get an abortion if she really wanted it or, you know, um, birth control if she really wanted it. Mm -hmm. But that's always been true. I mean, you know, like women, when abortion was completely illegal, women, professional women, women of means used to be able to do that. They used to be able to do that in the privacy of their gynecologist's office. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, when, when there is uh, not solidarity, when people just, you know, kind of have devolved into this you know, liberal versus conservative. And what people don't realize is that both liberals and conservatives of a certain professional class have way more overlapping interests than say the people who are trying to uh, uh, unionize at Amazon, for instance. Mm -hmm. This is the well, kind of thing. Some news about, we have some news about the Amazon yeah. labor year. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. Lost the vote. Staten Island. They mm -hmm. lost the vote. Tonight, yeah. a public tally of the vote held by the National Labor Relations Board in Brooklyn uh, showed 618 votes against unionizing, only 380 in favor. Hmm. Well, wow. you know, I think what I'm not seeing, oh, there was a lot of Twittering on the Twitters, but what I wasn't seeing was any, any real interest in why, why did the workers vote the way they did? Were people really, you know, has, I, I haven't been on Twitter for, for a while, early this morning I was, but I'd like to see, uh, I'd, I'd like to see why people voted the way they did. I suspect somebody had pointed out that many of the workers there are part-time, not full-time. 
And uh, well, well. The, the other issue is that uh, I think that there's a, a kind of pro-union fever that grows in these uh, dark workhouses and that people aren't fully aware that winning the NLRB vote is really just the first step. Hmm. And from there, you have to negotiate a contract. And it's during that period that people feel most vulnerable because right. they can be fired for almost any reason. Uh, and if they were known to be an organizer of the union effort, they will likely be singled out. And Starbucks. so we don't have... Say again, David. That's what Starbucks is doing. They're firing the union organizers in Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the corporate control is, is virtually complete. And, uh, you know, the NLRB has been neutered. Uh, the courts don't take up either antitrust or significant labor issues. Uh, I think Lily Ledbetter, the Goodyear Tire uh, woman, is the last to front a significant lawsuit that was a win for labor. Uh, and that was at the Supreme Court, of course. So uh, the, 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 the deck is stacked and uh, I applaud. I, I've been a union member since I was 19 and I believe in you know, organized labor and collective bargaining with all the faults that uh, it brings but I can't persuade so many people. Uh, we, we tried to organize some shops in Silicon Valley, including the NBC television station. And NBC went to such great lengths that all of their on-air people who we were targeting to organize into a labor unit, they didn't work for NBC. They worked for a staffing company that was owned by General Electric that had been used to hire temporary workers for nuclear power plants, jumpers. You know what a jumper is. <laughs> and so when we went to talk to these people, many of them had worked in AFTRA uh, TV stations before, but they would say, look, uh, you're not gonna beat these people. They're willing to outspend you and outlawyer you to prevent this shop from becoming you. So they, they can throw up all kinds of obstacles and you know, labor is often ill-equipped to deal with it. Well, I'm still hoping that, I mean, this is just a, a setback. It's a, it's, a smaller, it's, it's a smaller place than the uh, union from two weeks ago. I think that, um, this organizing from the ground up and the whole idea of mutual aid. I mean, that's something, what you just said is correct. And it's not just when union people go on strike. It's also supporting people who may be vulnerable between having voted for a union and having an actual contract. And you have to, you have to develop, you know, a communal uh, uh, support structure and mm -hmm. mutual aid structure to get people through that time. I think that now that people have so little these days and the work in Amazon, I, I have a, a friend who is not big on politics like I am, but uh, her goddaughter was telling her about working at Amazon and she was appalled. She goes, what century is this? And I said, 
it's, I don't know, the 19th? Oh yeah, it's the 21st. <laughs> it's like not as far as Amazon is concerned. No, I mean, my friend was just outright appalled that like, like she thought that this kind of thing, you know, pe people's bathroom breaks being monitored, people being timed, how long they took. She said, this sounds like, it sounds more like a plantation and slaves than it does, you know, workers. Yes, I agree. It's, it's talk to Talk and, to a UPS driver or a FedEx driver. Oh, yeah. That little computer thing that you sign your receipt for a package mm -hmm. controls their every move. And when they go in to see their boss at the end of the shift, he says, wow, three minutes in one place? Mm -hmm. you, you're flirting with a secretary? Wow. I mean, they know every move. Yeah, well, that is certainly not, you know, the relation of a free person to anybody. It's mm -hmm. the relation of a slave to their owner. And that's, you know, that's part of what we've normalized. Um, it, well, it's, it's, we, we do have to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank uh, two bad pieces of news tonight. Uh, David? Can I just leave one thought with you and perhaps we can pick up on it next week? Yes, sir. This is, how would you feel when PayPal cuts you off? And would you consider it to be fair, uh, transparent, and legal? I would feel horrible. Uh, and they will come for, I agree with you. I agree with you. But there is also a problem with neo-Nazis who are making money off hate that leads to violence and death. But there's always and, been legal remedies for that, David. There's been legal remedies for people who are being who are inciting violence, people who are slandering, although people don't take advantage of those. And the whole problem with the current regime is that none of this is transparent. Yes, I think that somebody who is uh, raising money to do illegal acts, I'm saying it's a violation of regal laws, they should, I mean, PayPal should report them, other people, but you have to have a charge and it has to be transparent. That's a real law. Slander, that's a real law. Endangering somebody, that's, a, that, there are laws against this kind of thing. The but problem nobody, is, nobody gets their day in court. No, but That's you have a reason why when when you're warned about that. Now, yeah, I think the FBI would really be interested in a real neo-Nazi, uh, a, a, a real terrorist ring, a real one, maybe. Either they're too busy like creating fictional ones, maybe they don't. But my point is, is that if you get yanked by PayPal, and particularly the consortium news case, there's no reason given for why they yanked. If if you suddenly found your internet and your phone service. I agree. And there was no way you could find out why. Was it that last conversation you had with that Marianne Cummings? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I had to admit. But that's yeah. a problem. Uh, it's a, there is a problem in this country. Are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, I've been saying on this show since the invasion of Ukraine, that there's been a chilling of speech 
that everybody has gotten in line and nobody is questioning Joe Biden's unilateral decision to send weapons to Ukraine without any effort to negotiate any efforts for a ceasefire. Nobody's questioning this. So the speech has been chilled. I agree. At the same time, there is a problem with misinformation in, in this country around the world. And we have to figure out how to keep. Uh, well, anyway, let, let's let's discuss it next week. Okay, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to try to get Joe uh, Laria from Consortium News oh, to come on and talk about it so we can uh, discuss it further, David. And, and I enjoy uh, going back and forth with you, and I never take any, uh, you know, umbrage uh, that you offer provocative questions and that you challenge uh, the line of, of thinking that I lay out. So yeah. this, is, this is a great salon, and I enjoy being a part of it. Right. I pre and you're both of you. I'm, I'm very appreciative. There's a problem. A friend of mine who's a comic, uh, got into it with, with some people on the Twitters and the rape threats and the death threats started. And at some point you violate the terms of service. If, if you are threatening to rape somebody on Twitter, as bad as Twitter is, I think if we were a more civilized society, we would understand nuance and be okay with Twitter saying you can't threaten to rape a, a comic on Twitter. No more for you. You're done. If you use Twitter, as Trump did, to incite a riot on January 6, whether or not you agree that Donald Trump incited a riot on January 6, I like to believe that Twitter, as evil as it is, has the right to say no shoes, no shirt, no socks, no service. It's not going to be resolved until we have a Justice Department that breaks up these monopolies so that people have more choice in their banking and their social media. Uh, that's, I think, the problem. I would like to think that nobody could force me to have a Republican on this show. Uh, I'd like to think that I, on this show, have the right to kick somebody off the show who's, you know, inciting a riot or, or saying to beat people up. It's uh well there are not... already laws that that regulate that what we have is a failure by congress to regulate uh social media operations consistent with existing law and so they operate outside of any regulatory framework and you know we haven't seen anybody attempt a novel uh legal action uh, other than Trump trying to get back on Twitter. 
so we're we're operating in an entire gray area, and uh, everybody likes it that way, and they they love they to. Have, there's a mythical court system out there that doesn't exist. When you look at Amber Heard and Johnny Depp in that libel suit, you have to be worth tens of millions of dollars mm -hmm. to get a libel suit before a judge. There's no such thing as a trial in America. 70% of Americans sitting in jail right now have never had a trial. Correct. There's, you know, divorces don't go to trial. It's all negotiated out of court. People plea bargain. This idea that you can sue somebody for violating your constitutional rights or threatening you, that we don't have a legal, there are no laws in this country. We are a lawless society. And so, ask anybody who's on the no fly list. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least they can get a gun. <laughs> Their Second Amendment rights are being honored. Mm -hmm. And if you're Madison Cawthorn, you can take it to the airport whenever you want. Uh-huh. Uh, we did a show without mentioning Madison Cawthorn. Until oh, now. sorry. Am I going to be fined? <laughs> Let me say goodnight to uh, Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, Go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of this brilliant man's interviews, podcasts, and radio shows. I can't thank you enough. And the brilliant Marianne Cummings, particle physicist, parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. And she's out there pounding the pavement for Nina Turner. God bless Go, you. Nina. Go, Nina. We need her. We may have tomorrow night at this time, there there may be a a new Congress person representing uh, the Cleveland Shaker Heights district. If she wins this, she goes straight to straight to the House. All right. Roe v. Wade looks like it's overturned. Amazon labor union lost one tonight. We live to fight another day. Thank you both. Thank you. David. Now I know how this show ends. <laughs> we live to fight. We have Benji in Florida. I'll go to him first and then we'll go to Rodrigo and call it a night. Hello, Benji. Hey, Mon. What's going on, David? Mon? Hey, uh, thank you for Prison Wallet. Nice. nice. Yeah, we, I ended up using that term Prison Wallet. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, David, I got a question for you. Uh, do you know what beautiful women always ask a man with a large penis? What? I didn't think you'd know. Beautiful women up at my place, they always ask me the same two questions. Uh, where am I and how long have I been out? <laughs> oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. No, I did. Uh, I made a big mistake with my wife the other night having sex, man. Uh, I meant to yell out, who's your daddy? And somehow I yelled out, how's your daddy? And she started talking about his Alzheimer's, started crying, and it, it completely ruined sex for her. <laughs> I'm a trooper. I power through. But 
<laughs> My wife's like a newspaper, man. She, it's a new issue every day, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm crazy about my wife. You know? Every time she gets home, my penis is wagging just like a dog's tail. <laughs> but my my uh, wife, man, she's a she's a sucker for a man with power, and uh, I just paid the light bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey man, I did a good deed yesterday. Uh, my friend was going to quit his job, and I talked him out of it. He's a uh, serial flasher, and because of me, he's going to stick it out another year. <laughs> now speaking of that my uh, doctor told me that i could masturbate whenever i wanted to really he did he, he clearly told me that i could have a stroke at any time <laughs> <laughs> now, now, which is different from my last doctor that told me i should stop masturbating and asked him why he said because the nurse is trying to take your blood pressure jackass <laughs> <laughs> Now, David, you're a smart dude, man. Um, you know if there's a cure for sex addiction, addiction man? Because uh, I've tried fucking everything, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, anyway, man, it's time for my nightly swim, man. I uh, I got to wait till all the people clear out of my community pool because I swim kind of al fresco. I've been doing mm -hmm. that since I got a tip from Dan Frankenberger. He said if you swim <laughs> naked, you don't get urine on your trunks. <laughs> Hey, tell Dan, thanks, man. And I'll see you guys Friday night, bro. Okay, great job. Thank Take you. Care, All right. Uh, and finally, Rodrigo in Mexico. How are you, sir? Hi there, Did, uh, did uh, meet with AMLO yet? Huh. No. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to show that picture because the man in both pictures has worked for AMLO and the man that AMLO has been blaming for everything that goes bad in the country for the last 20 years. Okay. Uh, well, what's in your mind? I wanted to, I had something prepared this short. Uh, as leftists, we need to stop talking about the wars that the U.S. has lost. Not because technically the U.S. hasn't lost anything since El Alamo, which fun fact, the white army came back later and did a little genocide to avenge their honor, but no. We need to stop talking about conflicts the U.S. technically hasn't lost, not because they decided they couldn't win, but because they didn't want to pay the price of victory, but because conservatives these days listen to someone like Dr. Fratt say that the U.S. has lost the last four wars, and they don't hear, oh, we should stop doing wars. They hear, what could we have done differently to win those wars? In a sense, we've always had people asking themselves, could I have won World War II as Hitler? And beyond the obvious take of, wait, you want to be Hitler in this scenario? Uh, we've been playing that game for many decades, and before that, many people with too much time on their hands have asked themselves, could I have won the US Civil War? Could I have won the Battle of Thermopylae with 300 Spartans against 1 million of Xerxes? closest friends. 
But today, in case you haven't been paying attention, conservatives in states they control heavily, they keep hearing the argument of do you want to stop all vaccine mandates then? And some of them have begun to reply, yes, I want to outlaw all vaccine mandates. This is why I believe leftists need to stop talking about how many military conflicts the U.S. hasn't won, not because it could not win, but because same people decided the price of victory, which in some cases involved starting World War III, was too high and they were pulling back. I also wanted to tell your audience about a wonderful anime whose first season has started recently, Konsuki no Gekokuyo Shishonitaru Narutame ni Niwashudan o Erandei Raremasen or Ascendance of a Bookworm is about a girl who loves books and dies. She finds herself in a new world where there are no libraries and at almost every step of her way to invent cheap bookmaking methods so she can be a librarian, she is stopped by rich nobles who get in her way because they can or because they're jealous of other people's success. And I have to warn you, it's not for little children unless you feel like explaining why she has to put orphans to work if she wants them to have food or why a certain maid is scared of all men. And she never once thinks, maybe I should throw, overthrow this government of wasteful nobles. She defeats them every time, but she never goes out of her way to stop their evil schemes. She just wants to live around books and she refuses to fight nobles unless they get in her way. That said, it's a wonderful series you can watch with children 13 and older who aren't too leftist, I goes as far as to call it almost perfect for its genre, it was also created in a platform for users to self-publish web novels, and you can probably watch the first three seasons on Netflix. And finally, we have an optics problem in the left because we accept right-wing framing without realizing it. When we try to pick a few key issues to focus on because the right attacks everyone, we are not using our strength. Our strength is that the right attacks everyone. If you talk to anyone for 10 minutes and that's being generous, you can discover how the right is coming after them. If they don't have LGBTQ friends or POC friends or even friends, they will probably care that the GOP has refused to raise the minimum wage since 2007. We don't have a problem because we care about everyone's issues we have a problem because we haven't figured out how to explain that the right attacks everyone so that they can play us against each other. I'll give you just one example. In the city of Shawnee, Kansas, they heard a presentation about how their city needed help with the increased living costs before they voted to ban four or more people moving in together to save money. If we can figure out how to explain that the conservatives will eventually come for everyone, maybe we don't deserve to win, but the starving children we're supposed to protect do. Not only have we accepted that we are the ones supposed to provide a coherent narrative for why a 25-year-old is white male, that is one thirty-second Cherokee and likes to watch porn in the morning, and go for a run after sunset should be a leftist, we have also accepted that the 
individuality, quote-unquote, value that makes people demand an explanation for what the left offers their extremely particular situation has a right to exist, when we should also be explaining that we believe as a society that 18-year-olds who live where parents are losers because the construction and real estate industries have been brainwashing us for a century. There's a lot of propaganda and trying to pack it in small chunks needs to play in whack-a-mole with people's minds. What Paul Krugman calls zombie ideas, you kill one, turn around to fight another one, and eventually you'll notice that the first one is back. And I don't want to take too much time, but if you think you're being quote-unquote effective when you refuse to acknowledge microaggressions, which I confess I want to do all the time, you have internalized right-wing propaganda designed to make you believe you have to quote-unquote focus your efforts while sending the clear message that you're not that different from the conservatives if someone scratches a bit under the surface. Finally, we don't have time to go into details now, but you should ask Pascal Robert when perpetually broke Haiti finally stopped paying France for quote-unquote war reparations for the liberated slaves that the Haitian independence liberated. I promise when? you that when? the answer is worth waiting for. Well, what's the or answer? You, can ask, you should ask Pascal. Or you can ask the anti-vaxxers what they're doing about the $100 billion that have been stolen from the COVID relief funds while 1 million people died just in the U.S. Thank you. When, when, when did Haiti stop paying reparations? You should ask Pascal. I promise you it's worth it. Okay. Thank you, Rodrigo. And that is the show. This was a great show. It really was. I want to thank all our guests. Grace Jackson, follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Jason Miles, download the This Is Revolution podcast wherever you get your fine podcasts. Hang on for one second. There's a weird sound. What is that? Okay. Um, Tom Nelson, go to nelsonforwi.com and give him money. Nelsonforwi.com. Tom Nelson is a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, and we want him to beat Ron Johnson. So go to nelsonforwi.com. Thank you, David Cobb and his guest, Debbie Notkin, for more information about Debbie's work in public banking, follow her on Twitter at publicbankeb or go to publicbankeastbay.org. Dr. Harriet Fraud, listen to her podcast, Capitalism Hits Home, It's Not Just In Your Head. Ethan Hershenfeld, watch Thug Thug Jew. It's streaming right now on YouTube. Follow him at E. Hershenfeld. Peter B. Collins and Minar Adli, founder and CEO and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. Go to mintpressnews.com and send money via snail mail. And of course, Professor Marianne Cummings and who doesn't love Professor Catherine Liu. Please go by Virtue Hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. Go buy 
virtue hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class, I promise you, it will it'll set you on fire. Hey, we have a virtual studio audience. If you'd like to join us, go to my website and sign up to attend a live taping. While you're over there, sign up for our newsletter and office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Meet better people. And it will be office hours and hours. It's the first Friday of the month. So we go for hours. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak.